Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here this Saturday afternoon, January 21st, 2023, to welcome you to Taran Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the true planetary and galactic history, history, and true history, history of Nasara. Infinite blessings and happy Chinese New Year. It is a new moon. Um, it was um, exact at 3.53 p.m. Eastern Time, so just a short time ago for each of us. And so we will welcome in the new year with some abundance work. So let's get excited and call forth our heavenly blessings, calling forth heaven on earth for us all as we go into our heart center. So take a nice deep breath, go into your sacred heart, into that heart portal to all that is. And as you enter into the heart center, we call forth for each of us the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence. We ask at this time for the full emergence with all of our multidimensional being, including all the parts of us from the higher realms that truly are masters of manifestation, masters of abundance, we see ourselves in our pillar of light, filled with that golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance, anchoring us directly to source, the source of all that is, directly into the sacred heart of Mother Gaia. We need that connection both ways in order to manifest that which we desire and bring heaven to earth. We invite everyone across the planet to join us as we affirm, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And feel your heart expanding. Feel your consciousness expanding. Connected to the heart of all that is the cosmic heart, connected heart to heart with everyone across the planet, (laughs) connected to divine mind as well, feeling the love and support of Gaia, feeling the love and support of the mighty I am. And thus we invite in for everyone, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, to receive all that we receive. 
all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, including all of our family tree, all of our family members and loved ones, all of our children and grandchildren. All of our spiritual lineage, our soul families, our soul pods. And so, we welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. And we welcome as well... All the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim putting all of the angels of abundance. We welcome as well the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant One, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissary, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams, We welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light, all of their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus. We welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. The entire company of heaven asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do. And magnify it, magnify it, magnify it. 999 times, 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. All that we call in for ourselves, we call in for all. And we call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, Every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell and chakra and meridian and layer of our orc field, through the conscious, subconscious, and superconscious minds, and the maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection. And with all that we receive, we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies, these gifts, these blessings. Multidimensionally, with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. 
may this new year be the start of amazing, amazing blessings individually and collectively on this planet. We call in everyone in our circle of support from the very first name that created them. To every man, woman, and child, every family member, every loved one, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every business, every corporation, every institution, all that needs to be transformed, every nation, every government, every condition of life, all of our climate, anything that looks like less than heaven on earth is in our circle of support involving all the people and the animals, the elementals on the planet. And again, especially our governments, as we hold the vision of divine government for the executive branch and offices and cabinets of the United States, of of all the countries in the Americas and all the countries across the world, every single nation. And the same for the legislative branch or aspect of each and every government and all the laws that are created. And each and every judicial branch or aspect of the government, all judges, all legal proceedings, legal decisions and we hold it all in perfection we call in the blue ray of divine order to take full and complete command of our lives individually and collectively on this planet this is also the ray of divine government that works hand in hand with the violet ray for divine government And, of course, all of the beings that work with those rays are here with us as part of our focus here today as well. And we call in all of the energy around all the things going on in the world, especially especially the energy around celebrating the Chinese New Year and the new moon celebration itself and all of the events going on in this month and in the month of February during this time of Aquarius. As we utilize all of the attention that people are giving to the events in their lives around the planet into our collective cup of consciousness to expand the divinity, to expand the Christed nature of humanity, to help people understand who they are and why they are here, each participating in the creation of heaven on earth. And we call forth Gaia to receive all that we receive for her, through her chakras and meridians and layers of her work field multidimensionally on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well, through her ley lines, her song lines, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the envy grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. 
through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light, every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire. As we hold this planet in their perfection, including our perfect weather patterns, including all of the things that the golden age promises, every aspect of heaven on earth, as we continue up this amazing journey, this spiral of evolution with Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. And we call forth at this time for divine victory. Victory also is a golden ray energy. And so we see it in and around us, in and around the planet. As we say in the name of love, wisdom, and power. By the authority and dictree of my own beloved I am presence, I demand and command every cell, atom, and electron of my physical body to blaze with the sacred fire of invincible love and the healing flames from my beloved I am presence and the ascended masters of light. As we call forth for perfection in the physical form, we ask for the action of the law of forgiveness for every transgression of the law of love in our daily lives and in the past. I command, and we do this in the name of ourselves and everyone on the planet, I command the invincible flames of purity, of protection, of resurrection and healing to blaze through my physical body, my emotional body, my mental body, my etheric body, my inner child, and my body elemental daily and hourly. In the name of love, I command my full mastery and victory over all outer conditions in my life to be made manifest. I also ask for the opening and return of all my spiritual gifts. And so it is, beloved, I am. I call upon the law of forgiveness for my errors of the past. I extend forgiveness to all souls I have ever hurt in any way, shape, or form in this lifetime and beyond. I also extend my forgiveness to all souls that have ever hurt me through any time, space, or dimension. I call upon the eternal flame of cosmic love to seize these energies to be drenched in the fires of the violet flame and the ascension flame. I give thanks for this divine healing. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. Beloved I am that I am. Take a nice deep breath. And we give thanks for this. At this time, we focus on 
divine government. In the name of the mighty I Am Presence, I call the love and the light of the Ascended Masters right here and right now into the White House, into the Capitol, into every branch of government, every state of the Union, every aspect of government, national, state, and local, into the hearts and minds of all politicians, all political leaders, all governmental officials, to produce perfection now and bring everything into light's victory of divine love. As we call this forth for this nation, we call this forth for each and every nation as well. In the name of the money I am presence, I charge the minds and feelings of everybody in America with St. Germain's Ascended Master Consciousness and Perfection. God bless, illumine, perfect, and set them free in the service of the light forever. Mighty I Am Presence, shatter and consume all activity of the sinister force in America, its cause and effect, replacing it forever by the eternal perfection of the Ascended Master's light of God that never fails. Mighty Ascended Masters and great legions of light fill America and all nations with that light, love, protection, and power as of a thousand suns and keep her forever invincible to all but thy mighty perfection. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So we call forth for obedience to the divine plan for the perfection of America. Mighty I am presence, great host of ascended masters, great cosmic beings and lords from the flame of Venus. In thy full authority of the great cosmic law. Project the great cosmic light with irresistible force throughout the government of the United States of America and hold all individuals true to their oath of office and obedient to the divine plan of the great cosmic beings for the perfecting of America, every aspect of her government and her people. Come forth now take possession of all governmental offices, hold your dominion and divine justice everywhere within our government forever. We thank thee, thou dost always answer our every call, and it is eternally sustained and ever-expanding. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We now bring our attention back to that abundant energy. See, sense, and feel that golden light in through and around you, in through and around this nation and this planet and all life upon her. 
and open and receive as we call this in. In the name of my beloved I am presence and my beloved Holy Christ self, I call to the lords of manifestation, angels of prosperity, Fortuna, goddess of supply, and the Lord of gold. To assist me now in mastering all outer conditions of my life in God's perfect way, including my true abundance. Charge, charge, charge into my life and use today all the blessings that are mine to receive. Infuse me with the ascended master wisdom and purity that I may never again experience lack or limitation. Blaze your heart flame through my four body systems and expand without limit a great flow of divine abundance. Saturate me with enough violet flame and emerald healing light to keep my life in perfect balance and harmony. I demand God's invisible protection and wisdom in all my financial endeavors. I demand to become a magnet of attraction, drawing to me all the wealth that I require to fulfill my divine plan on earth, to make my ascension, and to assist all my fellow human beings to do likewise. I give thanks that it is done according to God's most holy will. I accept my abundance now with love and gratitude. So be it, beloved I am. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. You can take a nice deep breath. We'll call forth Sandal, Fawn, and Gaia to assist us to anchor all of these blessings, to fully integrate them. Beloved, mighty, victorious, I am presence, beloved lords of manifestation. I call for the entire spirit of the great white brotherhood, for your assistance in the release of the supply needed to fulfill my destiny here on earth with ease and grace and joy and without any financial limitations. Release, release, release your unlimited supply of money in every gift into my life and into the lives of all those who are serving the light of Almighty God, Goddess, and fulfilling the, the, the divine plan on earth. Release, release, release your unlimited supply of money and every perfect gift into my life and into the lives of all those who are serving the light of Almighty God, Goddess, and fulfilling the divine plan on earth. Release, release, release your unlimited supply of money and every perfect gift into my life and into the lives of all those who are serving the light of Almighty God, Goddess, and fulfilling the divine plan on earth. I am the resurrection and the life of my ever-present and increasing supply from the heart of Mother, Father, God. I acknowledge my I am presence as my source for unlimited supply flowing through me in the service of the light. I am the master presence 
manifesting a constant flow of wealth into my life to produce the perfection needed to manifest my divine plan on earth in this life. I am the master presence directing and manifesting great abundance in my life, including all the money I will ever need from the great storehouse of heaven. I give thanks and praise God, goddess, that I have it now. And that as I speak, my prayers are instantly answered. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. We're going to do the Huna prayer. That came from uh, Joel Cool, given to Joshua David Stone. Haven't done that one for a while. So just feel yourself opening further. <laughs> As we do this sacred prayer, given to the planet by Joel Cool, especially for the manifestation of money for the light workers on this planet. So take a nice deep breath, and we say with one heart, one soul, one voice, beloved presence of God, Goddess, we hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. We are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In the name of God, Goddess, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Amen. Now this is a Hona prayer, so you say that first section three times. Beloved presence of God, Goddess, we hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. We are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Amen. Beloved presence of God, Goddess, we hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. <clears throat> we are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself 
to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In the name of God, Goddess, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Amen. We call forth our subconscious mind to take this prayer. Our beloved subconscious minds, we hereby ask and lovingly command that you take this thought form prayer to God, Goddess, along with all the mana and vital force needed and necessary to manifest and demonstrate this prayer. Amen. So please breathe this prayer to source, to our Mother, Father, God. And we say, Lord, let the rain of blessings fall. Amen. And please open to feel the energy coming back from source to you. Soaking it in. Receiving all the blessings that we can receive at this time. As we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And we seal it with the following prayer. The time is now to turn on the light of my divinity. I now open myself to the river of love that lies within my heart. Let love flow endlessly. I now open myself to the river of life that lies within my heart. Let life flow endlessly. I now open myself to the river of light that lies within my heart. Let light flow endlessly. I now open myself to the river of peace that lies within my heart. Let peace flow endlessly. I now open myself to the river of joy that lies within my heart. Let joy flow endlessly. I now open myself to the river of abundance that lies within my heart. Let abundance flow endlessly, ready to project infinite grace and gifts upon my daily life, now and forever. I now open myself to the river of violet flame that will purify me through my ascension. Here, O universe, I am grateful. Here, O universe, I am grateful. Here, O universe, I am grateful. And this we call forth for ourselves and for all humanity. Once again, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So at the sacred time of the new moon, at the sacred time of the Chinese New Year, we call these graces and blessings forth, these gifts forth for all of life. 
as our new moon intentions, as our new year intentions, and all the other things that we hold sacred in our hearts as our intentions. Every aspect of the manifestation of heaven on earth we call forth now. And this is now sealed in the most exquisite light, light beyond description, golden light, silver light, platinum light, the most exquisite hues of platinum light that seals all of our work and seals all of us in unity consciousness. as we go through this year in divine grace and love and light. So I ask you to hold this vision here this week. All the things that we have called forth, the perfect health, the divine government, the infinite abundance, and the eternal peace. Hold this in your heart, hold this in your mind, in your consciousness this week. As I wish each and every one of you a most exquisitely blessed New Year. And I thank you for your divine service. I thank you for joining me in divine service as we the Saturday program. And I invite you to join us for further divine service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls, where I do the teleconference call that includes meditations and activations, decrees and evocations, updates, just amazing, amazing information and amazing, amazing work that we do to uplift the planet, to raise the frequency, to bring heaven to earth and anchor the new golden age. So please join us. We begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We start with greetings for about 25 minutes, and then Tara and Rama come in and give us a brief update. And after that, at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time, we start with our work in earnest, doing our activations, our meditations, all of our sacred prayer work. This is by teleconference call, so let me make sure you have the number. Take it down if you haven't been with us before. The main number is area code 425 Four three six six two six zero. Again, area code four two five four three six six two six zero. The access code is nine four six seven four four one pound nine four six seven four four one pound. Now there are plenty of other numbers. 
and there are also international numbers. You can get on through the Internet. And I hope you will join us. I will be happy to send you that additional information if you contact me. Just um, put in the title of the email, Ascension Calls, and we'll make sure you have all of the additional numbers. Just email me at Cheryl Croce. My name is C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know where you're calling from. Love to have you as a regular part of our family of light. So thank you for being here on the planet at this time. Thank you for your divine service. We want to thank Karen Rama for their divine service. Again, I wish everybody abundant, abundant, abundant blessings throughout this year ahead of every good thing. And we thank Rainbow for her service as well. And Rainbow, you know, there's a lot of golden light here. We've got the silver, the platinum that it's surrounded by. We've got the emerald of abundance. We've got the violet flame as well. And every symbol of abundance, golden flecks and golden coins. And uh, so it's lots of lots of energy, especially around this Chinese New Year energy. And the rabbits for abundance going to be multiplying our our abundance work, multiplying. We have the multiplication of this work here today in divine order. And um, so we thank you all. Make sure you express your gratitude in all situations and that abundance will flow. And I pass this abundantly blessed talking stick to you, Rainbow. Love and gratitude to you all. Oh, I love that talking stick. Thank you, Cheryl. Beautiful. And Happy New Year. And thank you, uh, Cheryl, for your divine service as well. And we are so grateful to have you each week with us. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. Each week we have expenses on our shows, and this week we need $520 to cover those expenses. We're a week behind. Uh, so let's get caught up as we can and be extra generous. <laughs> this is how we make a contribution to BBS Radio, to our account at BBS Radio. So you want to go to bbsradio.com, and there on the on the front page you'll see their menu selection. You click on that for Radio Station 2. That's this, where you'll find this program listed on Saturdays at the 1.30 hour in the Pacific time. So it's the true history, history, and the Sarah and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. As you click on that icon there at that listing, um, that just takes you directly to our account where you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. And that's also true if you're on Radio Station 1 and access our listing on the Friday night show, Hard News with Tara and Rama, um, on BBS Radio on Friday night. 
And you can click on that icon there. That takes you to our account. And then, of course, on Thursdays on Radio Station 1 at the 6 o'clock hour is a night at the round table with the panel. And that's another place where you can click on the icon and access that act out with CBS. That's how we do it. So thank you. Thank you for taking that action and showing up that way. We're so grateful. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and we're calling this Rent Week as it's just another 10 days and that rent is due. Um, And so they have bills that come with that as well that need to be covered at that time of the month. And so what they're needing this week, in addition to the rent, is another $200 for living expenses and another $500 for um, covering the bills. So let's be generous. (laughs) And maybe we bless many times more for all that we give forward like that. Um, Here's how we make a donation to Tara and Rama's PayPal account. You will access this by going to the web address, um, which is rainbowroundtable.net, and there... As you're on the home page and click on that menu grid, there are menu will drop down and it's near the bottom of that list and it's called the donate button. As you click on that, that takes you directly to Rama's PayPal account or the Rainbow Round, pay, round Table PayPal account where you can make a donation in any amount um, using your bank card. So the alternatively, you can go directly to paypal.com and put in Rama's email there for gifting in that email address for Rama at PayPal, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at com, And that just gives you the access to the friends option, which eliminates the commercial charges. But either way, it's perfect. We're so grateful for all your contributions. And all the ways you show up in your life. So, um, thank you. Thank you for taking that action. Thank you for all you people who are dedicated and making sure that rent gets covered this month. And thank you for all you people who are listening and hearing and knowing and responding to that request and assisting Tara and Rama in this way. At you, you assist all of us as they are the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> All day long on Fridays and Saturdays and on Thursdays. So lots of gratitude for them and their lives and their contacts and their dedication to the work. And we have many, many thanks for you in the new and prosperous new year as we start the Aquarian age with the new moon in Aquarius and all that golden light. So <laughs> as you're sending something to Tararama, you need to let them know that you sent something. And that email for letting them know is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39 at Comcast.net. And so let them know what you sent and when you sent it. And uh, as you need it, the physical address is as follows, Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Post Office Box 280-280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. And again, Post Office Box 
Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip code. So there you have it, all the information. And I'm so excited about this new year. And so this caution stick that I am sending has all this golden light with the silver and platinum light around it and the emerald and the violet rays are there and and just golden coins and orbs lighting up everything, lots of flecks and flames. And this stick has plenty of rabbit for all the abundance that's coming to us. And it's the year of the rabbit. And it's got all the other accoutrements of New Year's celebrations. So there's fireworks everywhere. And dragons. We love the Chinese New Year for its dragons. So <laughs> breathing golden fire. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Welcome. And I also want to say 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. Thank you for all your gifts for everyone here. And here comes that talking stick. Greetings, Tara and Rama. Greetings. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to everyone. And thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. Uh, Pick you up to mute, Rainbird. Maybe. Yeah, that's good. There we go. All right, hopefully everybody can hear us. Rama, why don't you pull that over here, that microphone. Oh no, on this side. And we can both be heard, right? So tell, tell us what you think about today's message, Rama. Oh, I have just heard all kinds of wild stories about this paradox that's going on, which is we are swiftly moving into this Aquarian age, Satyuga, yet we are still looking at the Kali doing her dance with her necklace of skulls as the Republicans do their dance of austerity and fascism. I heard so many stories today about other parts of the planet where fascism doesn't work. And uh, I heard on Counterspin today um, a lady who didn't want to give her name out and she was at the January 6th insurrection and she didn't want to participate, yet the folks around her convinced her she had better. And somehow she's been like laying low till now. And um, on Counterspin, they gave her interview and she said these people, um, they need to be held accountable. And um, in terms of the other stories going on, it is all part of this 
old timeline ending and the solar flares continue and the energies keep getting higher and um, chalk would carry water. <laughs> President Biden, Chief of Staff Ron Klein, um, he is expected to step down here. I think right, uh, I think right before or after the State of the Union, somewhere in there. And, um, and the women's march is tomorrow. Yes, it definitely is confirmed. Yes. So let's just see where, uh, Rainbird was saying that expect it to be happening in the cities all across the nation. So, yeah. I'm sure that, uh, everybody's neighborhood's gonna see something. I think so. <laughs> and, the uh, goddess is moving the energies and I just have to say that what I'm watching here is the old patriarchy stumbling over themselves to try to make some kind of semblance of government. It is not divine government whatsoever. I have seen how the Solar Council on Saturn works. I've seen other divine governments, um, the Pleiades, Sirius, Andromeda, Antares, Arturus. I can go on. What we're watching here is this end of a 26,000-year cycle. Like Greg Braden says, climate disruption, consciousness gets raised as high as we can go as we allow ourselves to explore the infinite realm of infinite possibilities that Deepak Chopra talks about. And... Um, the galactics are here, yet we are the ones that make the energy happen. <laughs> the sooner we get over our issues about headlight, taillight, and I won't go into that, and um, these Republicans, because they might have problems in their personal lives with, you know, Whatever is going on <laughs> and uh they're healing big. their kundalini, so to speak, without yeah. getting too impolite, you know having your kundalini at the other end of the gun ain't gonna work. No. That's where we got and you I don't mean, come and invade and occupy a planet like the Anunnaki did. And rape and pillage and plunder, whether you're 50 feet tall or 5 feet tall. <laughs> it just doesn't work. <laughs> no. No. Although there's a lot of suffering in Samsara and Samsara, as there's a dominating uh, small group of very rich people who got it ill-gottenly. And this is 
the story that this lamestream media doesn't talk about, but Eric Von Daniken talks about it, the other folks on Ancient Aliens, and it is about these extraterrestrial visitors that did not follow the law of one. That's simply how to put it. And Well, everybody's got something. Yeah, we all got something. Oh, boy. Take a good look, and everybody can remember their past incarnations. And there are many out there in this world that can help us with that. Yes. Healing the PTSD that has gone on for millenniums and millenniums and still to this day, what happened 26,000 years ago is being healed. There are all kinds of folks working at sacred um, ley lines, song lines, dragon lines, the power points on the planet with this new moon uh, as we approach um, Imbolac, Ka- Candlemas, the first of the spring festivals of calling in the goddess. And she's in charge. I pass the talking stick. Well, it's interesting. You know, there was this... Um on Amy, I think we all heard it yesterday as we were listening to Amy Goodman, but there was a, 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 a protester that got into the protests with the people that were against abortion, and he got a sign up there, and he said, I hate women! I hate women! And the guys were all around him, were looking at him like, what's, what, what, what's with you? And he said, I'm with you, guys. I hate women. That's why you don't want to, uh, have them to have control over their bodies, right? I hate women. <laughs> uh, it's funny, but it's not funny. But I thought no. that was very, very clever, to say the least. And I was just looking at all the faces of the men. It was all men, you know. I thought you'd see a woman saying, I hate women. That's weird (laughs) but anyway oh goodness and the other thing was um representative marjorie taylor green mr gosa and bobert gosar gosar or (laughs) 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 they go all three of them got assigned to the oversight committee that would be real interesting Mm. help me please and the New York Times uh, was talking today about the House passing a bill that could subject some document doctors to prosecution. I seriously doubt it will pass in the Senate. No. Yeah. And they are trying to wipe out the goddess, and she won't get wiped out because... No. That's the reason anybody that's in anybody is going to be here. Duh. (laughs) This is why mother's here. You don't mess with the goddess. (laughs) How can I, how can we help you people? (laughs) Uh, As part of an anti-abortion rights effort, the Republicans pushed through a bill laying out criminal penalties for doctors 
who failed to resuscitate babies born after an attempted abortion. That does not ever happen. These characters have really got themselves tied up in a wad, as we say. Yeah, it, it is blaze of violent fire. And Michigan faith leaders call on state legislature to pass um, um, reform laws. What kind of reform laws? Um Mm-hmm. I can't read my own writing, sorry. <laughs> okay. Let's just say this is called chaos, everybody. This is called divine chaos. And out of divine chaos, we create the new. Yes. And I'll just maybe read a little bit about the rabbit, how I do that. Uh, uh, there's uh, qualities that... Personality qualities, positive, affectionate, ambitious, artistic, considerate, cultured, diplomatic, expressive, honorable, hospitable, intelligent, moderate, modest, peaceful, popular, principled, scholarly, sensitive, Talented, virtuous, well-mannered. The negative, complicated, conformist, conservative, gossipy, hesitant, hypocritical. No, excuse me, hypochondriac. Oh, dear. (laughs) Indecisive, indifferent, judgmental. Secretive, self-centered, self-indulgent, superficial, timid, touchy. Okay. So, um, you know, there are some combinations that work better than others, you know, just like uh, astrologically. I just wanted to make a comment that the Western astrology is off by two years average. Two years. Um, The Ayurvedic astrology is aligned uh, quite well. Yet... When there's so many people that subscribe to something, there has some validity to what they're subscribing to. In order to transform something, as you don't acknowledge what millions and millions of people ascribe to, then uh, that doesn't help anything change. But... um, I mean, when I was a teenager, uh, knee highs and, uh, uh, what's his name? Love me tender, love me true. Elvis. Elvis was popular. And now the daughter. 
passed over. But I'm just saying Bobby Socks. Yeah, Bobby Socks. <laughs> Bobby Socks. I'm just saying we did what we did. And the twist, right? The twist. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's all these things we got to look back on. And again, you know, you got to be in your 70s to have knowledge of what that was about. <laughs> so uh, that would go along with the... Um, the, the largest generation. That's why we get double in our social security. Cause there's so many more. Baby boomers. Baby boomers, right. And again, the baby boomers came in where they came in to reverse dying. The idea that dying is part of the menu is a really bad idea. I mean, as you don't choose to die, you can ascend. As you choose to die, that you're saying, well, I'm not taking my body with me, at least. And we can change our form. It requires knowledge of the truth. And then learning disciplines, learning how to do things. Uh, the first thing I thought of again just now is uh, William David showed us how to levitate. He literally levitated off of the chair. He was sitting in front of the whole group about four feet. And he was there for 15, 20 minutes right in the middle of the air. And he did all kinds of other things, too. And one of them was very interesting, where you can take the skin across your head and using the muscles behind your ears, you can move the skin all the way forward and all the way back again. And you can do that without moving anything else or not, not assisting it in any other way. It's like giving your scalp a massage. <laughs> it's very interesting. Right, Gaba? Yes. What else did you learn when you were attending spiritual classes with your teachers? Um, Didn't you learn a lot of yoga? Yoga, telekinesis. Um, Tell people what that means. Uh, levitating objects. So what did you levitate? Um, I levitated my mother once. Ah! With, with my brother's help, we focused our energies together. We levitated her out of the chair. She was drunk as a skunk, and she didn't really notice anything. Oh, dear, Rama. Oh, it was a trip. <laughs> we spun her around, put her back in her chair. But oh, no, We never you guys. did that again. <laughs> Once was enough, huh? Yeah. She didn't realize it even when you spun her around? She didn't realize it, no. Oh, my gosh. Place of my fire. Okay, well, that's an interesting example. <laughs> okay. I think we better play this. I was going to say that the compatibility for the... Uh, 
I'm sorry, we gotta go forward here for the rabbit. Let's see, wait a second. Um, the fo the force of the rabbit is yin. Yin is divine feminine energy, the ability to receive. And of course, you choose what you want to receive. It would behoove us all to choose love. That would be good for starters. Yes. And then the natural element is wood. Hmm. Um, I'm just going to leave that like that. Uh, and then the season and the principal month is March, spring. The season is spring and the principal is March. And then the uh, direction of its sign, it moves direct east plus 30 and minus 30 degrees. So that's interesting. And then the hours that are, are ruled by the rabbit are 5 a.m. in the morning to 7 a.m. in the morning. Hmm. Ram and Tara are pretty much up through that period of time. And we watch Amy from 6 to 7 Mountain Time. Okay, the best companion. Uh, the best companions are the sheep and the pig. And the worst companions are the rat, the dragon, the ox, the rooster. And the color is white, as in white rabbit. We've been having a friend, a white rabbit friend now. Uh, Rama's been feeding her. I think it's a her. Is that a her? I think it's a her. <laughs> she won't let you. I can't. 100%. Yeah, I can't pick her up and look. No. Anyway, the most famous rabbit in Chinese culture is probably the jade rabbit. Yeah. Who decide, resides in the moon palace. The legend has it that one day, three fairy sages transformed themselves into starving old beggars and bumped and bumped into a fox, a monkey, and a rabbit. The sages asked these three animals for something to eat. The fox and the monkey both shared their food with the old men. Yet the poor rabbit had nothing for itself or the sages. Determined to save the dying old man, the rabbit jumped into a burning fire and offered itself to the beggars. Oh. Wow. The sages were so moved by the rabbit's sacrifice that with their power they revived it. And granted it eternal life. Wow. Jay Rabbit. Wow. Then the rabbit was sent to live in the moon palace with Chang Chang Er, the moon fairy. Mm -hmm. 
C-H-A-N-G and then capital E-R, the moon fairy. Unlike Westerners, who associate the full moon with the myth of the werewolf, the Chinese are fascinated by the moon and celebrate moon festival on the 15th day of the 8th lunar month. Just like the West celebrates Christmas and Thanksgiving. This is the day for families to watch the full moon together. I remember our brother Chin uh, went out to see the full moon. I don't remember which one it was, but they saw Starship when they did that together as a family. The whole family got to see a Starship because they went out together and took a look at the full moon. Wow. When one or more of me are gathered. I am in your midst, said the man with the plan. So, again, this is the family. I mean, this is the day for families to watch the full moon together and enjoy moon cakes outdoors. I hear they're good. I never think I ever had one. Do you know what they are? Um, they're like a... I can't really remember. Well, we'll have to look it up on our computer. You can do that. Yeah. I'll go I on. was thinking there was sort of like this fried dessert. Oh, no, no, no. They're they're actually like cupcakes or something. Oh. But you can look it up on your, your phone there. Yeah. Yeah, why don't you do that? Um... And Are you I'll, talking about moon pies? Moon cakes, like cakes. Yeah, well, we have moon pies, and they're they're like four inches across. It's a graham cracker coated in chocolate with marshmallow in between. Oh, I like those. Mm. Yeah, that's a moon pie. A dope and a moon pie means that's what you bring for your snack, and a dope is a, a slang for uh, a soda. A Coca-Cola or a Dr. Pepper or something like that. Oh. oh well, the, first thing I, the first thing I remember is that we used to take marshmallows and put them on a stick. And we used to roast them over the fire. And then we'd stick them through, between graham crackers. And I don't remember the chocolate part. But anyway, we'd eat them like that. <laughs> and that was really good. Yeah, that's s'mores. Moon pies are pretty trashy. They're pretty much junk food. Oh, Okay. Just okay. so you know, I, I'll hold you down now. Thank you. Thank you, Rayburn. Rama, look up moon cakes and see if that's what that says. Anyway, thank you. It is also a romantic festival for lovers. Oh. Somehow, looking at the moon links them together. Yes, it does. Oh, here are moon cakes. Yeah, well, tell, read what it says. Oh. They look good. Uh, I'm trying to read the ingredients. <laughs> okay, well, when you get there, uh, I'll read the last paragraph. Oh, it's, did you find it? Yeah, they're made of dough consisting consisting of golden syrup, um, vegetable oil, and flour. An egg. Okay. Yeah, enough. Okay. Some people say that if you look closely at the moon, 
you will see the beautiful Chang Air Fairy and cheerful Jade Rabbit singing together in the Moon Palace. Okay, that's good for now. Let's enjoy that. And it's time to start with uh, what we're going to play first today. What is that, Rama? Extraterrestrials, Antiquity, and Evolution. Is there more to that? um, Eric Von Daniken. At at an awakening conference in Blackpool, England. Yeah. Um, He talks about the world's greatest mysteries from... ETs in Egypt to the elongated skulls in Peru to giant skeletons. Okay, let's see what is going to happen here. This is an hour and 37 minutes, right? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Awakening presents its Ancient Aliens panel with our guest speakers who will be answering some of our pre-selected audience questions. Our first guest is a world explorer and the author of several books. He is also the organizer of the Megalithomania Conference, so you know who he is, which is held each year in Glastonbury. He is an international lecturer who has just released a new book with co-author Jim Vieira entitled the giants of Stonehenge and ancient Britain. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Hugh Newman. Welcome. Our next guest is a science and history writer and the author of over 15 books that challenge the way we think about the past. In 2008, along with the researcher Nigel Skinner-Simpson, he discovered a previously unrecorded cave system beneath the shadow of the Great Pyramid at Giza. It is a story that has brought him acclaim across the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Andrew Collins. Hello. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest has been described as a female Indiana Jones. And when she's not traveling and conducting research on ancient sites, she has time to author books, conduct tour guides, utilize her amazing abilities as a dowser, and of of course, lecture internationally. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Maria Wheatley. Our next guest has traveled the world investigating ancient sites and is a principal researcher for Project Doorway. He has also spent over three decades investigating the supernatural and was a lead investigator for the TV show Ghost Hunters International. He is an executive producer, international lecturer and author of several books, his latest being co-authored with Brian Allen entitled The Deceptions of Gods and Men. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Barry Fitzgerald. And our, our next guest, our final guest this evening for our Ancient Alien panel is an American entrepreneur, author, music artist, TV host, producer, actor, and director who specializes in the study of ancient civilizations. He is the founder of Forbidden Knowledge TV and the co-founder of the First Class Space Agency and its subsidiary United Family of Anomaly Hunters. He is also a two-times best-selling author, Ladies and gentlemen, for his first time appearance here in the UK, please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Billy Carson. Good to see you. Our esteemed guests will be asked some pre-selected audience questions, starting with Hugh Newman and then moving along. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to our digital MC, Mr. Peter Twist. Hugh Newman. Hugh, there has been much talk recently in regards to giant bones discovered near Stonehenge in the UK. If this is true, and if so, does this mean that there is a possibility that Stonehenge could have been built by giants? Yes. 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 <laughs> is that next question now? <laughs> yeah, I, I live in the Stonehenge landscape and I haven't found anything bones or giants myself just yet but who knows what's under my house it is quite haunted so you know you never know but i've been researching with jim vieira for a good few years on our new book the giants of stonehenge in ancient britain and we were always intrigued by um you know the fact that many of these megalithic sites stonehenge included have these giant legends these myths at their core and even the earliest name recorded of Stonehenge is the Giant's Dance or Welsh Corio Gigantum in various interpretations of that which comes from the book um, The History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth and there were earlier texts which mention this giant connection as well and the myth goes I'll just quick, quickly summarise this that in very ancient times, the stones of Stonehenge were brought over from the farthest reaches of Africa by a group of giants. And they were placed at a site called Kilaroos in the remote part of Ireland. They stayed there for thousands of years. And then at some point, King Ambrosius summoned his army, which was led by Uther Pendragon, to bring the stones over from Ireland to Salisbury Plain to build them in honour reconstruct them in honour of a fallen army in a great battle where many of his soldiers had been slain. But here they couldn't move them, the 15,000 strong, and they couldn't move the stones from Ireland. They tried really hard, and they couldn't budge a stone, and so they had to call on the services of Merlin, the magician, or the wizard, to go over there. And he was said to have moved all the stones on his own, and there were two or three interpretations. One story said he used gears, levers, and engines. And others says, says he used magic and sleight to bring them over. Whichever way he did it, they got to Salisbury Plain and they were reconstructed in the exact configuration. In fact, the earliest depiction ever of Stonehenge is from a version of the History of Kings of Britain that came out a bit later that has Merlin with King Ambrosius and what looks like a 16 to 18 foot tall giant lifting one of the lintels, one of the top stones, into place. Yeah. So this giant connection with Stonehenge always intrigued us. And then we found that 
1719, myself and Jim came across a report of a nine-foot-four skeleton being found in a giant's grave, a mound near Salisbury. Now, Salisbury is the nearest town to Stonehenge. It's just a few miles south, and it's part, really, of the greater Stonehenge landscape. And this really intrigued us. We found two or three accounts of this, and we know exactly where it was buried, but it's been built over now by the local art centre. But then we found this other account, which, which really got us, because this is from 1508, and it was witnessed by Sir Thomas Elliot, who was a well-known scholar. Um, he was an MP for Cambridge. He also wrote the first Latin dictionary. And he witnessed a 14-foot, 10-inch skeleton found in the general area, just, just south of Salisbury, again, within the Stonehenge landscape. A 14-foot, 10 is really tall. I mean, if you meet someone who's 7 foot, it's pretty impressive. So when you meet someone who's 14 foot 10, or at least find their skeleton. And he was buried in this huge oak log coffin. It had a book with these strange inscriptions on it that could never be deciphered. And they found this quite large metal disc made of tin and lead that again had the same kind of obscure inscriptions on it but no one could decode it all of these have now disappeared but before they did disappear they were witnessed not only by Thomas Elliot and his, his well known father but also by John Leland um, and various other well-known scholars, almost like celebrities and academics at the time. So they, they wouldn't really make this up. One of the weird things as well, even in um, the Bush Barrow, where the famous lozenge was found, which is just, just next to Stonehenge, the description of the burial there was a very robust, very tall individual. We have similar accounts from other mounds in the area. But also we have this tradition going back to the 1400s, of a secret society, the Guild of Tailors in Salisbury, parading a 24-foot giant around town every summer solstice, just after the summer solstice, St. John the Baptist Day, every year since the mid-1400s. This is before the skeletons were even found. And so there's this, why were they parading this giant around? What, what was this pageant all about? And then we realized they eventually named him St. Christopher. And we, me and Jim, when we were researching it, but wondered why would they name a giant, St. Christopher. And St. Christopher, if you look, he was a giant Canaanite warrior from the Bible lands. And he was said to have carried Jesus on his shoulder when he came over. And this is what he became famous for. And he decided to, you know, you know, kind of worship Jesus and God and all this kind of stuff. But so you've got these, all these giant connections, even with the Bible lands in this particular area. But I must admit, this is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the giant discoveries made, especially in relation to megalithic sites in ancient Britain and Ireland and Scotland and Wales everywhere. We have over 250 accounts with legends that match the discoveries being made in the ground. And so there's a real story here, and I hope this has given you a quick introduction, and hopefully it's answered the question. Thank you. Andrew Collins. Andrew, do the lost underworld of catacombs beneath the Egyptian pyramids show any evidence that the Egyptians built them, and if so, why were they left unexplored for around 200 years? Well, that's a big one. Um, who's heard of the Hall of Records? Okay. Um, the idea that somewhere beneath the plateau at Giza, beneath the Great Pyramid, beneath the Great Sphinx, is some kind of secret chamber with the, 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 the quite literally the secrets of the universe contained within it. 
Well, this is something which has actually been written about for the last 2,000 years. I mean, there's Roman accounts of it. There's various Arab accounts. Um, there are various people in the 19th century that wrote about it. The, the great psychic Edgar Casey wrote about the idea of the, the Hall of Records. And back in the, the 80s, I first got to hear about this, and I thought, I want to try and find it. I mean, I want to go out there and actually try and find it. And I didn't really get the opportunity um, until the 2000s. And by that time, um, I was in quite an influential position as far as, as my relationship with people, you know, on the plateau, Egyptologists and whatever. Um, and I started working with a, uh, an Egyptological researcher by the name of Nigel Skinner-Simpson. And... The idea was to try and find if there was any possible entrance into a cave underworld at Giza that would eventually lead to the Hall of Records, which I, I firmly believe was there. Um, and it took us five years, I mean, you know, of absolute research, you know, throughout the 2000s. And then in 2008, we started, we, we, we uncovered this 200-year-old diary account that talked about a, um, a British Consul General guy by the name of Henry Salt and his uh, Italian, um, um, you know, explorer friend by the name of Giovanni uh, uh, Caviglia. And it was in, and there was in this account, it said that they'd gone into caves at Giza for a distance of about um, 300 feet. And that, you know, they went even beyond that. They found chambers or whatever. And Nigel said, look, you know, I, I've read virtually everything that's ever been written about the Giza Plateau, whether it be in books, articles, papers. And whatever they were in, went into, which was in about 1819, is just not recorded. So we, we carefully tried to dissect exactly whereabouts this entrance into this cave underworld was and we pinned it down to the northwest corner of the plateau and we thought well okay what's there so well, we did a cursory visit and there is this weird place called the tomb of the birds where howard vice who was a british engineer uh, researcher explorer in the mid 19th century and supposedly found the remains of a lot of bird mummies and a removed them out of this chamber and again absolutely no record of this in any official count we went back there knowing that this entrance had to be in the vicinity of this so-called tomb of the birds so what we did was we hired camels and put all of our stuff on camels and got onto the Giza plateau via the rear entrance to the south which is what you the only place that you can get onto it when they don't actually check you and we went across to the, um, this, you know, this particular place called the Tomb of the Birds and investigated it. And eventually, in the absolute darkness, we found this small crack leading into this huge cave chamber. And yeah, when we shone the, 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 the torch in there, I mean, it was like, oh my God. I mean, it's this massive, huge natural cave structure that had never been recorded before. Certainly not over the last 200 years. So we went into it and it was absolutely full of bats and poisonous spiders and all sorts of other 
you know, bugs of the sort that you see on an Indiana Jones film. And it was absolutely full of this. So we, 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 fought, we, we progressed as, as far as we possibly could until eventually the whole thing just shrank down to this small tube, you know, probably about 150 yards, you know, meters. And we, we eventually had to stop. We went back there in all four times. But we had to report it as well, which we did to the, the local Egyptological um, authorities. And eventually we had to present it all to Dr. Zahe Hawass, who was the, the big boss of the Supreme Council of Antiquities. And he just denied it. He said, you've discovered nothing, you know. And we said, no, no, we have. We've got the photographs to prove it. Just a few months later, right, he's on this TV show, um, which was called, um, I can't finding, so I can't remember what it was, what was it? Um, uh, you know, this, this thing where they were following him around, this reality show, were actually showing him going into these caves and discovering them himself and avoiding all these bats flying around, um, and saying this was the most incredible experience he's ever had on, on the Giza Plateau, um, which is just absolutely bizarre. But the whole thing was written up in a book that I wrote, uh, it was published in 20, not, uh, 2009, called Beneath the Pyramids. Unfortunately, it's not uh, available anymore. But this all got me into serious problems eventually. Um, and I, I, if I'd have gone back to Egypt for a few years, I would have got arrested. Serious. And that's without even talking about what happened in Turkey, but that's another story. Um, so, but, uh, anyway, um, so... But my good friend, Rod, uh, um, Robert Bouval, yeah, the, the author of the Orion Mystery, knew all the right people and sorted it all out. So we can find, I can finally go back to Egypt with, you know, with my head held high. So that was it. But those, those caves, you can see them on radar images and they go underneath the second pyramid. Not the Sphinx, not the Great Pyramid, the second pyramid. And it's said that underneath the second pyramid, is the tomb of Hermes, and that within his hands he holds something called the Emerald Tablets, and that they themselves are supposedly symbolic of these great secrets that are to be found within the Hall of Records when finally you get to that. But I'd like to think that we've come closest to actually entering inside those Hall of Records. So basically, that's my story of uh, of Egypt, but um, just one of the many adventures I've been on. So thank you. Maria Wheatley. Maria, it has been written that decades ago, a most unusual skeleton was excavated close to Stonehenge. Its description was said to be very similar to Lloyd Pye's famous star child. How true is this? And why was it described as unusual? Well, there's many different types of beings or civilizations associated with Stonehenge. There are giants like Hugh describes, but there are also other types of civilizations that were much smaller and very elfin-like. And I'll be describing that in my talk. My research, I really like the Neolithic era, and that's the ancient time of Stonehenge. That's going back to around 3,800 BC and beyond that. And they built and constructed long barrows, causewayed enclosures, and curses monuments. 
they were an incredible type of people because I, disco- I discovered that they had long skulls, elongated skulls, and the femur bones of these people were only up to 16 inches, which makes them really small, the opposite of the giants. So they were really about sort of four feet eight for the women and five feet, five feet four for the males of the Neolithic period. Now, in that research, I noticed that there's a long barrow. It is not on a map. It's on a very ancient map that is in view of Stonehenge. And in that barrow was described the most unusual burial ever. It's unprecedented and it hasn't anything like it in the British Isles. So if you imagine that in the Neolithic, they would take a whole body and put it in what's called the flexed position, that's in like the fetal position and tie it up, or they would deflesh the person and take the skull and the long bones, and sometimes a whole person as well, and place those into megalithic chambers. That's a Neolithic burial. Very common. Uh, but near Stonehenge, things get weird. <laughs> and they really do. It's an energetic landscape. It's got ley lines flowing through it. It's got aquifers beneath it. It's a high-res place. And that's why English Heritage don't want you to touch the stones. Because you will get a download, as I have and many other people before. In fact, in my presentation, I'm going to tell you lie after lie after lie that the Ministry of Works has done to stone. Stonehenge, they've hidden stones, they've defaced them, which is a crime. And one stone was stolen by the royal family. But back to the Neolithic era, for example, in this unusual mound, there were people with long skulls, the short people with long skulls, in a circle, tied together, and in the center of that circle of beings was this very unusual skull that was described. It stopped the excavators in their tracks, and they literally looked at it and said, what is this? And so they wrote a report, and that report was reevaluated in the 1930s. And it said that there was a skull, and it had um, eyes on top of its head, very similar, like it was said, to Lloyd Pye's uh, skull. But more than that, it was the whole skeleton that they were describing. And they were saying the rib cages were well, they were very strange, very close together, and it had a tail. And it must have been revered because everybody else was holding it around. I gave that report to Ted, Dr. Ted Robinson, who worked with Lloyd Pye on The Star Child. And I said, you tell me what's going on. You worked with Lloyd Pye. He said it's an identical type of uh, being. So I think there's lots more going on in this Stonehenge landscape than we really know about. And it's people that, you know, do the investigations that find there's different civilizations. And I think the different phases of Stonehenge, because an archaeologist will say, oh, uh, it took 1,000 years to build Stonehenge and it had feature after feature and it was altered and it was altered. I think it was built originally by the Neolithic people and altered by different civilizations that came through. And even in the kind of prehistoric times, uh, Stonehenge has been evolving. But one thing I really do think about, about the long-skulled people, because I had the pleasure of going to Cambridge University to really study and 
view the skull. And anybody knows me that knows I'm a bit of a druid and I can be a bit of a witch as well. And so what I did, I kind of vibed the curator to leave the room. And I was kind of vibing and vibing and vibing. And then at Cambridge, you think maybe have sophisticated communication systems. No, it was an old fashioned pager that went off. And she said, you don't mind if I just leave the room for a little while, do you, Maria? I said, no, of course not. And then I had the, it was a real pleasure to feel the skull. And it was almost like the chakra system of the upper part was still alive and still beating and saying kind of like energy was coming out. And so there seemed to be like two crown chakras as well. So I think these star beings, these elongated skulls sensed the environment differently. Okay, so... Um, Andy Collins knows Rodney Hale well, don't you? Rodney came with me to Averyhenge. It's wonderful. Hugh lives near Stonehenge. I live near to Averyhenge. We're megaliths, Hugh. <laughs> and, uh, and so we did some testing on some stones because I always uh, said, as did many other dowsers, that standing stones can equate to the chakra system. There's five above and there's two below if the stone is in the ground. So the two were flowing through the earth and five are above. And when these were measured, again, by Rodney and uh, David Webb much later, said that they resonated to 18 hertz. Well, we hear at 20 hertz. I think the elongated skull people and the star child heard the stones and they listened to the landscape. We're visual people, so we kind of visualize things. So for me, it was a totally different experience of the landscape and of, you know, the monuments. If you imagine that in the Neolithic, some amazing monuments were built by these people, and maybe under direction of the star child, maybe under the direction of a ruling elite that I will show you in my presentation uh, tomorrow. So, so much wrapped up uh, into, into the land. And one of their monuments stood in front of Stonehenge. And it was called the Cursus Monument, recorded by William Stukeley, and who was an antiquarian of the 18th century. He described it as being a huge, maybe six to ten feet tall building. Imagine that chalk block, like almost like kind of blocks of chalk that was smoothed off. And it went on for nearly two miles in front of Stonehenge in a rectangular shape. Sadly, that got ploughed out. And that would have had very acoustic sounds, some people would uh, speculate on. And even the chambers that the Neolithic people went into, it's been recorded that they too have acoustic properties. So for me, the adventures haven't ended with my discoveries at Stonehenge. They've only just begun. Mary Fitzgerald. Barry, do you think the mythology from our ancient past still presents itself in current times? Yes, um, I do. And, and I think there is a lot to be learned from our ancient mythology and folklore. And briefly, I was speaking to some of our panel members um, today in, in regards to this. There is, a, there is a, a real value in a lot of the message, the messages and stories that they left behind um, and how that brings us forward into how we examine things today. And as I said, it has great value 
But outside of that, we also need to look at the proof. What proof did they leave behind? We need something more substantial. We, it's, it's not so much, I think we, um, um, I, I think um, possibly it's a case of more substance. That's what the people demand today, especially in today's climate. We need direction. And our ancestors have lived thousands of years and they have left this direction within the stone. And there is value within the stone. And in fact, even from 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 a, a really weird circumstance of the high strangeness, everything else, it brings us back to look at the stone. And this goes right across the board from from ufology into folklore and um, into into various other fringe research fields. We see our attention being brought back to the stone. There's a value in the stone. Harmonics and archaeo archaeology is now developing. We're now understanding these areas of value and how they resonate and how we resonate with those areas. But not only is that an audible um, circumstance, we also have the light that penetrates those areas, that that the, the, those ranges of, of lights that enter the chambers signify the time in which these places were activated. And so this all correlates together. Then we have to also consider some of the substances that our ancestors were also taking. And what were those substances? Now we can see and understand now with the work that I've been doing back in Ireland that uh, a lot of the Acadian um, um, wall art that was depicted, we now understand what that fruit is. How that fruit is broke, uh, how that fruit is broken down and how that resonates with us when we consume it. And what is it that they were actually communicating with? This is something we have to understand. We lived, our ancestors lived in a society where there wasn't a lot of us. Yet they took the time to build these amazing structures. That's, that's taking away from actually the ability to live. So there was a great importance behind these places. And this is something we have to reconnect to. We have to reconnect to our spirituality. Because these places were built under spirituality. We have to process and understand that, which is something we have really veered off from in the present sense. So now we're really starting to understand what they were doing, how they were doing it. But more to the point, what were they communicating with? And there lies a very dangerous topic, and which I'll be speaking about tomorrow. But what is it that we're communicating with? What is behind the veil? So our ancestors have left us a lot within within the, the stone structures. It's up to us to decipher it, to understand it, and get something more substantial that gives us presently a grounding to understand what's coming ahead. And that's very, very important. Billy Carson. Billy, throughout Egypt there are seemingly examples of rock being cut and bored out by ancient machine tools. Do you believe such ancient civilizations possess such equipment? And if so, what do you think happened to all of this equipment? Well, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. Um, it's one of those questions that makes you want to scratch your head because... I've been to Egypt, I've been to a lot of ancient sites around the world, and what's interesting is you can begin to see the same type of tool markings on some of these megalithic structures. 
And so now you have to come to the assumption that if you see it more than once, it's circumstantial evidence. And so when you have enough circumstantial evidence, you have a case, right? And so you begin to build this case on the fact that there were these tools, advanced tools of some type that were able to cut and bore these incredible stones and quartz uh, granite and everything else. And it, it makes you want to ask the question, well, if you have these tools, then what in the world happened to them? Well, when you look at some of these structures and you, you are, if you take a compass to some of these ancient stones, you find out that when you put the compass close to the stones, especially in, in areas of Egypt, that sometimes the compass moves away. It, it spins away from where it is, what, what direction you're standing in. And that's another curious thing is somehow the magnetic field around the atom has been altered or changed as it flipped. What kind of tool can be used to cut stone and at the same time alter the atomic structure of the actual stone as well? Great, great questions. And so I personally believe that in ancient times, these uh, advanced beings, they call them the Naturu in ancient Egypt. The Naturu in Mesopotamia, they call them the Anunnaki, the Sumerians did. Uh, and they're, they're named in the Enumi Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation. Uh, and all around the world, you find these cultures have these different names for these beings. But in my opinion, some beings came here, some advanced beings. I don't think that they were gods as in the creator of universes. I do believe that people deified them because they were mystified by their capabilities. They became cargo cults worldwide around, centered around these advanced beings. But they had advanced tools and technology. When I went to Cambodia, I think it was 2018, uh, one of the locals that had been there for generations, his family had been there for generations, told me that the, camp, the Angkor Wat was poured into place. Ooh. They poured it into place. And when you look at some of the stone there around that structure, it does look like liquefied concrete. Pretty interesting. And so there obviously was a very, very advanced culture, in my opinion, in the ancient past, not taking anything away from our ancient ancestors because they themselves had been taught and developed uh, different levels of advanced technology. But just my personal experience and from dealing like, especially with the ancient Egyptian text and the language of light uh, and learning from that culture directly, dealing and talking with local guides, homegrown guides, generations of pyramid families, you know, it looks to me as if uh, these Naturu who came down at the time of Zeptepi, they were claimed to have turned mud into a kingdom. These are sky gods that came to Earth. Now, sometimes people scoff and say, well, you know, why couldn't human beings just do all this stuff? I'm not saying that human beings didn't do all this stuff. I'm saying some type of a person or a hominid, because I don't really think that a lot of these uh, advanced beings look like little green men with antenna. I think we look a lot like them and they look a lot like us, potentially probably even our cousins, because I kind of believe now after visiting Australia and talking to the aboriginal elders that Earth is most likely some type of abandoned seed colony and we were seeded here. And so these beings had the capability of turning mud into a kingdom. And wherever you look around the world, we see the same exact story of this, these advanced beings showing up after a catastrophe and helping re-kickstart civilizations. Now, where, has, where have the tools gone? Where have this, this technology gone? If you look at uh, the way that the, the stones were, were put together and the types of materials in the stones, the types of stones that were put up to create these megalithic structures, you find that they were created to stand the test of time. Now, if you take a piece of human or man-made technology 
and put it next to a pyramid and then go away and come back 10,000 years later, that, that, that technology that you put down next to the pyramid is going to be dust. <laughs> right? So we know that for a fact because we experienced rust and everything else here just in a few years. If you have a car near the ocean, uh, or you have a car that drives in a lot of, uh, salt when it's in the winter months, like in New York City or whatever, the salt eats away and rusts out your vehicle. So we know that, uh, technology disintegrates over time. And so I think some of it has disintegrated over time, as well as the fact that I believe after the last pyramid war, uh, that a lot of the technology was stripped out of a lot of the pyramids and temples and taken away. A lot of the capstones of the majority of the pyramids, I believe that they were taking off and removed purposefully to prevent people from accessing the energy source or the power source or the technology, whatever that finishing piece of the structure accomplished, I believe that that was taken away as well by these people. Uh, and if the purpose of that was to prevent us from being able to uh, expedite our progress with technological advancement. Uh, and so I believe that a lot of it was taken away. And some of it, to be honest, it just disintegrated over time, a massive amount of time. And that's my personal experience and personal understanding of it. Hugh Newman. Hugh, it has been written that some giant skeletons had extra digits and even two rows of teeth. Do you believe these to be real? And if so, do you think these variations in such skeletons are a normal process of evolution? Ooh, okay. So th- this is this is a weird one. This is something we've come across, especially really mainly in North America, as you can see up here. We, we've got all these accounts. In fact, we've got an entire chapter devoted to this in our book, Giants on Record, where there are reports of what are called double rows of teeth. And sometimes there were triple rows of teeth in some of the jaws, as we found in Amelia Island in Florida, reported in the mid-1800s. But we have about 30, maybe possibly 50 accounts, as some of them are quite unusual descriptions, of this phenomenon in giant skeletons dug up from the mounds and from the deserts and even from megalithic sites in North America. Now, sometimes you just have a few extra teeth, like supernumerary teeth, or it could be fully-fledged hybridontia, which is like extra teeth, abnormal growth in the mouth. But these, some of these accounts are very strange because they have clear two rows of teeth in each jaw. Now, this is something that has been noted, is you do get genetic throwbacks in modern times, but usually these appear in very, very tall people. And I've had, since the book came out, since we did our TV show about this, but lots of people contacted us. One of the things we did in the TV show was um, interview Dr. Shara Bailey of um, a New York University who's a dental anthropologist and we showed her all these accounts any photos we had and she was like absolutely stunned and what she realized and the only real explanation how this could keep happening is there's some genetic line which could be connected with a very early ancestor of human perhaps a Denisovans we don't know yet and these are genetic throwbacks occurring and they are kind of Bred, especially in North America, between elite groups to maintain these giant genes. And it got to a point where extra rows of teeth would be created, almost like just to fill up the gap in the giant jaws that are occurring in North America. But we have other accounts. We have, we have stories from um, Ireland, 
we have like the mythological stories of some of the giant kings had double rows of teeth and extra digits on each hand. Um, we have stories of a, we actually have accounts one from Dorset where the, and one from uh, the Outer Hebrides where they've in Britain where they've actually found extra teeth in the jaws of certain individuals and we feature that in our latest book. But we also have the digits, the extra fingers and toes. Now this is an anomaly. My my co-author, a good friend, Jim Vieira, is the real expert on, and there's a, he's done a whole lecture about this. And he's found this in more giant accounts than normal sized human accounts. So again, we seem to be finding this kind of genetic throwback to very very early ancient times. And again, we have mythological figures from the Bible, like I think it's the fourth descendant of Goliath was said to have had six fingers and six toes. Some accounts from the Bible have extra rows of teeth in the mouth of the giant of Gath. And there's other stories from all over the world where we find this anomaly. You also find petroglyphs with like six fingers carved or painted at certain places like in North America and other areas. And so the explanation is quite a hard one to decipher, but it appears, as I said, like there's kind of genetic throwbacks linked with these giant genes. And one of these giant genes that we looked into was something called the AIP gene, which is from the Ulster region of the northern part of Ireland. And this is a gene that's at least been recorded and traced back at least 2,500 years. And this is the area where Charles Byrne, the Irish giant, and many other kind of relatively modern giants over the last few hundred years have come from. And it still happens today. People are being born with this AIP gene in them. Now, this isn't quite the same as acromegaly or gigantism. And you do, you're quite well proportioned with this AIP gene, unlike with these other uh, pituitary conditions. And some people have even suggested this gene may have originated from North America, where we find the giants. Originally, I think like America is actually the giant kind of capital of the planet. And so the fact that you've got this occurring in uh, this part of Ireland, and you have all these legends of these giant races, like the Tua di Danan, the Fomorians, and others, who again, some of them were said to have extra fingers and extra teeth. I think there's a connection there, and I think the myths do record elements of what was actually going on in prehistoric times. So there's more research really needs to be done about this double rows of teeth kind of phenomena because we've presented this, we've shown it to academics, and as usual, when you're looking at unusual things like this, there's very little interest from that side of the kind of um, area of research. So hopefully more will come out on that. But for now, if you know anyone with double rows of teeth or extra fingers, please get in touch. <laughs> Andrew Collins. Andrew, over the last 10 years, there have been numerous theories about the function of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. What do you believe its function was? Okay, another good question. Um, well, I, I'm a conventionalist, to be honest. Um, and for me, the Great Pyramid probably was constructed around 2600 BC. I know there's lots of theories suggesting that, it, that it's up much older. Um, and I also believe that it probably is a form of tomb. But I think the word tomb really underplays what we're dealing with here. Because if you think of a tomb, you think of going into a churchyard and seeing a tomb or outside, you know, maybe a box or a grave 
or going inside a, a church and seeing, you know, some kind of monument or whatever. Well, we're not dealing about that type of term. We're not dealing with that sort of term. We're talking about what might be described as an ascension machine. I think that is a much better way of looking at the Great Pyramid. And who would it have been an ascension machine for? Well, the builder, the traditional builder of the Great Pyramid was Khufu. And he was one of the kings of the fourth dynasty. Uh, and of course, um, you know, his uh, immediate descendants were responsible for the construction of the other two main perfect pyramids, as they're called, on the Giza Plateau, uh, which is the second pyramid, you know, the, the, the Pyramid of Khafre, uh, and of course the third pyramid, the Pyramid of Menkara. Well, you know, you've got these three incredible monuments, and I think that the King's Chamber in particular obviously was meant to be the, the, the heart of this disascension machine. And I think that there is a very strong possibility that the idea was to almost project the soul of the pharaoh into some kind of sky world, um, virtually through the actual apex of the actual um, pyramid itself towards some kind of celestial or cosmic destination. Now, obviously, you'll be aware of uh, my good friend uh, Robert Bouval's ideas to do with um, Orion. Um, but there are other alternatives as well relating to the alignments of the three great pyramids at Giza. And those that have read my books like Cygnus Key and the Cygnus Mystery will know that Cygnus is also a very, very important constellation associated with ancient Egypt. And what, it, and what Cygnus represented, well, I mean, Cygnus in Europe, Euro and Eurasian tradition is essentially a big bird, basically. Um, usually a swan, but it could also be a vulture, uh, and it's, you know, a sky figure. It's up there in the sky and it's identified by different cultures. But in ancient Egypt, Cygnus, the stars of Cygnus, of which the brightest star is, is the, the star Deneb, are actually on the Milky Way, where the Milky Way breaks into two. And the Milky Way in ancient Egypt was seen as the body of a goddess known as Nuit. You often see this picture of this naked lady arched over the earth, and that's Nuit. And she was personified in the night sky as the Milky Way. Well, if you see that as a literal impression of this goddess, the position where um, the Milky Way splits in two, where the Cygnus stars are located, was her womb. And obviously beneath that, obviously her legs were where the Milky Way splits in two. And this area of the sky, this womb, if you like, of the goddess, was seen as an entry and exit to the sky world in amongst many different ancient cultures around the world. I mean, for instance, in Native American tradition, you have what's known as the path of souls death journey. Uh, and this was a journey that was adopted by at least 30 to 40 different tribes, all with variations of exactly the same journey into the afterlife. And essentially what would happen is that at death, either the deceased or the shaman 
going into an altered state would make a leap of faith towards the horizon at a particular time where they would enter the Milky Way via one of the key stars in the constellation of Orion. That's why Orion is so important in ancient Egypt because it was like the first bridge, the first doorway into the next world. And the soul would then travel along the Milky Way until it reached the Cygnus constellation and then it would be either judged um, to be righteous and it would go into the afterlife or if not it would be reincarnated or the soul would actually be sent into oblivion and this was what's known as the path of souls journey and the actual Milky Way was that path of souls it was a road or river into the afterlife exactly the same thing was going on in ancient Egypt. I mean, Graham Hancock talks all about this in his last book, America Before, but it's something that, you know, those that have read my books like Cygnus Mystery, Cygnus Key, will be very, very much familiar with that. And the pyramids, the three pyramids at Giza, are perfectly aligned uh, to the three main stars of Cygnus, the so-called winged stars of Cygnus, the bird in its form as... Um, well, in, in Egypt, it's probably uh, something like a hawk or a falcon, basically. And so those pyramids were, were specifically placed, specifically aligned, so that the soul could travel first to Orion and then journey on into the afterlife via the womb of the goddess Nuit. And it's from within this that the soul was reborn into the afterlife, into the second life. Um, you know, the, the, the field of reeds beyond the physical world. So that's it, really. So in, in summary, the Great Pyramid and its neighbours, of course, was the end product of a lot of uh, evolution that had gone on in Egypt for many thousands of years. But ultimately, it's an ascension machine to project that soul into the afterlife. Okay. Maria Wheatley. Maria, locations of Salisbury Plain in the UK are utilised by the British military forces and are considered off-limits to the general public. Maria, do you think that there is a reason for such military bases in specific locations near to the Stonehenge? Of course. Stonehenge is a power centre, the biggest power centre in the British Isles. And close to it, if you imagine, Stonehenge is right on the periphery of the Salisbury Plain. The Salisbury Plain itself, and it is a military establishment, is 25 miles roughly by 25 miles. You can't go on to some parts of the Salisbury Plain, you're denied access. So it's likened to Area 51. But more than that, the Salisbury Plain is an area that has up to 2,500 prehistoric monuments therein. That's a lot of monuments. And some of the most interesting, intriguing and fascinating burials are in that zone. So it is very difficult. You have to navigate the plane. You have to work out if there's a red flag flying, and if it is, you can't enter it. They use live ammunition, and it goes right over the heads, uh, over some of the roads, as it were, as you're, you're traveling along it. But as well, 
Stonehenge is often associated with time distortions. I do past life regression and I had some very interesting cases come my way from the military who said that they parked up their car along a trackway very close to Stonehenge and they'd had uh, a ciggy, a couple of cigarettes and a couple of tins of beer and, you know, they're having a good time. And then... What they saw was these lights come out of what they thought was the ground near some barrows. And these lights came towards the car and almost danced around it quite hypnotically. But they're from the military. And they realized they could triangulate and and do this. And so they thought, oh, it was, you know, just one of those things. And they'd heard of things like earth lights, balls and that could have answered what had occurred with these lights. So they go back to Lark Hill, and I know there's a chap here today from uh, from Lark Hill that I've spoken to. So they go back, and then they are under military arrest because they've been absent without leave for a few days. So, and that was uh, in got out of a past life. Uh, regression, but they felt that it had happened anyway. So I think Stonehenge can distort time. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. what the military is interested in as well. And again, if we look beyond the lay, if we look beyond Earth currents for one moment, and what is beneath Stonehenge that would interest people like the military? What's beneath Stonehenge are two massive aquifers. One is an aquifer of groundwater that you get at places like the Giza Pyramid, for example. So you've got a large body of water. But as an esoteric water diviner, I know that there's another type of water that I've often spoke about in lectures. And that's the water born within Gaia. And it's independent of rainfall and it produces a spiral pattern. Now, water has memory, okay? So I think how some people can work with that is it is the Akashic record of place. It has information stored in it. And also, uh, a little known fact about Stonehenge is the first stone to be raised wasn't. It was buried. So the first stone went down into the ground and then a stone was placed upon it. And so I think the military are interested in Stonehenge because it has a lot of different types of energy. It's also an Akashic record. And the energies, when you start to look at how they flow into and out of a monument, is very interesting. Because at Stonehenge, they emerge. Now, when you have Earth energies emerging around by the altar stone, incidentally, you have a lot of power. And it also is associated with vortex energy. And the military, you only have to look to, you know, uh, country after country after country. And there's always a little formula. Vortex, ancient sites, military. So it's not just Stonehenge. It's all over the world. Then when you start to look at how the military bases surround Stonehenge is very interesting as well, because you have, it must be about sort of seven miles away, you have our nuclear biological testing center, Porton Down. Now that's right on a straight lay going out from the 
uh, the Stonehenge environs. So it seems that all of their military establishments are linked in with lay energy as well, that I believe that they are utilizing in, in ways that uh, they, they do try to keep quiet about it. And I think they just, like I said earlier, they distort time as well. As many as people on this panel know, and I've been to Stonehenge year after year, and I've been to Stonehenge decade after decade. And in 2010, I was really excited because I actually was with Hugh uh, in 2010 at, at Stonehenge you know, with Michael Tellinger. And I remember I was I was bigging it up, as, as we do. And uh, I was saying to the, the people that were the participants, it's coming into its power. And a decade and a decade before, it like ripples through time and it can get high res and it was coming into its moment of power. And that means if you go by the greater trilithon, for example, you feel its energy field as you're approaching that stone. And that can change your consciousness, your spirituality, even I believe your, your past, past karma. So it's coming into its power. And I thought, wow. What a day this is going to be. And so we got, if you remember here, we were told to sort of line up like school children and told you can't touch the stones. And from that moment forth, when Stonehenge could have been a place, what, when you go to these ancient sites, it's the place that can change you. Now imagine. Avery Henge, the world's largest stone circle, can have up to 2,000 people comfortably therein. And you all got the same intent, the same spirituality. You're on the power lines and it can bang, switch people on like that. 2,000 people at any one time. And that's what I think these ancient sites were being used in a good way of increasing people's spirituality. And I think the military kind of dampens that down, uh, greatly so. And as well, with vortex energy patterns, each type of earth energy releases a pattern. It's like a signature in a way, and we can decode those signatures. And so if you go to uh, other ancient sites, they will have particular signatures. Stonehenge is like a chapter and like I said, it has energies emerging like the cobra coming up out of the land. They're alpha lines. And then it has uh, earth currents that terminate their omega lines. And so it has everything. And if we learn to work with these different energies in different ways, we can co-create on an alpha. We can release on an omega type of energy. So I think, you know, in its most Positive guys. Stonehenge was the teacher of the people. Stonehenge was the wisdom keeper of the past. And that's what the military know. And that's why they have up to 16 military sites surrounding Stonehenge. I hope that answers the question. Barry Fitzgerald. Barry, on occasion... Do you think folklore and mythology can help bridge the gap between our ancestors? That is, until science catches up. Yes, I, I do think it's, it's useful. And like the, the last question that, that came through, I do think that, that there is some um, direction that we can gain from that. Um, 
But there's also there are also um, places that we have to physically endure. I, I find from from that originate within the mythology and the folklore. And like many on the panel who have gone to these locations, there there is great learning to be delivered by doing so. And there have been some locations that have scared the absolute bejesus out of me um, when when it comes to it. And one of those locations was back in my own home island. And that place we, we labeled the Island of the Dead, this was a place of oracle. Unlike the, 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 the oracle of Delphi, this was a place that you went to to gain the knowledge from beyond the veil. Now, we heard many stories of these places and, and investigating a lot of these locations around the world. You go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah I've, I've heard this all before. And you go and you have your experience and you leave somewhat deflated. This did not deflate. This scared the hell out of me. Um, we completely underestimated what we were about to step into. And it was when dusk started to settle that the signature of this island changed. And we became aware that we're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, because leading up to that particular point, we had church officials that were telling us, I don't know why you're going to that island. There's nothing to find. Yet we had the ancient maps that were showing that, no, there, there are structures here. Oh, no, those maps are wrong. You'll find nothing. Well, we found what was on those maps when we went to that island. But the problem was that the only place that we could stay, now, we may have forgot to mention that to the church that we were going to stay over, but the only place that we could stay were these pits. Now, this island was not lived on, hadn't been lived on for for hundreds, hundreds of years. Yet these pits, there was very little growth within them. It was like the vegetation refused to grow within these pits. Now, we were walking through vegetation that was over our heads at times, yet we entered into these areas where the pits were, and these were the, they were the only places that we could come. And it was during that experience of staying in those pits that I was introduced to this aspect of the Neolithic spirituality that I certainly was not prepared for. But that's the experience that I had there. And I can tell you, there are many people that will head to the Amazon and they'll drink ayahuasca and they'll do everything else. That is not enjoyable to me. I do not like the idea of of of, of purging myself from both ends. That is not what I'm into. I didn't even have a cup of tea when I was on this island and I had the experience of my life. And it was so powerful. It's a very, very powerful experience. In fact, the church tried to harness the power of that island. They couldn't do it. They destroyed it. And they duplicated the island on another island on the same lake. Now, you can still go there today on the swipe of a credit card for $80. You can stay on that island and experience the same structures that were built on the original island. But yet you can see the original island. You won't have the same experiences from that place. That powerhouse is still there in a remote part of Ireland. Um, and it was a place even in the medieval period. They knew that you went there for your experience to learn from what was coming through that veil. Very, very dramatic place. Very, um, the, the power of that place I can't even express. I don't have the language to express just the, what it exudes. But it was very, very dramatic. And, and I think that, that our ancestral history 
we, it can give us knowledge. And I have to say that being initially, after my first experience, I says, I'm done with that. I'm not going back near that place. And I left it for, I must admit, maybe seven, eight years before I decided, okay, I'm going to go back. But I'm going back in daylight. And, and I went back, and uh, it's a very, very dangerous lake in itself. So you can't take a motorboat, you have to paddle. Um, and uh, we went back to the island, and this was the first place that we were able to see where, where this tunnel complex was, this cave complex, what was left of it. It was the first time ever that we were using technological equipment that we could record that distortion in time you spoke about. We got to see it for the first time, that this location has an effect on time. We were looking at this bridgeway between both places, and scientifically, we could see it. And that was exceptionally important. Still scared the hell out of me, but... It was, it was a place I, I'm aware of and I trust now that the, the power of that place is so immense and it lifted me and changed my paradigm of what I thought our world was and what our ancestors were in communication with. So yes, there is a lot to be learned from our ancestors and our science is catching up. Billy Carson, Billy, you once wrote a hypothesis based on your research that planet Earth is in fact part of a binary star system. In more recent times, your hypothesis has been confirmed by science. Billy, how did you come to this conclusion? Wow, you guys have some great questions. <laughs> Why are you doing some research? Um, so yeah, I had to hypothesize that uh, we live in a binary solar system, that our sun is not just a single sun orbiting around the galactic equator, but it actually are, we have in our solar system two suns. And how I came to this, to this hypothesis, uh, right around 2010, I, be, I kind of really got deep into astronomy and I became an amateur astronomer. And I started buying really high-tech telescopes. And I started looking at the precession of the equinoxes and tracking it just to see how the ancients might have tracked it or how the minds that I've tracked it, or how even now in modern day science, how do we track this? And through my measurements in a very short period of time, I realized if I projected that time period out going forward, and the precession is the movement of the constellations across the sky, I discovered that precession was speeding up. And I'm saying, why would the precession of the equinoxes speed up? How can that possibly be? What would cause the stars to move, the constellations to move across the sky faster? So I said, the only thing that that could be is that we must be moving faster, right? And so our sun, uh, which we orbit, must be moving faster through the uh, galaxy and uh, in some way creating this speed up of the precession. But I said, that doesn't really make sense. If our arm, if our galactic arm is moving faster, how could that still create this movement? Because we're all moving at the same time and there would be uh, more what we, call, what we call red light. And so I said, let me look into this deeper. And I started finding that in ancient texts, there have been talks of talks of binary stars and that the Dogon tribe had even talked about a trinary star system that they had uh, knowledge of with the series A, B, and C. And I said, I wonder if that means maybe we have a binary or trinary star system. So I started digging deeper into that, and I found some really incredible information that was uh, actually from the NASA Space Agency, the European Space Agency, they had realized that there was possibly a brown dwarf or a red dwarf star 
orbiting our sun. I'm going to be talking about this in my, uh, my lecture tomorrow, so please don't miss it. But I'm going to bring forth a lot of the evidence right there to you, where astronomers now have finally discovered that there is a star with a solar system uh, orbiting our sun right now today. And so all the history books are being rewritten, all the astrophysical books are being rewritten for college uh, and, and studies because we now know that there is another star system. And so as that star orbits our sun, they create a breakaway speed. So it speeds up and it slows down. As it needs more breakaway speed, it speeds up and then it slows down. Now, this is over thousands of years. And so what happens is over about a 4,200-year period, uh, there is another mini solar system with a brown dwarf star, which has got the same mass as our sun, but much, much smaller, a much more dimmer sun that you can't see with the naked eye. Only with if you go into the, uh, the telescope system like uh, WorldWideTelescope.org, you can put the telescope into two-mass infrared mode. And then you can, uh, right now, if you go into the constellation of Leo, right by the lower right corner of the constellation of Leo and you zoom in, you'd be able to see this brown dwarf there. It's uh, coming out of, out of Leo and it's orbiting our sun. It's way far beyond the orbit of Pluto, but still inside the inner Oort cloud area. So it's a part of our solar system. It's not, uh, you know, a captured star from somewhere else. It's in the same vicinity, uh, way out there, but still orbiting our sun. And it's what's interesting is uh, this, this uh, brown dwarf, is giving off gravitational waves, something I had predicted uh, over 10 years ago and was laughed at and scoffed and told I was crazy and a pseudoscientist, which then uh, NASA confirmed about four years ago and made it official that gravitational waves actually do exist. They discovered that. And so what's creating this global warming, the importance of this, so what is creating the global warming is actually the gravitational waves from this binary star system that we're living in. Uh, and when the stars become closer together, the waves from the brown dwarf interacting with our sun create a ripple effect of energy through our solar system. And that energy uh, goes in and it warms up the cores of the suns and the moons. I'm sorry, the planets and the moons in our solar system, creating warming of those objects, of those spatial bodies. So our entire solar system is experiencing global warming at the same exact time because of this binary uh, star system that we have. And that's more evidence that it actually exists. As the energy from the gravitational waves goes into a planet or a moon, it actually creates friction. That friction warms the planet or the moon from the inside out. Scientists now say that NASA, that Saturn's um, core is actually melting. And if, if we were on Saturn, if that was our planet, we'd already be gone. The ice caps on Mars are melting right now. There's billions of tons of liquid water on Mars. Global warming on Earth is not caused by uh, exhaust fumes and spray can hair spray cans and and cows passing gas. Okay, I'm sorry, it's just not. Now, do we have an appreciable effect on global warming? Yes, we do. But if you look at the ice core data, the ice core samples, and you can take that back, it's like reading a book. You can go back every so many thousands of years you see a warming pattern. And actually, we're not even in the warmest warming pattern that we've ever been in. We're not even close to the warmest warming pattern. So there's even cycles of warming, and global warming at its highest level will create a ice age, and uh, we're not there yet. So if that's, uh, if that's something you've been worrying about, don't worry about it anymore. It's just, it's just normal, okay? But it's because it's a result of this binary star system. So my investigation into uh, astronomy and precession 
led me to a hypothesis that was then proved to be accurate. That's how I found out about it. Hugh Newman. Hugh, your research has taken you around the world investigating the evidence for ancient giants that once lived amongst us. Hugh, have you ever discovered the remains of giant weapons that may have also been used by the giants? Yes, yes. There's uh, there's quite a few accounts we've come across where we've uh, encountered this, actually. There's uh, numerous ones from North America. I mean, North America is the homeland of the giants, in my opinion. That's, that's the proper giant territory. And we found huge axe heads that are like, some of them are like, what, 36 pounds, 40 pounds. So they're huge. Some are like this big. And they clearly were connected to like wood, rope, and everything else. And they've been used. You know, what they were used for, whether they were hunting other humans. We know there's a lot of cannibalism going on with these giants. Or whether they were chopping down wood or whatever. But they're absolutely ridiculous some of these and i'm a member of this ancient artifacts uh, preservation society um in america and they they there's people still finding them today there's still people still finding artifacts in north america and the ones that have been recorded in history over the last 200 250 years have often been found along with the giant skeletons some of them even reported by the smithsonian institution in the annual reports in the late 1800s who then denied these skeletons and artifacts ever existed and disappeared the whole lot of them and so but people are still finding them i've seen some myself um in our book giants on record and a couple of videos i've produced we actually had two amazing examples and just to handle these things that have been dug out of mounds where accounts of giant skeletons were said to have been dug up from one of them was near cahokia in illinois not cahokia itself but another mound site near there another one was in ohio and i think there was another one we saw actually from uh the mississippi area as well so that's north america and now there are other artifacts that have been found in arizona and Utah, like giant armor being worn by some of the skeletons found in some caves there. We have um, in Britain, we have a large amount of stories um, regarding giant swords, armor, axes as well found within the burials. One of these was from Cumbria, a place called St. Bees, where a 13 and a half foot skeleton was found in a field just when someone was kind of... Uh, you know, they're basically working with the wheat in their field. When they dug down, they kept hitting, you know, bits of rock, which are part of this stone-lined grave. And when they dug it up, there was a 13-and-a-half-foot skeleton with giant armor. This actually got passed around to all the locals, so there might still be pieces of it lying around, but we feature the full account in our book. So, like, again, if anyone hears about any giant pieces of armor near St. Bees in Cumbria, do get in touch. Um, we have other stories um in different parts of the world from south africa we've we've got lots of accounts of giant axe heads and spearheads and things like this but there, there are really quite a lot you know and there was one example i believe i think i, I don't know if this is a hoax or not but down in ecuador there was father crespi's treasure and they found it wasn't wasn't really a weapon as such but it was like a crown which is like this big you know, made of this certain type of metal, gold, I believe, with copper, with all these sort of other pieces within it. And this hasn't been explained, but again, that's disappeared as well, like much of Father Crespi's treasure has. And so, yeah, we've got a lot of accounts. We, we do a whole chapter in our Giants on Record about North America called uh, Curious Artifacts, 
where we go into lots and lots of different things that are being found. I'm not going to list them all now, um, but there are, you know, too many to ignore. And they're not just ceremonial, like some people suggest. There's a lot of suggestions that anything that's giant-sized must be ceremonial. There's even Paleolithic hand axes, which are three times the size as they should be found down in Kent in England. And things like this. And these go back hundreds of thousands of years. So what was going on there? Were the giants that long ago? So to answer the question, yes, there are lots and lots of artifacts found all over the world. Unfortunately, many have been lost. Many have been deliberately disappeared. But some are still on display in various places. Andrew Collins. Andrew, you have spent numerous years investigating and researching the Betli Tepe, an ancient site situated in Turkey. Andrew... In your opinion, who were the founders of Gebekli Tepe and why did you come to this conclusion? Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, uh, Gebekli Tepe, I mean, most of you will probably have heard about it. This is incredible ancient site in southeast Turkey, 11,500 years old. Um, it confirms, really, it's almost like the smoking gun of a lost civilization that would have existed uh, in part, at least, during the last Ice Age. And almost certainly, it's the point of founding the cradle of our modern civilization. But from my own point of view, uh, the story really goes back to about 1995. And I was writing a book back then called From the Ashes of Angels. And what this did was to look at all of the myths and legends of these beings, you know, I, I would say human beings, flesh and blood beings that existed in some former age in the, the Near East, everywhere from Anatolia, which is modern day Turkey, to, you know, the other countries, the Near East, Middle East, um, and went under various names. Um, the, the Watchers, the Nephilim, obviously of Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, the Anunnaki of Sumerian Babylonian tradition, and in um, Iranian tradition, they were known as the Immortals. And there was lots of accounts of them. They were said to be an elite. Many often they were said to be extremely tall. Um, and it was said that they gave the rudiments of civilization to mortal kind, and that it was from this that civilization arose. And all of these stories seem to be focused around, you know, a particular area. And I, I began to pinpoint it to southeastern or eastern Anatolia, uh, the area of uh, Shanlurfa today, but also the mountains just to the east. And I, I realized that we were dealing with some kind of uh, elite involving shamanism and a particular type of shamanism. Shamanism involved with uh, birds and particular vultures. I mean, again and again, it talked about these individuals wearing cloaks of feathers. It's even there in the Book of Enoch, which talks all about the watchers and the Nephilim. It talks about these human angels wearing these cloaks of feathers. I mean, the idea that angels had wings is actually quite a, a late development really probably came in no earlier than about the 4th or 5th century in the AD. So I was writing about this and yeah, putting this book together, um, working basically in the autumn and winter of 1995. And what I didn't realise is that exactly the same time I was writing this, 
in southeast Turkey, the first spades were going into the ground at Gebekli Tepe. And this had been rediscovered by a very enlightened um, German archaeologist by the name of Professor Klaus Schmidt, who sadly is no longer with us. And he realised, he went up to this, the top of this mountaintop, and there's this huge occupational mound, or tepe, as they call it. And he saw all of these pieces of carved stone. Now, earlier people had seen these carved stone, but they, but they were so advanced that they assumed that they belonged to a, a culture that only existed probably about a thousand years ago, you know, equivalent to the same time as the Gothic cathedrals in Europe. And yet, no, all of these carvings were at least 11,000 years old. And Professor Klaus Schmidt realised that, started the excavations at Gebekli Tepe and uncovered these incredible stone enclosures. You can see, you know, some of them on the, the screen at the moment. And they are massive T-shaped pillars with carvings of animals and other creatures of the natural world. Many of them have anthropomorphic features. In other words, they're, they're human-like with hands reaching round the, the front narrow edges of the stones. The actual T-shaped tops of them are the abstract heads of these human individuals. Now, whether they were the first gods whether they were celestial beings or great ancestors, is still a, a matter of, of debate. And very gradually, from 1995 through to you know, the, the current decade, they've been uncovering all of these different enclosures. And obviously I wrote a book called Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, which came out in 2014, which was uh, a, a, a massive bestseller, not only you know, uh, around the world, but in, in, in Turkey itself, you know, the people in Turkey, you know, love this and it's very important to them. But on top of this is that recently the sister site of Gebekli Tepe has been discovered about 60 miles to the east at a place called Karahan Tepe. And this is even more sophisticated than Gebekli Tepe. And it's a site that I've been to uh, on my own and with, with you here. Uh, and JJ, uh, who's partner, on a number of occasions. But that was before these incredible excavations that have taken place over the last couple of years. And this shows that at the end of the last ice age, that this civilization, which I call the civilization of the ancients, is even more sophisticated. And this knowledge must have been carried over from well, as I say, before the last ice age, certainly during the last ice age, and that these were incredibly advanced peoples, so that everything that I wrote about in From the Ashes of Angels to do with the Watchers, the Nephilim, the Anunnaki, you know, these are the names of these founders of civilization, and that these stories were passed on from generation to generation until they were eventually written down, whether it be in Samaria, yeah, Babylon, whether it be within, you know, the, the, the Jewish Hebrew tradition in things like the Book of Enoch, the Book of Giants, and of course in the Hebrew Bible itself. So they preserve the memory of these founders of civilization. And that's what Gebekli Tepe is. It is the point of foundation of our own civilization with massive implications for everything that came after, including Egyptian civilization and the construction of the Great Pyramids. And there's a book over there that called The Cygnus Key that I wrote, which has most of all of what I've just said in. So check that out if you can. Cheers.
Maria Wheatley. Maria, Tishhead Barrow on Salisbury Plain, UK, is a location that has captured your interest. What is it that makes this particular barrow different than others, and what have been discovered there? Yes, well, I spoke earlier that there's different types of long barrows that were Neolithic. And going back sort of like five and a half thousand years, uh, if, if you will. And some of us here probably have been into inside of a megalithic long barrow like Wayland Smithy in Oxfordshire or West Kennet Long Barrow close to Avebury. And on the Salisbury Plain that I was talking about earlier, there wasn't really megalithic chambers. They made them surrounded by wood. And so they built a really long mound and Imagine it's all kind of panelled around the outside. Well, I got interested in Tillshead Long Barrow, or it's called Old Ditch Barrow, uh, because I decided to use Dowson in a different way. Because most people use information Dowson to ask a question and they get an answer, which is Great. But I thought, because I come from like more of a Druid Wiccan background, what if I asked the land itself, what do you want me to find and what would happen? So I decided to put a big map up uh, in my in my living room and I started divining the uh, ancient uh, environs of Stonehenge. And it's literally a method that is so, so easy to do. You go along one side of the map and the other and you get a big X. X marks a spot, <laughs> literally. And, uh, and it kept going back to Tillshead Long Barrow. And at this time, the elongated scars hadn't been uh, discovered as such. And so I decided on a cold February morning that something was calling to me across time. And so I got out and it, it was literally a freezing cold day. And then, uh, that was about five years ago in 2015, you could go on to this magnificent mound and it has a spirit of place. And that spirit of place kind of touches your soul in some way. And it really does. And so I led on the mound and then I just thought I've got to find out who you are uh, and who the, the what sort of people went into this uh, long mound because it was the biggest in northwest Europe. No other mound is that big. And I thought, bingo. I've hit hundreds and hundreds of people that were buried there in the ancient past because long barrows were communal barrows where you could get up to 30, sometimes 100 people went into particular uh, barrows. But it turned out that it wasn't. It contained just one person. And that person was a woman. It was the elongated skull that I said I went to Cambridge with. But this is what's happened since then. I went back there in the time when we should have gone out and I decided to go there because, again, I have these like it's like a calling across time. And this time the calling came in a dream and this elongated skulled woman came to me and she said, find my child. And as a mother, that touched my heart. So I decided to go back to, to this massive barrow. Honestly, it snakes across the Salisbury Plain. And what the military had done, because people that had read my book and listened to, you know, Gaia TV interviews and things like that, 
their beauty touched the landscape because they were making little clouties, ribbons, tying them on the tree and saying prayers to this Neolithic woman that was very short. She was four foot eight, quite like Queen Nefertiti. And she, her skull was very, very extended because I've discovered two races of elongated skulled people. I call one the hyper-elongated and the other the lesser elongated. So people were coming here, paying homage, remembering the spirituality of the Salisbury Plain and for one moment in time forgetting that it was Area 51 if you could have the right to go on. So this is what the military did in their response. They started to put no entry signs up across her barrow. And it was crazy, really, because the fence is only four foot. Up, so I just hop over the fence. I mean, that was a bit ridiculous. So we've got to put a fence up. Come on. Put a fence up, man. And uh, then uh, what they did, and I went back and I thought, well, that's a joke, you know. And then I went back there two months later, yeah, to see again what was going on, because you get this calling across time. You, you know what I mean, the sensitive people here, and you can't not listen to it. And this time, what the military did, they'd covered it in wire mesh. So it was like a Faraday cage placed over this barrow. And so I tried to tug and tug at it like you, like you do, but it was really nailed in. So uh, I was with, with a friend and I said, let's get some wire clippers and start clipping some off. Because imagine that a long barrow, and this one's huge, is it, like I said, it's the biggest in Northwest Europe. Sometimes when an energy current flows along the axis line of it, some earth currents are deemed special, recognized by our ancient ancestors because they pulse out energy in seven, eights or nines. And we can, you know, literally rebalance our chakra systems upon these. Glastonbury Abbey has an access line like that and some of the other long barrows in the area, especially Wayland's Smithy. So I was trying to hack away at these, um, you know, making the holes so the energy could symbolically come back again. And then, unbeknownst to me, you know, there was a warden there. So this time, you know, they're really saying, could you get off the mound, get off the mound uh, and go down. So I had to get off the mound and literally uh, go down. But this is the thing. If they think that we're going to be empowered with love, beauty, harmony and balance, bang, they try to stop it. And that's where people like you and I can come in. We can free up these monuments and just say no. And we can free up these places and say, yes, we can go there to feel the energies, to be with the spirit of the place and to be with the ancestors old. Barry Fitzgerald. Barry, throughout our history, there are details that suggest that we are encountering today on a supernatural level the same as what our ancestors encountered. Barry, do you also see these connections? Uh, yes, we we do, um, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the uh, more ancient stories, which are available online um, um, through our uh, the Irish government, um, we can see this correlation. And especially if we consider within ufology, for instance, the idea of a cylinder, and um, which we would identify in the modern sense, um, we have accounts written in in our older texts that speak of people being on, on lake shores watching this and they label it the ghost train. They see this carriage 
coming across the sky and lowering itself into water um, and this huge amount of heat that's presented by this this particular um, ghost carriage um, raises up uh, steam into the air and then it raises and then dips into an ancient passage chamber um, and is gone, is never seen again. Now, they also described the windows along the side. Now, that today is clearly identifiable within ufology as being a cylinder. So we do see these connections and, and the stories are, are tenfold. We, we, we have, Ireland is, is one of those countries around the world that has taken that heritage and put it online, scanned the details and put it online for everyone to look at from a global perspective. Um, this, it's not, the secrets are not being held. They're being given. Um, and it's up to us then that we can go online um, and, and look at those and, and, and grab those connections for ourselves. So there's nothing being hidden away from our perspective. Um, but yes, we do see this this correlation between what our ancestors were dealing with before and what they're dealing with now. And that, that goes as well. Um, that meekly slips into the this avenue, the strange avenue of animal mutilation. We also see this within our ancient past and, and migrates itself right through today. The problem is that what we're trying to identify with continually changed its mask over the period of time and sometimes several times in a generation. Um, so for us, it was about stepping behind that particular veil to see, well, what actually is this? And a lot of the indicators now are suggesting that we're looking at the same source. And, and you know, there is, there is a lot to be seen within those particular files, but I'll, I'll end there because I could really go on and on and on. Billy Carson. Billy, over the last five years, there has been information come forward from scientists stating that a genetically coded number was created within the human genome, this being the number 37. Do you believe this could be evidence of tampering or intelligent design by extraterrestrials? Uh, yeah, so there's been a lot of evidence coming forward and really it started beyond five years ago. Uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton talked about epigenetics over 20 years ago and uh, he was also scrutinized, laughed at by his own peers in his own field and almost ostracized and decided to walk away for a little while. But now all of this has now come full circle. And again, he has now been vindicated. Um, and when you look into the ancient Sumerian tablets, particularly into the Enuma Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation and the Atrahasis epic, you discover something very interesting. There was a time period where there was a hominid on this planet. And at, at some point during that time period, according to these tablets, there was going to be a modification to this hominid. And how do we come to this? Well, there was this EGG working class being. They were also known as Anunnaki, but they were like the working class Anunnaki, according to the tablets. And they were working and doing labor for a very long time and very frustrated that, uh, with, the, with the workload. Uh, they were actually, according to the tablets, working on Mars. Uh, and I guess they were mining for resources and working on civilizations. They were also on Earth digging canals and everything else. Uh, and they decided they were going to have a coup against the kings of Earth, Anki and Lil Anu. And they actually encircled their campus where they were located. And there was this long talk that goes back and forth in this text uh, where they're, you know, negotiating whether they're going to fight or not fight. And at some point, they come to the agreement that they can take the existing hominid on this planet and add their essence to it. That is, for me, 
the point in which genetic modification took place. Mm-hmm. There's also some information with in regards to the Tower of Babel incident, where uh, Yahweh, who's in the in the Bible, really is Enlil, and he comes back and he sees human beings building this tower yeah. uh, into heaven. And at that point, uh, there's a decision made that wow, human beings can do whatever they want to do if they really live long enough and focus and and join and unite. Uh, they can achieve anything. So I tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to destroy this tower, and then I'm going to confuse their languages, spread them all out around the world, and then I think I'll shorten their lifespan too. And that's what you see in the Bible where lifespans were shortened to 120 years. My my seed shall not abide in man. His years shall be 120. And so we see that there's this clear-cut uh, path that was taken Hundreds, of, maybe close to 200,000 years ago, in my personal opinion. It could be much sooner, but my opinion is, is taking it back to close to 200,000 years in which a genetic modification happened to the existing hominid. Our own cousins, our relatives that were already here, yeah. not an alien from outer space, but our own cousins were then genetically modified where they took out the telomere. Uh, they took out the chromosome number two, and they actually fused chromosome number two together, and they put telomere caps on each end. Uh, and this shortened our lifespan. And also when now modern scientists have gone back to Genesis and looked at this, they say, wait a minute, this is an artificial mutation. Uh, we can't really figure out how it happened. It would take millions of years through natural evolution for this to happen. But we're estimating around 200,000 years, around the same time that I believe it happened uh, based on Sumerian tablets. So it's pretty interesting that we see that uh, mankind uh, around this time period was genetically modified. Chromosome number two was taken out and fused together. Telomere caps put on each end of those chromosomes. Now, what does that mean? A telomere cap contains genetic buffer material. And as your cells and DNA replicate, which happens every single day, it, sh- it shares some of that information so that nothing gets lost in translation so that your cells and your body can probably duplicate so you can t- continue to live. However... With caps on the telomeres, what they've done is as the buffer material runs out in the telomeres, they get smaller and smaller and smaller until they run out of buffer material. Once that happens, your body begins the death process. And so by this method, they've shortened your lifespan. Now, scientists at Harvard have now taken mice and have experimented with the same technique on mice and were able to then stop the degradation of the telomeres on the mice, allowing them to live up to three times their normal lifespan. And so this is now science that exists today, genetic modifications that exist today that we're capable of doing right now. And I believe personally that they just copied what they learned from the ancient past or heard about in the ancient past and started experimenting how can they duplicate it. So now today we can genetically modify a, a, a human being. I think that we can actually stop this, the uh, shrinking of telomeres in humans, just like the Anunnaki could turn on or turn that off because some people were granted longer lifespans. Well, how did they do that? another modification. And so that's why it's important for, to have conferences like this where we actually come together and learn about this information and that we learn how to, uh, you know, remember our ancient past, learn about what's happening around us right now so that we can all unite and take back control of our planet. Because if we don't, they're going to start selling us time. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this brings our ancient alien panels to an end. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Please put your hands together for our esteemed guests.
tornado, Rama. That was great. Yeah. What do you say? Um, this is why the great goddess has returned to deal with her wayward children who messed with the strands of DNA. Yeah, I mean, naughty kids. Yeah. Okay. How about we do the Greg Braden one? Oh, no, how long is that? It's only 32 minutes, huh? Yeah. No, let's do one that's a little bit longer. Well, this is 54 minutes. Oh, Ancient Guardians of the Sky? Yeah. All right. I'll read this a little bit and you get okay. started. Which historic texts support the ancient aliens hypothesis? Legendary ufologist and author of Chariots of the Gods, Eric Von Danigan, shares his decades of research in this lecture. At the Awakening Conference in Blackpool, UK, citing the Bible, the Mahabharata, and the Book of Enoch, Von Danigan explores the mounting evidence of extraterrestrial involvement with ancient human civilizations and our genetic evolution. Okay, this is 54 minutes. Let's get started. Right away. Otherwise... I don't know if we'll make it. Okay. <laughs> we'll try. Come. Everybody. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for the honor. In the meantime, I'm uh, 87 years old, but the gods love me. So I'm very happy to be here. And I have my problems with some part of our scientific community. Our astronomers are brilliant personalities, but uh, they are still looking for life in the universe they are seeking for molecules and, and microscopic forms of life in meteorites. Wonderful, why not? But why do they not accept that extraterrestrials were here thousands of years ago? They are lucky. Yes, Obviously, they don't have the courage to say, yes, we were visited. We have enough indications, enough proof, clearly, to make the statement they were here, there is no doubt. In my speech today, I will come to a few personalities of the past who were in contact with extraterrestrials. Tomorrow, I have another speech where I show you some uh, clear proof of extraterrestrials on this planet Earth, different old cultures, etc. So, life out there. Why do we have problems to accept life? Life, ex uh, intelligent life out there. Because we are too arrogant, we are too stubborn. We think we are the greatest. 
Only humans, we are the greatest, we are the top of evolution, or the, the crown of creation. We think there is nothing out there. We have a psychological problem with extraterrestrials. But of course they were here. And we can prove it. In the deep past, some of our humans were taken away by extraterrestrials. These extraterrestrials took, come down, took some of the young boys, bring them up in their spaceship. One of these young boys was young Abraham, the one from the Bible. And Abraham clearly says, they took me up and I saw the round bull of the earth. This is a statement made before the great flood, Stone Age, the round face of the earth. They bring him up there, he sees the round earth, and they bring him to a place and he writes, the place where we were, once he he turned up and then he turned down. Sometimes I saw the earth up and then I saw the earth down. Then I saw the stars down and the earth up. Now, when you are in a spaceship, which removes around its own axle, you get exactly that impression that sometimes the earth is up there and sometimes the stars are down because this is turning always around its own axis. But no one in Stone Age time could have known this. Extraterrestrials visited a definitive our planet. I don't know, was it 5,000, 6,000 or 10,000 years ago or even longer, I have no idea. But we know that they were here because our ancestors have, have written about it. And our ancestors at that time were not science fiction writers. The ones who could write wrote the truth, the correct, the honest thing. And they did not tell us fairy tales what happened. And they clearly say we were, we were visited by these guardians of the sky or watchmen of the sky. And in many of the old texts, they never use the word God. They always say the highest, not God. God is something different. In old Indian, there we have gigantic books called the Mahabharata. And one of these gigantic books is the fifth book, the Mausala Purva. And there, a young man with the name of Arjuna was taken up by the extraterrestrials. They bring him up there and he learns the language of the extraterrestrials. He's more than 10 years in the spaceship. And then he clearly says that they teach him the language. They teach him in astronomy. And he saw the earth beneath of him. He was in gigantic rooms. And even, he says, these extraterrestrials, he says the guardians of the sky, they had fights among each other. Some of these ETs wanted to make slaves out of us humans. Other was against it. Some of these ETs wanted to, to steal our raw material of the planet Earth. Others were against it. Some of it want to infect us, to, to make us some kind of slave. And others were against. So they had a fight among each other. And Arjuna describes that one day he realized there were three cities in the sky. He doesn't use the word spaceship because he has no, has no word spaceship. Three cities in the skies, and there was a war in heaven, and one of the cities exploded completely. And from the, for the humans of the earth, it looks as if thousands and thousands of little stars, stones, are filling down. Now, this impression is written in the Mahabharata in the fifth book. A war in heaven, this must all be fantasy. 
imagination. There can't be a war in heaven. When I was a boy, they teach me, Eric, when you live correctly and one day you will die and you come to heaven. And uh, if you have not uh, made big sins, you will probably go to paradise. Paradise is the place of absolute happiness. In paradise, you are united with God. In paradise, there are the angels. So it's a place of, of peace. But don't you remember, even in our Christian Jewish tradition, there was a fight, a war in paradise. Do you remember the story of Archangel Lucifer? One day he came to the throne to the Almighty God and said, we don't serve you anymore. And the Almighty God asked for the help of the Archangel Michael and, and, and put the, Lucifer out of the, his disciples out of the place. So the word heaven is wrong. We must change the word heaven into space. A war in heaven makes absolutely no sense. A war in space makes sense, of course. Then we have to change simply a few words of antiquity in the antique text into modern terms, and the situation changes completely. I just made the example change heaven into space. What are angels? Peaceful, wonderful beings with wings. They have halos around their heads. And they, they are the, the, the servers of God. But some of these angels were terrible killers. Read the Bible, the second book of the Kings. One angel killed 185,000 Sumerians, Assyrians, just like this. No fight, no war, no weapons, just from heaven. He killed 185,000 Assyrians. Hey, what kind of angels are this? And funny enough, the same story we find in hieroglyphics or from the Egyptian part in, on, a, on a temple wall in Edfu. There it says, again, they killed the, the, the guardians of the sky. They killed humans just like this. So heaven is probably space, definitely. And angels are not angels. Angels are extraterrestrials. Cherubims. All these words of antiquity, which we adore because they have a religious meaning. We simply have to change the words into our today's knowledge, and we change it completely. As I said, a war in heaven is practically impossible, but a war in space is possible. By the way, even in, in the Bible and, and in the apocryphal text, different humans were taken into the heavens. And we'll teach there. You remember Elijah, one of the prophets, he was the first who left our planet. Enoch, the prophet of Enoch, I speak about him later. He went into heaven. Heaven, they teached him and he returned from heaven to earth. One of the absolute most sensational reports we have in antiquity is the book of Enoch. Who is that Enoch? Enoch in the Bible is mentioned very shortly, just with two, two phrases. They said Enoch was the first one who disappeared with his body from this planet Earth. And Enoch was the seventh patriarch, or the seventh after Adam. And that's all what you read in the Bible, no more. But 230 years ago in the past, a British explorer came to Ethiopia. He was looking for God. He was seeking for the truth, God. 
and he ended in a convent in Ethiopia. And this British explorer stood there in the convent for 30 years in Ethiopia. He learned the Coptic language, he learned the Coptic writing. And in the library of this convent, he found a book with the title, The Book of Enoch. Now he knew the name Enoch from the Bible, but now a book of Enoch. He could read it. And to his astonishment, the book of Enoch was written, handed down in the first person, in the I form. I did, I saw, I watched, I moved, etc. Now Enoch tells an incredible story what happened to him. He says, I was 12 years old and uh, the whole village wanted to go to sleep. Then they saw a light in the firmament and then they saw this light is coming down and then they hear the terrible noise and all the villagers run away. They were afraid. Just Enoch, he says, I stand there, bravely, strong. Then the noise disappeared and two strange beings came close to Enoch and Enoch clearly say, They were not humans. They did not breed like humans. If they did not breed like humans, so what are they? If not humans, must be non-humans. And Enoch now is afraid also, and he fell down on his ground, feet on his knees, with respect to the two strangers. One of the strangers speaks to Enoch and says, don't be afraid, human. Don't be afraid. We won't hurt you. But the first critic, the first question from the critic comes, why do extraterrestrials speak the language of Enoch? How is this possible? Thousands of years ago, I repeat myself, they came down. They behaved themselves, I like ethnologists would do. They observed a few of our groups. They learned the language. And the language was never a problem. Simply remember our ethnologists today. They go to the upper Amazon River or somewhere to the upper Nile. And they came together with Stone Age culture, which still exists today up there. It takes a few months. And then the ethnologists of today speak the language of the Natives. The language was never a problem. So, of course, to me, it's not a surprise if extraterrestrial ethnologists observe a group and the one speaks to Enoch and says, don't be afraid, human. We won't hurt you. But Enoch still is afraid. And then one of the strangers says to, uh, says to Enoch, human, you smell terribly. You stink. <laughs> so, and then they ask Enoch to put all his clothes off completely. He stands there, the 12 year old boy, naked. And then they put him into the water. He said, they say, you go and wash your body completely, including your hair, everything. And when he comes out of the water, one of the strangers gives him a clothes. They put this clothes on. And Enoch doesn't know how he must do that. But the stranger explains him. He put the clothes on. And then he looks and says, now I looked exactly like them. He has the same clothes on that they had. Because in his stinking human clothes, he could not go to a mother spaceship or to a space shuttle, etc. So he has the clothes on of the extraterrestrials. Then they bring him up. They bring him up slowly over the earth. In the book of Enoch, again, the word God is not used. I know English and German translations where they always say God. In the original, God is never used. They always speak about the highest or a stranger, but not God. The translations are, are wrong. Why are the translations wrong? Because our ancestors had no other ideas. They had no possibility 
They believed it must be God. And Enoch was taken into the heavens. He was not taken into the heaven. He was taken into the in, in the space. Up there, he sees gigantic buildings. He used the word buildings. He has no word for spaceship. They came close to it. Doors open and doors close automatically. Enoch passes different gardens with vegetables and fruits and, and colors which he had never seen on earth. And then he came into a big hall. In the center of hall was a throne. A throne is a chair. And on the throne was sitting the highest majesty. Now these three, two stranger and Enoch, came into close to the throne and the highest stands up from the throne, makes a few steps through to Enoch and welcomes him at the place. Now, all that I just told is really part of the book of Enoch. Now the book of Enoch is part of the apocryphic text. I don't know an English version, but in German it looks like this. So if you have to look for the book of Enoch in the original, don't look at one of these modern uh, modern books that they are not telling the real story. The original or Enoch from Ethiopia's old library is in here. Even in English, you have copies of the apocryphic text, and there you find the complete book of Enoch. And, of course, our ancestor who translated Enoch more than 200 years ago, they were brilliant translators, brilliant professors, brilliant uh, scientists. It was never a question of conspiracy or something like this, but they had no other way to translate. At their time, something like space travel did not exist. Something like flying, flying machines did not exist. Now they have an old text here. And somebody was taken up into the sky. So in their meaning, he must have gone into heavens. And the ones who came down must have been angels. So the translations were wrong. Not because of conspiracy. Simply because of the time. The spirit of time was not right. They could not translate it in another way. In the meantime, the spirit of time has changed and we are able to translate the book of Enoch in modern way. The teachers up there teach Enoch in their language. He finally speaks their language. They teach him in astronomy, in every detail. They teach him in engineering. In astronomy, one of the strangers says to young Enoch, human, look out there. Do you see this little light out there? You humans call it the moon, but the moon has no light by itself. The moon receives his light from the sun. And then he explains to Enoch why the moon sometimes is full and half and half empty, etc. This is scientific knowledge. This is not fantasy. You know, we are still speaking about Stone Age people. They could not know, the Stone Age people, that the moon receives his light from the sun. They were thinking the moon has its own light. No, this was scientific teaching. And this, only with this phrase, you can prove that it must have been extraterrestrials. Remember, look out there, human. Do you see this little light? You humans, you call it moon. But the moon has no light by itself. The moon receives his light from the sun. And then he explains him how the changing of the, the, the moon t- takes place. All this is in the book of Enoch. Enoch is the only one who gives even the names of the extraterrestrials. And these are the names. 
So I ask my skeptics and my critics, what do you want more? Enoch gives the names of their teachers. And then, of course, he realizes that these strangers, they want to have sex with humans. Whoa. But sex with humans, with the beautiful, is this not ridiculous? Extraterrestrials have sex? I'm sorry, the same story you find in the Bible. <laughs> Just read the Bible here. And he says, and when the sons of heaven saw that the daughters of men were puny, they took them to wife. It's not Eric von Däniken's imagination. It's not the coming out of my brain that they had sex with humans. It's part of the Bible and part of the book of Enoch and part of the Ethiopian holy book, the so-called Kebranekes, the oldest book of the Ethiopian kings. It's there. So they had sex with humans, even in the Bible. Mm. Now, Enoch learns the language, I say, I say, they teach him writing, they teach him every detail. And then, after all, he comes back to the planet Earth and he describes and he writes what his experience was with the ETs, with the guardians of the time. That's why we have the book of Enoch. And by the way, he himself, not me, he writes in the book of Enoch, in the one from Ethiopia, which we have, that he has written 200 books. Where are the 200 books of Enoch? We only have the one from Ethiopia. Where are the others? Before Enoch disappears with the guardians of the sky, he gives his 200 books to his son, Methuselah, with the order, and that's written in the book of Enoch. And now, my son Methuselah, I give you all these books written by your father's hand. Keep them carefully for generations of the far future. Where are the books of Enoch? Methuselah, this is written down again, he was the one who constructed with the knowledge of Enoch the Great Pyramid. And he said, we did this because in there we deposited all the books of my father Enoch, including some objects, some gifts of the guardians of the sky. So still today, the books of Enoch. 200 books are in the Great Pyramid, including object of the extraterrestrials. The spirit of time will change, and sooner or later they will accept that in the pyramid there are not only rooms, but in the pyramid there are objects and writings of the extraterrestrials. So, Enoch is complicated to find for you, except if you go to a library and look for the apophric text. Another figure which is easy to control for you, is very known to every one of us, is Ezekiel. Everyone can come, can read the Bible. Ezekiel. Ezekiel, by the way, by, by profession, he was a high priest at the Temple of Jerusalem. And at his time, uh, Jerusalem was taken over by the Babylonians. And all the high society of the, 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 the Israelites were captured by the Babylonians. Uh, Ezekiel was high priest. He belonged to the high society. So he was captured too. And he's captured and he's, uh, they work together, probably a few hundred uh, persons near a river with the name of Chebar. And that's when Ezekiel starts. He says, I was captured near the, the, the river of Chebar when the heavens were opened. 
Now again, like Enoch before, read Ezekiel, Ezekiel writes in the first person. Not somebody told me or I hear in the third person. I did. He stands there. And he clearly describes that they saw a light in the sky. And the light comes down and the light was greater. And then they hear the noise, a terrible noise. He compares the noise with the thundering of a waterfall, with the noise of an army, etc. must have been very terrible noise. And finally, this vehicle who comes down comes to a standstill. Now again, Ezekiel is high priest. He believes that this is God, the true almighty God. So first he fell on his ground, on his knees, and then he stands up to give honor to the almighty God. And then he realized that this is not God. It's something different. And Ezekiel describes in every detail the vehicle which stands behind him. Read it in the Bible. He describes the wings who made the terrible noise. He describes the legs. He clearly said the legs were out of, of metal. I took a few uh, pictures out of an old Bible, more than 200 years old, just five pictures to give you an imagination what our forefathers had in mind when they read, read Ezekiel. Then I will show you and tell you the modern explanation, the modern reconstruction of every, everything. So again, Ezekiel sees this vehicle. He says, upward, there was something like a littering, a glittering, and in the center of it was a throne. A throne is a seat. And on this throne was someone sitting, looking like a human in glittering clothes. Looking like a human? Are extraterrestrials like us? Do they look like we? Should extraterrestrials not be completely different to us? Growing up from another planet in different forms? Yes and no. We have no idea how it all started. We don't know how and why and where the first intelligent form of life started. We simply have the fact it is the case. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. It started somehow. The first intelligent form of life had an interest to spread out their own form of life. Why? Part of intelligence is curiosity. If you are not curious, you are not intelligent. It's automatically part of, of intelligence. So they wanted to find out, are we alone? Are there others? Are there other forms of life? So they want to spread out the universe. In the beginning, you don't use spaceships. That's much too complicated. They learn that the distances between the stars are much too high, measured in light years, so it makes no sense. In the beginning, they simply infect a part of their Milky Way with their own DNA. Just drop on your fingers. Now you have millions of cells gone away. In every cell, you have your DNA. And DNA is resistant against heat, against cold, against everything. So you send billions and billions of your own DNA out into the universe. You know exactly the biggest part of this DNA will come into the gravity of a sun, will burn, destroy. Another part of it will come to the gravity of planets, which are completely wrong for it. For example, in our solar system, we have a planet like Mercury. Mercury is too hot. If DNA comes into Mercury, it burns down. Or a planet like Jupiter is too big. Its gravity would would kill it immediately, and the atmospherical conditions are methane, ammoniac, etc. So it's nothing. So part of the DNA will land on planets which are similar than our planet Earth. Are there planets which are similar than, than ours? 
until about 10 years ago, humans believed and science, science believed that Earth is unique in the universe. We have the right distance to the sun, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, etc. And we have water. In the meantime, NASA has declared that only in our Milky Way, not in the whole universe, just in our Milky Way, there are at least four billions of Earth-like planets. So some of the DNA, which they spread out, would reach Earth-like planets. And now evolution starts. And evolution has, as I changed, said, unchangeable form. Evolution can bring out, as we have it on, on Earth, millions of forms of life. Beetles, crocodiles. But unchangeable forms means when you have become intelligent, you have to have hands. For example, you have two eyes. And the two eyes always look in front. Two eyes will not have, or one eye, it doesn't matter, or three. It does not help you in the back. You have to see what you catch. Or you have arms and fingers. It doesn't matter if you have one or five. They are always in front of you. You have to see what you catch. You have to run away, etc. Now, imagine, for example, crocodiles would be very intelligent. But with crocodile fingers, you cannot, you cannot uh, construct a computer. It, it, it helps not. Or imagine dolphins, the, the fishes are extremely intelligent, which they are. So they jump out of the water and they see the little lights up there at night and they come together and say, what are, what are these lights? We are intelligent. We are curious. We want to find it out. But to find it out, they must make spaceships. To make spaceships, they must, they must create space technology. They must create iron. To make, to create iron, you have to, you have to make fire. To make fire, you have to come out of the water. In the water, you cannot make fire. So it's unchangeable forms. It doesn't matter. If you have different animals, unchangeable forms. So finally they come out. For example, again, if dolphins would be very intelligent, in the water, you cannot invent a computer. In the water, you cannot invent something which functions with electricity. It's not possible. You have to come out of the water. So these unchangeable forms force you to be similar than the ones who started this whole game. I said extraterrestrials had sex with humans. Are extraterrestrials the same? Yes, of course. There are many extraterrestrials, forms of life out there. Some of them can be completely different to ours. Maybe, I don't know, on some planets there might be extraterrestrials with tentacles and crazy forms which we, maybe they can fly, whatever, or looking like flying elephants. But there are also extraterrestrials who are similar to us because they are the, the offsprings of the DNA which the, the original race spread out in the universe. And we are part of it. So the question I started all this was, extraterrestrial has sex with humans? Is this possible? Yeah. Do they have the same sexual apparatus as we? In that case, yes, because they are the offsprings of it. It makes no sense. Now, Ezekiel described this vehicle which stands before him, the wings, the wheels, every, uh, uh, every, every detail. And I, uh, in Chariots of the Gods, 55 years ago, I came up with the idea that Ezekiel was describing a spaceship. Mm -hmm. Of course, I was crushed down and left by, especially by the religious people. Mm -hmm. He said, this is not correct what this Mr. von Däniken does. And simply to explain from my family, we came out of the hotel business. So it was normal that after my high school, 
I went into the hotel business. There were some times I was away, but there were some times I was sitting at the reception desk. There were some times I was behind the bar. There was some time I was in the kitchen. And finally, when I wrote Chariots of the God, I was the managing director of a first-class hotel. Now Chariots of the God is on the market. And the critics come and say, come on, this man from the hotel business, he was even a waiter. How can he come up with such idea? He must be crazy. So I was crashed down completely. And there I made the suggestion that Ezekiel saw in reality a spaceship because he describes it in the first war, in, in the first uh, firm. I did, I saw, etc. Again, roughly 40 years ago, I had a secret speech at NASA in Huntsville, American Space Administration. Why secret? Some scientists from NASA asked me privately, Eric, would you be willing to have a speech among us, just a few group of scientists, but it should not go to the public. They were afraid, afraid to be ridiculed if they go to the public, but Eric von Däniken comes to the secret closed circle of NASA. I said, okay, that's why we did not went to public at that time. On that speech, I was also talking about Ezekiel. At the end of my speech, we had a wonderful dinner, and the chief of the construction section came to me, Mr. Joe Blumrich, and he said, Eric, that was wonderful. But uh, Ezekiel, this is imagination. This is visions. This is Bible. This has nothing to do with technology. And he said, Eric, uh, I, I have, I'm, I'm from the profession. My profession is to construct rockets. He was the one who constructed together with others the Saturn V, who finally went to, to, to the moon. So, I, unfortunately, I tried to disprove you. And he started to read the Bible. He confessed me that he never read the Bible before. And of course, not Ezekiel. So now he has the Bible in two different languages, English and German. And he was very shocked because Ezekiel wrote a lot of details which they had on a construction table for their planning to the moon and planning to later Mars. So Joe Blumrich reconstructed every detail according to the measurement of Ezekiel. And this was the outcome of it. That was Blumrich's NASA's reconstruction mm. of Ezekiel. Ezekiel mm. said that this whole thing on the top, okay, you can see with the laser here, on the top there was something like a, 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 a glittering thing and inside was a chair. And on the chair was someone sitting looking like a human in glittering clothes. Well, the command in his spacesuit, and of course he's sitting, he has to, has to, has to have a, a, a view around everything. He describes the body of the thing. He describes the wings, which made this terrible noise. And he even clearly says, when the wings stood still, they were hanging down. When the noise started, when the wings started again, the wings went up. He even says, when the splendorness of the highest, he calls this whole thing the splendorness of the highest. When the wings started, the noise started, and when it lifted up from the earth, the wings, the, the, the wheels lifted up too. And then he describes the wheels. You know, in Ezekiel's times, they had a wheel which go forward and backward. But the wheel which he sees here on Ezekiel's vehicle could go forward, backward, right, and left at the same time without making any, any steering movement. Mm -hmm. When you are sitting in your car and you want to take a car, so you steer, and the wheels make a steering movement, 
a GTA describe a wheel which goes forward, backward, right and left without any moving. So, and he's so astonished that he described this wheel four times. Now at NASA, they reconstructed the wheel of Ezekiel, and that was the outcome. They have the wheel, and they separate the wheel into different segments. Now each segment segment has an own axis, and each axis can t- turn in both directions. So it's clear, with that kind of wheel, you can go forward, you can go backward, if you want to go in your direction. Just the axis turns in your direction or away from you. And with that wheel, you can go without the curve, without making a curve in right angle into every place. I mean, if you land on a strange planet, you probably don't have just a, a, a plane with grass where you can move in a curve. Maybe you have to, to, to move in, in around right angle. This is what this wheel can, which Ezekiel describes. And the funny thing is, NASA has received the patent for that wheel. And that wheel today is used on Mars, on the Mars rover. But the whole idea comes out of the Bible, of the book of Ezekiel. I think that's not bad if there, if there, if you have here followers or ancestors of Ezekiel, you should ask for money in the meantime. Now Ezekiel describes every detail of the wheel and the wheel was reconstructed. And then at the second time, the second part of the book from chapter 44, he says, the splendorness of the Lord arrived a second time, the splendorness of the height, a second time. And this time, they took me up, they put me on a chair, and they brought me on a very, very high mountain. Read this in the Bible. He does not say, they brought me on a mountain. They brought me on a very, very high mountain in the Bible. He doesn't know where this mountain is, where they go. Scholars, biblical scholars said, well, Ezekiel had a vision. He had a dream of a Jerusalem in the future. This is nonsense. Ezekiel grew up in Jerusalem. If they would have brought him to Jerusalem, he would describe, yes, they brought me to Jerusalem. It's not Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there are no very, very high mountains. He was at some complete different place. He doesn't know where it is. And when they came to a landing, there there is a big building. Ezekiel sits on the splendor of the highest, and the, the, the captain asked the human Ezekiel, look down, human, what do you see? And Ezekiel says, there was something like a big village or a small city, and in the center of it was something like a temple. He does not say it was a temple, something like a temple. Ask yourself, what was the meaning of the word temple in antiquity? A place for the gods, a place for the extraterrestrials. Honor them, worship them, a place where they were living. So something like a temple. They came down and they make a landing inside the building which looks like a temple. They come to a standstill, Ezekiel goes out, and there comes a stranger in white glittering clothes and says to Ezekiel, Oh, oh humans, you humans, you have eyes to see, but you see nothing. You have ears to hear, but you hear nothing. And then the stranger gives Ezekiel a, a, a measuring device, whatever it is, some, something which you can measure. And the stranger says to Ezekiel, humans now measure this whole building. Ezekiel, in the meantime, has clearly understood that this is not God. It's not, it's something different. So he has courage. 
he asked the stranger, he asked back, why should I measure this building? Why? And the stranger in white clothes said, that's why we brought you up here. Now, Ezekiel starts to measure long, large, different steps, every detail. Read the Bible. Pages of pages of measuring in Ezekiel. In the whole Bible, you find this amount of measuring devices, uh, uh, dates only an Ezekiel. Now, I just said, NASA reconstructed the spaceship of Ezekiel in every detail. And then a German engineer came, his name is Hans Herbert Bayer, and he stumbled over these measurement dates at the book of Ezekiel. And he asked himself, is this reality or was this just a dream, a vision of Ezekiel? He started to take Ezekiel's measurement for real and reconstructed and designed exactly the building. One day I had a yellow envelope on my desk a long time ago, and there a letter from this, at that time, unknown Dr. Hans Herbert Bayer, and he said, Dear Mr. Van Deniken, I just took the real measurement of Ezekiel. I wanted to know if this building is real or just a fake. And here is the result. Incredible. I was completely shocked. So the reconstruction was there. I asked back immediately to this Mr. Hans Herbert Bayer, do you know the story of Mr. Joe Blumrick of NASA who reconstructed the, the spaceship of Ezekiel? Now the German engineer Hans Herbert Bayer, I have never heard the word of the, of the NASA engineer Joe Blumrick. I brought these two people together. And funny again, the spaceship of Ezekiel from NASA fit perfectly into the reconstruction of the German engineer Hans Herbert Bayer. So the so-called temple was nothing else than the base camp of the extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. It all fits perfectly. No coincidence. You see? Now what can we do? Again, our translations in the past were made from a biblical standpoint, from a religious and psychological standpoint. Our professors at that time who translated Ezekiel were real famous beings, but they could not translate it the other way. In the meantime, we know what happened. Ezekiel sees the light up there with his captured people. They hear the noise. Some vehicle came down. Ezekiel, by profession, is a priest. He thinks in the beginning that this must be God. So he felt himself on the knees. And then he realized this is not God. Now he stands up and he starts to describe every detail. The wings with their noise. The feet were metallic. Then, the, of course, the wheel. The wheel which could go in every direction. Forward, backward, right and left without a steering movement. All this is handed down in the Bible. And in the meantime, we can reconstruct it. He says, between the living creatures, there was something glittering, like like a fire. It was simply the cooler from the atomic reactor, because the energy comes from a, a little atomic reactor. We have these small atomic reactors too in our day. And he describes every detail. He's completely upside down, when he sees the wheel, the wheel who could, could go in every direction without the steering movement. Now, in the meantime, we know what it was. Everything is clear. 
So I always ask, I was called as again, you are looking for evidence of uh, extraterrestrials. We have evidence of extraterrestrials, not only in the Bible, and we can reconstruct it. We know how all of this took place in the meantime. But these scholars who are brilliant persons simply don't know it. The spirit of time has changed. Our scholars, I said it at the beginning of my speech, they are looking for traces of life in microscopic forms, molecules, bacteria, meteorites. But in reality, they were here. And it is handed down in different old books. With old books, I mean books which are thousands of years old. The book of Enoch, he clearly described what happened. They brought you up there. They teach him. Remember, the stranger said to Enoch, human, look out there. Do you see this little light out there? You humans call it the moon. But the moon has no light by itself. The moon receives its light from the sun. All this is enough. And we have many of these old books in ancient India and the Mahabharata. But they don't know it. Our scholars who are brilliant people, they simply don't know it. They don't have the information. The informations are here. And I know what I'm talking about. I have so far published 44 titles on this subject. I really know what's going on in old holy texts. And I know the archaeological mysteries. You will see some of them tomorrow. But our scientific community doesn't know it. It's not bad will. They are simply not interested. They say this can't be possible. This can't be. We don't have to read books like Eric von Däniken or others. They are all making mistakes or dreams or wishes. It's not dreams or wishes. The descriptions are absolutely clear. Now to come to this with, to an end, I want to show you something which is absolutely sensational. You all have heard about the plane of Natska in Peru. Everyone knows what Natska is. And I nerve myself practically every year, every second year, on world television, we see a so-called documentary on Natska. By scientists, when you hear the word documentary, you think, well, it's documentary, it's scientific knowledge. And what are they telling us? They're showing us the desert of Natska. The desert of Natska is about 500 kilometers south of Lima in Peru. And the desert of Natska is flat, more or less flat. There are a few hills in there. And it's very hot. And the stones on the desert are brown because from the heat for thousands of years, 10,000 from the sun. Now, if you simply put the stones away, you crash the stones away, you receive a brighter shining surrounding underground. Now, they show us on television, on their documentary, how easy it is to make these figures. On Natska, when you stand there as a tourist, you see first nothing. You just see the desert with the brown stones. Soon as you fly a little over Natska in a helicopter, then you see out of the desert figures, figures like fishes, monkeys, spiders, apes, humans, etc. Figures but of such overdimensional size that you can see them only from the air. Then you go higher and higher again. And then you see between the figures, gigantic lines. Some of the lines are small. The longest of it is 26 kilometers long. Stride ahead of a hills and mountain. And then you see something which looks like airstrips. Now what nerves me, every year scientific documentation, they show you the small lines. They show you how easy it is to, to construct these figures by scratching away the stones. 
which is all true, but they do not show you these pictures. These pictures which you see here is Natchka, original Natchka. You never see them on a television documentation. You never see them somewhere. This is Natchka. Of course, we have these small figures. We have these spiders, fishes, monkeys, labyrinth, etc. But the biggest mystery of Natchka is this. Hi, you don't see them in television. This is impressive. I said in Chariots of the Gods, some of these lines look like airstrips. I never said they are airstrips. I said they look like airstrips. I'm sorry, what do they look like? And they show us only the pictures of the fishes of the monkey. They don't show us these figures. This is original Natska. What has the scientific community so far come up with Natska? They said, and I read all the Natska books, it's all an astronomical calendar. The next say it's a cult for the water gods. No, it's a cult for the mountain gods. It's a cult for agriculture. Look at that picture. Beam it into your brain. This is Natska. But you never see it on scientific documentations on TV. You only see the figures. The next say, no, it's a cult for agriculture. I even read in a, in a super book, Natska was a pre-Inca sport place. Some sort of pre-Inca Olympia. Ora says, this is a copy of Fata Morgana. Now look at this picture a little closer. You see one, one of these lines looking like an airstrip. And under the line, you see a zigzag line. And this zigzag line definitely is under, under this, this, uh, so looking like an airstrip. Now come closer to it. They cut off the mountain artificially. You see, these are normal mountains. You see, from both sides, the mountain comes to the top of it. But this mountain was cut off artificially. Stone Age people. My friend George Tsukalos always says, with chicken bones or what? They scrapped up complete mountains, Stone Age people, to put this. And then you have the zigzag line under it. And they don't show it to the public. They just say they are only fishes, monkeys, birds, spiders. These kind of pictures are never shown. It's a shame. So they say there's a pre-Inca sport place, a sort of Olympia. It's copies of Fata Morganas. It's a start place for hot air balloon. These are acre plots. These are boundary makers. These are pro pro processing streets. Where are the pathways to the possession trades? Oh, you find nothing. They say this is an astronomical map. They say it's a cultural atlas. It's all coming from the scientific community. And I often have the idea they never were in Natska. They, they, they all, one copies what the other says. They never were there in original. To, to look at Natska. These pictures speak for, speak for themselves. And we close our eyes and says, this can't be true. Oh yes, all this is true. Now, we live in a time, time has to change. The scientific community, which I adore, and our astronomers who are brilliant people, they have simply to change their minds. Finally, they have to accept the changing of the spirit of time. Until today, they don't look at our indications. 
they don't look at this. They simply ignore it. But we, not only I, many of my brilliant colleagues have brought a lot, a lot, a lot of evidence and proofs that extraterrestrials were here some thousands of years ago. You cannot deny this anymore. Our scientific, I said it not a sure first time, look for primitive molecules, primitive bacteria in, 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 in meteorites. Wonderful. And they ignore that they were here already. Why? Why are they afraid to say that they, they were here? First, they simply don't know it. They say they ignore the fact they don't know about the facts. Real scientists never read, read a book of Eric von Däniken. Hey, come on, this is all rubbish. That's all garbage. We don't read it. They don't read book of some of my colleagues. They, they, they are not interested. And if they are interested, they are, come on, that's imagination. This is Bible. This is wishes. These are dreams. Now, our ancestors some thousands of years ago were not liars, not scientific, science fiction writers. They wrote the truth. The first persons who were able to write wrote what they knew at that time, what the high priest or the king told them to write, and not uh, stories from uh, from their imagination. We should take all this into in, in, into our consequences. We should learn from our past. Humanity is not unique in the world. Out there, there are many forms of life, and we can prove that at least one form of life was here on planet Earth. We can prove it by the by the scientific literature from the past, and we can prove it by the monu- uh, documents and monuments, which I will show you tomorrow. The spirit of time has changed, and we have to accept that we have to become humble and say, okay, we are not unique on this planet. Somebody is out there, and somebody was here already, and this somebody promised to return, and we should be prepared for this return. If we are not prepared, we will be shocked. Just imagine one day a spaceship arrives, and you see it on television. Whole humanity see it in their countries. What a shock, especially for religious communities, like, for example, the Muslim society. Mm-hmm. They are completely shocked. What? We are not alone. Extraterrestrials were here. Or the Jewish or the Christian community, we all have learned in the Bible that there is Moses, and Moses had contact with God. And I said, God descended from the holy mountain with smoke, fire, trembling, loud noise. Now it turns out it was not God. It was extraterrestrials. Again, I'm a deep believer in God. I am one of these figures who pray every day. Also, I have no idea what God is. I pray to the almighty grand spirit of the universe, which is God. But my God does never use a vehicle in which to move from point A to point B in a, in a vehicle. My God is omnipotent, is all over. So now we have these old texts and we should change our religious belief. When you accept something like our theory, you do not become an unbeliever. You still know that God does exist and you admire God, but you lose the religious knowledge. Moses has not seen the almighty God coming down on the mountain with smoke and fire and trembling and louder. He saw extraterrestrials. So this new truth will shock us, will shock the community, will shock mankind. That's why we should prepare them slowly, slowly, slowly. It will probably take one generation 
I guess within the next 10 years, the situation is clear and everyone knows we are not alone. They were here some thousands of years ago and we can prove them. We can definitely prove this. Ladies and gentlemen, as I said at the beginning, in the meantime, I'm 87 years old, but I have the impression the Almighty God uh, protect me. I feel very perfect. My brain is still working. I admire to speak to you. I am happy to be here to give a few of my words to you. And I hope with a little of my knowledge, you grow up to and you yourself become researchers and look for more knowledge in this field. Thank you for listening to me. Bye-bye. So, okay. Okay, we squeeze it in a little over time, but now it's time for a break. Wow, Rama, did you say you met Eric Blondin again? Yeah, at some ET conference, I can't remember back in the 80s. And so he's still here. He's still here. And he's kicking. He said, my brain is working fine. That's right. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right, it's time for a break, everyone. Thank you for hanging out with all of this with us together, and we'll see you in about mm, 10 minutes or so. Namaste for now. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Thank you, sir. All right, right on the button, 9 9 p.m. Eastern. Okay. We had a technical new moon around 3 p.m. or six hours ago. And it was in the first degree of Aquarius. Or maybe the second degree. It was pretty close there. All right. So Mercury, starting at the Capricorn side, will go Mercury at 9 Capricorn. And then the sun's at two degrees now. The moon is at five degrees. Venus is conjunct Saturn. Venus is at 24. Saturn's at 25, so that conjunction's going to last a little longer. Neptune probably hasn't moved very much since it only moves a, a minute and a half per day. So it only moved about 10, 10 minutes of arc in a whole week. Okay, then Jupiter up to five. Five Aries conjunct my Jupiter. Fun, fun, fun. I'm feeling pretty good for an old man. Okay, uh Chiron's at 13 Aries, the North Node's at 10 Taurus, <coughs> Uranus is at 15 Taurus, Mars is at 9 Gemini, <coughs> and, <coughs> and Uranus is the remaining retrograde planet. And it's gonna go it's gonna go direct here pretty soon, I think. So that's that's the layout. There's T 
two squares going on here. Mercury in Capricorn squared Jupiter. And Saturn Venus square Uranus. So that Saturn square Uranus, you know, that's been around for a long time. And it's still there. Uh, there is a trine today. Mars, Gemini. And Moon Aquarius, eight and five. So the sun's going to come up and 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 trine Jupiter this week. I think. Let me let me check here. Let me look at. I've got a way. I've got a way to click here and click on the twenty-eight and hit go and. Yeah. Uh, next week, Mars will be at 10, and the sun will be at 8. All right. So, that's where that's at. All right. Let's go check with Kaipacha. I'm sure he'll have something interesting to say. Oh, he does indeed. <laughs> Hola, it's Kaipacha with the weekly Pele report, and this is for January eighteenth. Astrology for the Soul, 2022. And we've got some big changes coming up here that I want to talk to you about today. Uh, today, actually, as I am speaking now, Mercury is going direct, stationing and going direct after three weeks retrograde. And then, if that's not enough, on Sunday, Uranus goes direct which is basically then all the planets will be going in forward motion. I've been talking about this. Fasten your seatbelts. Life in the fast lane. That's the name of our song for this <laughs> for this week, baby. <laughs> Not only that, okay, but Uranus rules Aquarius, and the sun is going into Aquarius. All right, that's on Friday. So we've got a Uranian, you know, uh, rebellious, revolutionary, unexpected, extreme conditions and situations. I'll talk more about that. The moon is, you know, the new moon is in Aquarius. So right now the moon's in Sag. And uh, by tomorrow, she's going to move into uh, Capricorn, come around to conjunct Pluto on Saturday before she then goes into Aquarius for the new moon at one degree, 33 minutes of Sag. Yeah. Wow. Exactly opposite within two minutes of Black Moon Lilith. Black Moon Lilith is at one degree, 35 minutes of Leo. So we have a new moon opposite our shadow element of Lilith. This is Playa Grande, man. Very nice to come out here in the morning and... uh you know, get a sense of the infinite ocean 
very passive and beautiful, the Caribbean. Anyway, so then by Monday, the moon is going to be going into Pisces, and she'll uh, she'll hit up Jupiter, Neptune. I'll talk more about that next week. But the other big thing that's happening, Venus conjunct Saturn. I mean, it's basically happening all week, okay? But it is exact on Sunday. Same day as Uranus goes direct. Sunday, big day happening there. Okay, you know, we got the new moon on Saturday. Then we got this stuff. I mean, what a packed week. I mean, it's very super powerful. Right now, as I am speaking to you, the sun is conjunct Pluto. And Pluto is in the final degrees of Capricorn, wrapping up what he began in 2008 when he entered Capricorn. And we had the great financial crisis. Uh, I'm going to be talking about crisis a little bit today. Let me look at the camera and talk about what it's all about. All right, everybody. (laughs) Uh, I'm a little discombobulated today. Uh, Long drive to get out here yesterday. Lots of stuff going on. By next week, I'm going to be in Dubai, and uh, uh, everything's coming together. I'm feeling it. I'm sure you're feeling it. All these planets going direct. The shit is hitting the fan, and it is crazy. And it's stressful. And it's not simple. Yeah? Sun conjunct Pluto. Identity metamorphosis and transformation. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we? Death resurrection happening with the Sun-Pluto conjunction just before, you know, he goes into Aquarius, which is having to do with liberation, but that liberation has to do with rebellion against the old established norms, conventions, institutions, It's revolution, and we know about revolution. Revolution is usually not, in the past, has not been peaceful, and it has not been gentle. It has been traumatic, and it has been sudden. And, uh, you know, when I see Venus also coming into a conjunction with Saturn in the sign of Aquarius, I mean, to me... I'm going to read you the Sabian symbols, but with these Sabian symbols as a background, this is a new moon that sets the tone for the next month, and it's got Venus conjunct Saturn in it, okay, and it's opposite black moon Lilith, and Uranus stationing direct, like, oh boy, you know, uh, it's the end of the old. I mean, the great reset. (laughs) I mean, this is like, guess what? Boom. You know, the old normal is gone. And what are we talking about? You know, Saturn is structure and form. It is what is solid. It represents third-dimensional ego consciousness that is within time and space. 
And, you know, it going through Aquarius and now it's direct, like I said last week, it's wrapping up, you know, where it's been over the last nine months. And finish, close, release, let go. And I'm going to head off into some new degrees. Changing signs going into Pisces next month, you know, well, in March. And it's just like boom, 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 boom. The dominoes are, you know, it's like boom, the dominoes are going to start falling here. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I think the intensity level is going to really increase. Hence the uh, mantra, yeah, for this week. I'll get to that in a little bit. But Venus, what is Venus? Love and money. <laughs> Love and money. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, and it's also peace and harmony. It's the feminine, Aphrodite, beauty, peace, balance, harmony, joy, get along, you know, and it's coming around to Saturn and we need to mature. We need to like grow up. We need to grow into a new form, a new way of achieving balance, peace and harmony. And it's particularly Aquarius's social consciousness, the collective consciousness. And, you know, with Mars now going direct, okay, you know, it is in aspect to this new moon. I, I'm, I'm just really kind of seeing, you know, that this restructuring, Uranus, Aquarius, this is the wide world web, right? This is cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, this is global affairs. Okay, this is all of the Western world, okay, you know, sending all kinds of technology and money and resources over to the Ukraine, okay, you know, and just like, you know, escalating a conflict over there. I would not be surprised if something explodes over there. Yeah, because here I want to read to you the degree at which Uranus is stationing to go direct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's there, it stations, it sits still. This is at the 15th degree of Taurus. Yeah. And that 15th degree, Uranus sits there for a couple of weeks. Head covered with a rackish silk hat, muffled against the cold. A man braves a storm. This is the image, okay, of Uranus, the planet of revolution, of rebellion, of individuation, where we break free from all the normal conventional ways and external authorities and, you know, rebel to individuate. So we need to, like, step back, step away because there may be some madness going on there. There's a storm coming. The courage needed to meet the crisis precipitated by social ambition, whether it's Zelensky or anybody else. We got a lot of people climbing for social ambition, totalitarian world domination. We've got people that are like really out for power. Yeah. Understand that we've got a lot, okay, of psychopaths 
at the helm of the spaceship planet Earth right now. <laughs> it's like, this is a good place to be. I feel very remote. <laughs> but still, I know what's going on out there in the collective consciousness, man. That's what astrology is all about, right? The man with the silk hat has seen some of his ambitious efforts bring him social success. But he learns that often, in quotes, nothing fails like success. The storm may be within him, or it may attack his social status. He is ready to face it daringly. This shows a willingness to accept crisis and to go through them, and therefore great character. The soil upon which a higher kind of consciousness may develop. I'm going to talk about crisis, right? But yeah, it does create soil for a higher consciousness. It implies a transition to a new level at which the individual who has learned from experience, if, if, if you learn from experience, it demonstrates a truly mature mind. What is revealed here is character in capital letters, character under adverse circumstances. This is, and it's, you know, it always bothers me that throughout the whole history of humanity, we seem to learn and evolve through violent wars and through takeovers and conquering and patriarchal domination, you know, and we spread this religion or we spread this currency or we spread this kind of government. I mean, and it's all been through force doesn't have to be that way, but yeah, crisis precipitates choices, decisions, and it toughens us up, and we rely, we have to strengthen our character, we have to strengthen our willpower, Sun conjunct Pluto in Capricorn, right now, today, baby. Mercury going direct today. It's time to make some decisions. These can be long-term decisions. With regard to what? Love and money. Yeah? And like it's like this says, this can be a storm within. Yeah? Okay, you know, I mean, each one of us may be facing. We've got big choices about where we want to be where we want to go with our lives, 7, 14, 21 years from now, Saturn says, grow up, yes or no? Should I stay or should I go? Bum, 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 bum. It's time. Now on top of that, you know, that underlying current of Uranus stationing here in Taurus, survival, money, currency, sexuality. Yes, Taurus is about stabilizing 
ourselves, stabilizing our income, stabilizing our families, stabilizing our relationships. Taurus wants stability. It's Vishnu. Maintain and sustain and build up what we've got. And hopefully you've got a garden. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, baby. (laughs) Because now we've got this new moon, one degree, 33 minutes of Aquarius. It's the second degree of Aquarius. The Sabian symbol is an unexpected thunderstorm. The keynote is the need to develop the inner security, which will enable us to meet unexpected crisis. Frickin' two Sabian symbols. This one for the new moon setting the tone for the whole next month ahead. With Uranus at the other Sabian symbol implying crisis. Yikes, baby! And in, oh well, and so this is, you know, really, it could be given a very positive meaning in an arid environment, but the emphasis on unexpected tends to accent the sudden and dangerous character of the event. Such a thunderstorm in a region of dry hills can cause a devastating flood. At any rate, it refers to an event for which one is not prepared, a menace to humanity's works. Not to be scary or anything. I like to be positive with these Pele reports, you know. (laughs) I'm a positive kind of guy. But anyway, yeah. This is in contrast, yeah. This scene stresses the fact that nature may reduce to impermanence the seemingly most permanent endeavors and constructive activities of men. Under a downpour of rain, adobe brick can return to mud. All human institutions and their achievements can be washed away, even in their day of great glory. In quotes, dust you were, dust you must become. Ah, that's our second uh, song for this week, right? Dust in the Wind. I may already have used that one before. All we are is dust in the wind. I think it's by Kansas or something. Old dust. Thus, the, the key words here, nature's challenge. So we really want to look at this situation. And this is all, of course, having to do with what I came through with for the mantra for this week. So much of what our people and humanity's institutions these days are based upon materialism. Yeah? 
you know, it's, it's, it's based upon, you know, machines and it's based upon money and it's based upon these, you know, definitions of success that have to do with what we can achieve in this physical body in this lifetime. It's very short sighted. It's not spiritual. There is not an understanding of reincarnation. There is not an understanding, okay, of the soul that incarnates and incarnates and incarnates and is an expression of a spirit that is infinite and exists outside beyond time and space. This is what the patriarchy has brought in. And this is the culmination of the patriarchy. This is the culmination of materialism. This is the incarnation of Araman. And this is destined to fail. But like I've been saying, in the meantime, prior to the fail, there's a great amount of devastation and destruction that occurs in the hearts of people in the lives of future generations and in the income. Yeah, the income, the resources, the bank accounts. Let's get real. This is Taurus. Taurus ruled by Venus conjunct Saturn, the planet of reality. Yeah, we have to really look at the reality of this life, the reality of this body, the reality of what's going on now. I've even heard they're, you know, they're saying that there's, you know, gonna they're gonna take down the World Wide Web. Yeah, the the weffers, the mother weffers. <laughs> anyway, there is there's a lot of threat going on here, but we also want to look at the upside. Yeah, I mean the upside is that you know uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. and the you know Children's Health Defense just won a Supreme court uh, ruling and you won't hear it on any of the mainstream media but the ruling was that the vaccines are not vaccines and uh, and that you know they're causing a great amount of devastation and destruction so there there's like if we want to look at it in terms of polarity there are light forces and dark forces There's night and day. And to me, we're moving towards the equinox. Yeah? The nights are getting shorter in the northern hemisphere. Yeah, the days are getting shorter. We're moving towards equanimity. And I think that all of evolution is moving towards equanimity and peace and harmony. It will take a number of years to achieve, but we are on our way. And the scales will come into balance. Yeah, justice will be achieved. Peace and harmony. Yes, you know, are. We are moving towards that direction. But right now, it's about a lot of letting go of what is not moving us in that direction. Yeah? So there is a new reality approaching. And in order to really step into that new age of Aquarius, Pluto into Aquarius, 
this whole new future liberation and enlightened society, there is a lot of shedding and a lot of falsehood and a lot of lies, yes, that need to be released and let go. And so we have to move into this place of the soul, of our spiritual soul, the belly. Think of Qigong. Think of martial arts. Okay, think of horse stance in yoga. You bend your knees a little bit and you center yourself in your belly. Yeah, Buddha's belly. Come down out of the busyness out of the rush, out of the screen, out of all the, you know, rational, logical, oh no, oh my, this, that, and the other thing. Come down. Belly breath. Box breath. Wim Hof. Yeah, box breath. Yeah, inhale for five. Hold for five. Exhale for five. Be empty for five. Inhale for five. Yeah. Really, and feel yourself, yeah, when you are empty. I always like to stop breathing, because when you stop breathing, you stop thinking. Get into a place. We really don't need to breathe as much as people think. <laughs> when you do breath of fire, okay, for three to five minutes. Right. You do breath of fire for three to five minutes and then you can you can let go of all breath. Go into the void. Yeah. Go into the emptiness. Go into the belly. And feel your eternal nature. And you come into that all of this comes and goes. And whether it's a relationship, whether it's money, whether it's your social status, okay, you know, whether it's your job, everything, this body comes and goes. But your spirit consciousness is eternal. This is maturity. This is stepping into the elder. I know last week I had a number of, uh, you know, older folks going, what about me and what about me? I'm coming into my second Saturn return. And, you know, I only talked about those, you know, in their Pluto square and Neptune square. I went up to the Chiron return at 51. Okay. But those of you that are 57, 58, you're coming into your second Saturn return. Born with Saturn and Pisces. Like I've said before, and I said it in the, the truth about 2023, these next three years of Saturn and Pisces, the 12th sign of the Zodiac, ending, finishing, closing, completing what began back in the 90s. That's when the Internet really took over, right? That's why, I mean, this is, we're, we're a lot of water will be flowing under the bridge. There, there's even the image of a storm. Yes? Faces a, the water. And this is Aquarius. The water bearer is, is a man 
pouring out water, cosmic water. I just wrote up the uh, description. I'm doing the astrology of water in the Bahamas, swimming with the dolphins next September. I'll be posting that shortly, yeah? But think of water as spirit, cosmic spirit being poured out onto humanity. Yeah, baby. This new moon, this can be a great period of enlightenment and liberation as you free yourself from old attitudes, from old ways of perception, and open that third eye of Uranian liberation. Yeah, baby. Ow! We can do this, man. We can do this. We got to step out. We are the seed people. So the mantra for this week, when I drop down out of my head into my belly below, I am at peace with whatever is knowing it all comes and goes. I mean, if you want security, yeah, you know, if we want security, we have to anchor ourselves in the most infinite nature of our being. So spiritual discipline, Saturn going into Pisces next month for years. I'm going to be talking, I'm going to be repeating this. You need a spiritual practice. And so right now it's really time with Venus conjunct Saturn this week. Yeah, to really start a new Venus-Saturn cycle, right? A new year's, you know, resolution on how I am going to be at peace with myself and the world. I encourage you, do not dwell upon the negative. Do not feed the dragon. Remain in the positive, infinite potential of your soul. When I drop down out of my head into my belly below, I am at peace with whatever is, knowing it all comes and goes. Yeah. May you come and go, baby. Namaste. Aloha. Pura Vida. So much love.
That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Okay. Um, I, it seems to me the future is getting harder to read to any degree that anyone can read the future. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was before, before, earlier today, I was scanning financial articles and there are, there are various, various opinions out there. But, uh, one of, one pair is inflation is gonna continue and maybe even get worse here in the states. And that that's gonna lead to a, a recession, a noticeable recession, not just a, you know, not just a, a little slowdown. So uh, the financial markets are very uncertain this time, and most of the stock market is, uh, when you look at the, you know, the closing values, you know, like the Dow did this or that or whatever, most of that is driven by very large corporations with uh, fancy computer algorithms so that they can make, you know, a little bit of money, you know, a hundred times a day. And, you know, they can make the market go down when they want. They can make it go up when they want. So there's a lot of churning going on is the term there. So, uh, yeah, the financial markets are crazy, uh, at least unstable. And then we'll see what the U.S. Congress does does about this debt limit thing. That's going to be interesting to watch. Oh. And that's it. That's all I got for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if you got if you got some uh, gold and silver around, you, you, and you might want to think about cashing or converting that to something else. But, with inflation and recession and the U.S. Congress, the metals are probably going to continue to go up. That's about the only thing I feel. Oh, I'll, I'll give it an 80% confidence rate that metals are going to continue to go up. So that's it. That's it. Back to you. Okay. And have a good week if I don't speak to you at the end here. All right. Hey, Richard. All right. Yeah, you know, Uranus goes direct tomorrow, and uh, we'll, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chaos. Oh, yeah, we got to figure out, flip a coin. Are the, are the, uh, are the Germans going to uh, allow their allies to uh, move? Move heavy heavy armor into Ukraine. I would say that's a extremely bad move. <laughs> well, you know the definition of evil, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's time space continuum. Yeah. Uh, like like he said, the world is full of psychopaths. That's true, right? And they. <laughs> I think you're controlling the world. Oh, man. Yeah, really. Yeah, 
those who would compel are evil. Yes. That's right. Freedom is a spiritual concept. Yes. All right. I'm going to mute out now and listen to a little bit of Tanya. Maybe she'll lift our spirits. Oh, this is a good one. Lift our attitude. Yep. Uh, Okay. Welcome to Star Codes, the forecast where we look at a celestial event coming up in the stars and numbers, that is, astrology and numerology, to help us navigate what the upcoming energy intensification brings to us on Earth. And in this case, it's a special subject because it involves all the planets, each one, and that is that starting on January 22nd until April 21st, 2023, all planets will be moving direct, which means there will be no planets in retrograde motion. And that's a three-month period, so it is extremely rare, and sometimes there are years where It never happens where all planets are in direct motion. In fact, that's more than likely the case most years. So to have a three-month period is pretty astounding. So let's start from the beginning. On January 21st, we have the amazing Aquarius new moon, which is a super moon, which means the moon is very close to Earth. So it's even more magnified. And that Aquarius new moon on the 21st of January, is ruled by Uranus. Uranus governs Aquarius. Now, as it happens, hours later, on the 22nd, Uranus stations direct. So this moment of all planets moving forward is very much accentuating, magnifying the Aquarian-Uranian themes, which are freedom, breakthroughs, breaking away, being independent, coming together as a community, listening to your inner genius, listening to your intuition, your inspiration. And let's also not forget that two personal planets, Mars and Mercury, just stationed direct prior to the Aquarius new moon. Mars on January 12th, Mars, our libido, our energy, our drive, our forward momentum, our passion. And then Mercury, which is all about communication and also the ability to relate to others, to listen to others, to have a sense of humor, to look at two sides of the coin and the lower mind, the thoughts that are practical. Mercury stationed direct on the 18th. So January 12th, January 18th, January 22nd. Those are the final three planets. And it's amazing because the number 22 is bridging the year that we just left, 2022, into 
2023. So 22 is a master number of peace. It's called the architect of peace. And it is very much about stability, being grounded, not moving too fast. And now we have all these planets moving direct starting on the 22nd of January. And, and it's actually 89 days total that they will be stationing all in direct motion. And it indicates fast movement, forward momentum. So really the opposite of last year and the number 22. Now we are in 2023. And 23 is a fast moving number. It reduces to five. Five is all about experimentation quick decisions, moving fast, getting an idea of how different perspectives feel, communicating, being with many people, exploring, and especially freedom. So this couldn't have happened at a better time in terms of both the astrology and the numerology. Basically, when all planets go direct in a year like 2023, which adds up to seven, And seven is also related to faster movement because it's the lightning strike of inspiration. In a year where they come together in this way, things are going to move rapidly because nothing will be blocking you. Now, keep in mind that all the planets, if you look at the actual astrology moment where Uranus stations direct on the 22nd of January, You'll notice that the planets seem to be bunched on one side of the circle, the astrology chart. And that means that they are all in the same six to seven signs throughout these next three months. There's nothing changing except the moon, of course, which traverses through all 12 signs every 27 and a half days. So this bunching up of planets also can indicate that the momentum will be more contained because we're not having the full spectrum experience of the full circle, the full 12 signs. So that means if you are moving forward and you feel the forward momentum and you want more, it will ask you to uncover something that you may have forgotten. So you're moving forward, you feel like the, the the sense of freedom, and then you realize, oh, but there's still something I need to see on this topic that I have been dealing with for the last three years or so. And and that's really the key here is is to not leave any stone unturned because come the next couple of years as we move into the end of 2024 and then 2025. That's really where the incredible planetary shift on Earth will occur because of every slow moving planet changing signs at that point. This is a precursor year 2023 because we have several slow moving planets changing signs and it's all leading up to a couple of years from now. So we're getting a taste, but we also still need to stop and make, you know, take note of what it is we may have forgotten along the way or need to still reconsider and 
make sure that we uncover every, make sure every stone is, is unturned, is turned <laughs> so that we get the full perspective, the full story before we can actually undergo that incredible birthing process. So you'll definitely feel ready to move forward and you'll be able to much more than before, especially the last three years. Uh, you'll still need to uncover things, but with no retrogrades for the next three months, we have an opportunity to make significant changes in our lives and to grow exponentially. Remember that with these opportunities, these beautiful opportunities, we can harness the energy in a way that allow things to happen at lightning speed, which is the Uranian Aquarian theme that starts off this three month period. So harnessing the energy is directly related to how much you actually listen to your intuition and also is important to be very clear on your intentions, to set intentions in a very conscious way about what it is that you want. Allow the universe to bring you the full experience. So it's always a surprise how it shows up. So the, the point is you set the intention of what you want and then it shows up in the best way for your highest good. So, but be very clear on those intentions because the energy moves rapidly. You don't want to miss out and you also don't want to feel overwhelmed because whatever you choose to focus on, if you're not clear about it, then it will show up in a way that maybe wasn't intended, right? Then the unconscious, the unconscious mind in you will actually be the director as opposed to you consciously doing the directing. And that's the whole thing about forward moving planets is the energy can be very exciting, but it can also be overwhelming at the same time because they're all moving forward. So you need to stay in control of that ship, of that car, whatever vehicle you want to call it, and not allow your mind to spin out of control when viewing the various options. And there will be many options and many opportunities and many possibilities that show up. And so you don't want your mind to go out of control when you look at all those options that are available to you at each moment. And so to align yourself with the highest potential during this cosmic window of time, it's essential that you stay grounded in your body. So you really want to commit now to practices that allow you to stay connected to your body and connected to your breathing, your breath, so that you can fully utilize this incredible energy that is being made available to all of us. And at times it may feel like you're being pulled in many different directions because of this immense forward momentum, right? Even though it's contained in a few signs, in your chart, so three or four houses are really impacted because they are bunched up, these planets, it's still going to move forward. And so you will be revisiting topics because of the bunching up of planets, but you will be setting yourself free from those topics. And that's really the key point. Uranus and Aquarius start this all off 
And the freedom part of it is huge. Now, there's another sign we're going to look at as well in a moment that plays a major role. So first, remind yourself of what's most important to you right now. And if you feel overwhelmed about the unexpected opportunities, just remember you may be tempted to say yes to most everything that shows up because it represents potential and you don't want to feel like you missed out, but it's important to not overextend yourself and make sure that you are aligned, first of all, to the energy that you're choosing, number one, and number two, that you can sustain any commitments that come along with you choosing to partake in that particular frequency over the next six months or so. So be aware that everything will feel very exciting. It will have sort of that excitement spin to it, but that can wear off if it's not really meant to be in your life. So tune into that incredible intuition, right? That is really your magic wand. And it's, it's going to be very exciting no matter what. You know, January started sort of slow because we had Mercury and Mars, two personal planets, retrograde on New Year's Day. So, and they didn't change directions until going into the second, third week of January. And now that all the cosmic bodies are going to be in forward motion, you feel called. Your destiny is calling you and you're really going to feel that. So enjoy it. Enjoy the inspiration that comes with that calling. And just remember to ground your body through deep breathing, through connecting with nature, going outside, being very clear about your intentions, and to know that anything is possible. Now, on January 22nd, the day that Uranus, the final planet, stations direct, Venus conjuncts Saturn. And this is an amazing segue into also the other important sign that is playing a huge role over this next three-month period. So Venus conjunct Saturn is an amazing way to start these three months because it is about true love, true love that lasts, about loyalty and integrity and trust and commitment and responsibility and learning to take care of your emotional needs and nurturing your artistic nature, your creativity, not restricting how you feel, not restricting how you want to express yourself, but using your imagination in a structured way. So having a platform to channel your amazing creativity and imagination into. So you don't want to suppress your creativity, your intimate relationships, whether they're platonic or romantic, will take on a more serious tone, but it is all to create a secure, long-lasting connection. So any healthy relationships that you are in are going to bring much more closeness. And then we have the incredible second part of this star code, and that's the numerology part. So on April 21st, Mercury will station retrograde at 15 degrees Taurus. Well, on January 22nd, Uranus 
station direct at 14 degrees Taurus. Now this is amazing that these two planets that start and end the three week period of time, this window, are literally stationing one degree from each other. I mean, they're 360 degrees in the zodiac. Like the chances of that happening are pretty slim. So 14 degrees Taurus begins, 15 degrees Taurus ends, and it's the middle of Taurus, so it's showing the pivot point. Every sign has 30 degrees, so this is the right smack in the middle of Taurus. So it shows that we are in the middle of a shift. Uh, it's extra powerful because it shows that there is forward momentum, but also shifting energy. So it's changing direction. It's a pivot point. 14 is the media number, so it means there will be a lot revealed via communication channels, and that will accelerate the awakening process. Uranus and Aquarius are all about awakening, and our seven universal year in 2023 is the great awakening number. So Taurus in itself is the sign of what you value in your life. And it represents not just monetary value and financial flow and wealth and pleasure, but also your actual values. What it is you consciously and unconsciously infuse with your time and energy because you value it most. And so a lot will become clear to you over the next three months about what is most valuable to pursue and dedicate your life to. And then you will get a lot of feedback regarding how you look at not just a sense of having a good income, but what does wealth mean to you? What does abundance mean to you? Is it just dollar signs or whatever <laughs> signs in terms of your currency? Or is it a energetic currency? Is it an energetic exchange of the current, the current moment? You see, that is where we need to look at language and understand that when we use the word currency and only in the context of money, we leave out all the other layers and hidden meanings of that word. It literally is like a current of a river, a current in an ocean, a flow. And it is also the present moment, the current moment. So the flow can only be felt in the current moment. And that is the true value of Taurus, is to be grounded in that earth sign and current up to date, totally with it, not in the past, not in the future, that's it, right? So the forward momentum is greatly enhanced by the two planets that begin and end at Uranus and Mercury being literally shifting directions within one degree of Taurus, 14 and 15 degrees, really amazing. And so just know that there's going to be a lot focused in your life on being accepting, being full of acceptance 
of what shows up and being neutral as it shows up. So the acceptance itself is a big step, right? Not resisting it, not ignoring it, not sweeping it under the rug. And then once you are attuned to what is current and being being made present in your life as a gift, to stay neutral, right? To not get personal, not take it personally. There will be many revelations during this time and they will lead to a deeper understanding, which is the awakening. So when Mercury stations direct, uh, sorry, retrograde on April 21st, being the first planet to do so after this three month period, it is one day after the equinox. It is exactly three months after the one degree Aquarius new moon on the 21st of January, so 2121. It's our 21st century number, the century of truth. The truth shall set you free. And it's amazing because at 15 degrees Taurus is when the shift happens. Mercury stations retrograde. 15 is the spiritual alchemist. It's my favorite number in numerology. The spiritual alchemist is the magician who alchemizes energy through love and joy. It is a number that reduces to six, a number of love, responsibility, and abundance. And it is truly about gratitude and feeling filled with unlimited potential to create magic in your life. The spiritual alchemist. It is right in the middle of Taurus, 15 degrees Taurus. And it really indicates that the time has come to feel pleasure, abundance, love in your life. So I know you're going to enjoy these next three months and leave some comments on how it goes for you. And also discover your own star code. You have numbers. You have degree numbers in your astrology, you have numbers in your birthday, in your birth certificate name that describe your life purpose, your destiny. And you can explore all of that in a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. This class was the first class I created and it really is about looking at your divine blueprint, discovering the magic in your birthday and your birth certificate name and your astrology birth chart. And there's a handout as well. It's a lot of fun. So I really hope you enjoy that free masterclass. Discover your divine blueprint at starcodeclass.com. Now, I wish you a beautiful end of January and next three months. And look forward to connecting with you again in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. Okay, Richard, are you still there? Just checking. Okay. All right. Well, Rama, 
What's the phone numbers for the conference call? Um, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Say it one more time, okay? 353 No, the whole thing. Oh. 720 716 7301. And the PIN code? 353 863 pounds. Okay, come and join us. Uh, we get to spend some more intimate time with each other, and it's, it's wonderful. And, uh, we'll see you on the conference call here. Um, I mean, uh, for the next hour and we'll be right back at BBS radio station 2 at the top of the next hour so see you now and yay BBS radio <laughs> namaste for now see you on the conference everyone <laughs> wonderful I was just thinking Rama that you would want to play the uh Message you found from Manny Palmer Hall. Yeah. It's a short piece, but it's from the Secret Teachings of All Ages. That book is a master documentary of the human race evolution, evolving, you might say, mm. on planet Earth. Did you say that, Rama? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I'll just read the. Here we go. Oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. It starts rather abruptly. up all the commercials before we start, at least the ones at the beginning. The beginning of the study of magnetism can be traced The beginning of the study of magnetism can be traced back to Egypt. Also, we find the Greeks used it, and the, among the Greeks and early Egyptians, we have the first understanding of the nature of magnetism. It was used principally in healing. It was well known to Pythagoras, who gave us considerable information on the subject, which was promptly forgotten by everybody else. Then we have little knowledge of it, except through the Arabs. The Chinese were aware of it because of the discovery of the Meridus Compass. But for the most part, it was neglected until the uh, 17th century when it became involved in the story of Rosicrucianism. The alchemists, the Rosicrucians, and the Hermetists all were unfolding phases of magnetic theory. 
Then we come down a little later and we come upon a curious instrument, Mesmer's magnetic tub. This was a kind of tank in which many people put their feet at the same time and held hands and created a battery out of the water in the tank. Incidentally, the magnetic theory is based upon a very simple fact, namely that what we call empty air is the not empty at all. It is the most profoundly used every all the elements that we know anything about. We all live within air and have our meaning, being, and we know that if air fails, we die. But what we do not realize is that air is not just some oxygen or helium or something of this nature. Air is something in itself. It is a substance of itself. It is a substance so real and so important that it's almost impossible to estimate it. It is a tremendous field of magnetic energy. The atmosphere carries the magnetism of the sun. The study of the magnetic powers of the sun will be more or less clearly understood by the study of the seasons. Winter, summer, spring, and these things have all to do with a magnetic factor in the air. And we think of it only as in trying to explain it as a... So now we're searching for the magic frequency. And we start with 100 hertz, and we look through the microscope to see... It as a physical astronomical phenomenon, since as the rotation and revolutions of the sun and planets. But each of these planets is a field of magnetic energy. And this energy comes to us through what we call air. One thing we have learned from television is that air transmits. We know, for instance, that we can have all kinds of programs on the air at the same time. And they can come from all directions. And they can overlap and interlap. But each one will remain separately identified as though it was moving in a channel or a circuit of its own. Something went through was vibration. And this vibration in, in the magnetic field can be divided into an infinite complexity of separate emanations. In other words, if we had a thousand different channels, they could be differentiated in the magnetic field so that each one would be broadcast correctly and properly for whatever it is. Thus, we realize there's something out there besides air, something besides helium and oxygen, something besides the ordinary factors we take into consideration scientifically. We are in the presence of a mysterious agent, an agent that is part of everything that we are. Now, studying magnetism as it comes into the human body, we discover along with Tilda that each human body is surrounded by an etheric or energy field. This energy field is sometimes referred to as an aura, but it is not the true order that we think of in metaphysics. This magnetic field is an area of energy. This area of energy forms a, an egg-like atmospheric sheath around the physical body, usually extending three to five feet from it in each direction. This energy field is the basis of virtue because this energy field depends for its reality 
its serviceability and its protecting power to move emotion, thought, and the attitudes of the person around which this magnetic field is gathered. In other words, the individual, if they are normal, if mentally, emotionally, and physically, they are keeping the rules, this magnetic field forms a tremendous protection. It is normal, it is healthy, it is constantly able to handle infections and all kinds of difficulties. It will help to heal wounds. It will help to recover the use of functions and organs. And if we are deprived of some part of the body, it will try to compensate for us. As long as the individual takes proper care of his magnetic field, it will serve him. Now, this is by phase of morality that is generally overlooked. It is assumed that these magnetic fields uh, are something you don't pay much attention to. They're there, maybe they'll help a little. But the truth of the matter is, the practically the whole survival of the individual depends upon maintaining the integrity of this flow of energy into the magnetic field. This energy comes from the sun. It comes through a mysterious energy tube in the magnetic field. It enters the individual through the crown of the head. It disseminates through the entire body, and it's excreted back again through the lower centers of the body and is re-cleansed by the solar energy. This is a kind of a little private tank or capsule of life that we are all carrying about with us all the time. Now, the problem of morality in this is very definite. The moment we break rules, we damage that magnetic flow. We have got to keep the laws of nature, and these in turn are the laws of God, or the magnetic field fails. It can fail because of physical intemperances, which reduce its integrity and reduce its power. It can be wasted in riotous living, which is such a common cause these days. It can be variously destroyed by moods, by attitudes, by fears, by complexes. It can be destroyed or damaged by alcohol, drugs, narcotics, all kinds of things. But if this field is damaged, it immediately reacts into health. It, it damages the individual's vitality. It makes him more easily subject to contagions and infections, and it definitely shortens the life expectancy. Now, we think of the magnetic field as surrounding the entire structure of the body, as Kilner showed in his work on the human atmosphere, and that was also in his study of the atom. This, however, is only a phase of it. Each part of the body has a magnetic field. Each unit within the individual has its survival in a unit of energy. And this unit of energy is present in the smallest subdivision of imaginable space. It is in the tiniest atom. There is no such a thing as a dead particle in the universe. Even if it is killed by something, the very disintegrating process is a symbol of life energy. Therefore, we are confronted with the natural problem of realizing that virtue is to keep the law of the energy field. Now, the law of the energy field, just by coincidence, is also the law of integrity. The energy field is what establishes right and wrong. The energy field tells us that to lose our...
what I'm about to show you is going to change your life forever. The demonstration that you're about to see was filmed live 2019 in the Sunshine Coast. To lose our disposition and tamper fit is wrong. Uh, to use various negative, destructive attitudes is wrong. To compromise the principles of right living is wrong. To think badly, to feel unpleasantly, to be engaged in any action or concept which is contrary to the common good damages the magnetic field and therefore is wrong. Selfishness injures that field. Every vice we know, the breaking of any of the Ten Commandments and a number of other rules results in damage to that field. It has nothing to do with nation, it has nothing to do with the ordinary concepts of codes, because the final code itself is based upon the life principle in each part of the human constitution. So we have each little cell has its own moral responsibilities. The stomach has its own magnetic field. The stomach is not simply an organ. It is an organism. It is a living thing within the human body. The same is true of the heart, the brain, the glandular structure, all the organs, the intestines, all the motor system, the nervous system, the endocrine system. These are all entities. They are entities of magnetic unities. They are part of living organisms that are cooperating together for the common good. To abuse one is to damage all. To neglect one is to neglect all. Each of these organs has its own field in the body. And all these fields together constitute the, the grand magnetic field that surrounds the complete person. Now let we go inside of this for a moment to see what we're dealing with. So we go back to Pythagoras, who was very uh, timely in that. He tells us that in Egypt there was a temple in which therapy was the result of this contemplation of a symmetrical geometric solids. In other words, the images of therapy were mathematical cubes, octagons, and various forms, dodecahedrons, each one placed upon a kind of altar or pedestal for the contemplation of the sephirah. All were symmetric, geometric solids, perfect and complete in structure. To look upon them was therapeutic, because look to look upon them accepted their energy as a reality in our lives. Now these stone solids apparently were not alive. They only gave the impression of value, but actually they were alive. Every form in nature, natural or artificial, has a magnetic field. From the tiniest atoms of the greatest galaxy, the magnetic fields are present, and the rules of each of them must be obeyed. Now, if an individual looking at a geometric solid sees in it a perfect proportion, this realization enters into the subconscious life of the person. The, the imagery, of, imagery of that solid is sent into the consciousness in the form of a benevolent magnetic center. It means that the individual is seeing a harmony, is seeing something in perfect order and perfect correctness. And in this, and in visualizing, wherever we see perfection, it improves ourselves. Wherever we accept discord as inevitable, it injures ourselves. 
everywhere looking around us in nature, we see that all natural things are benevolent. It is only when these are abused, mostly by humanity, that these benevolences are lost. So we find that we live in a universe in which everything is in harmony if we are. Now we can say, of course, that somebody else might be out of harmony, and this could injure us. Actually, it's not quite true. The magnetic field which protects us, protects us against any negative magnetic field that does not arise within ourselves. We are not contaminated by other people, unless by our very conscious weakness or our intellectual weakness or our emotional weakness, we surrender our integrity to the attitudes of other people. If we commit misdemeanors of one kind or another, we are responsible by the effect of these mistakes on our own magnetic field. Now, the magnetic field not only covers this type of thing, but it covers elimination, the intestinal walls. All of this type of thing is damaged, as we know, by hysteria, uh, by various moods. The individual becomes ill because of a bad disposition. Now, we consider this to be just symbols something that happens that way, but it is not. The individual who is sickened by dispositional fall is sickened because he has damaged the, meta, the uh, field, the magnetic field of some essential part of his own nature. If he has damaged the magnetic field of his digestive system, he will have dyspepsia. And if the dyspepsia lasts long enough and the magnetic field is sickened long enough, then long uh, enduring chronic ailments can set in. No individual actually is infected entirely from himself, but never completely without himself. All of these unities of fact must be in harmony. Now in the Rosicrucian philosophy, we had alchemy, the transmutation of various phases of life. Alchemy was a transformation and a transmutation of energies. And these energies are essentially the same ones that we have in magnetism. We therefore have the a constant realization that everything we do and everything that we see and have has values of its own. Now let us pick up a pebble from the beach and we suddenly realize that we're in the presence of a little stone. Today there is quite an interest in little stones, all kinds of stones. We are interested in the crystals that form in rocks and all these types of things. But crystals are formed by magnetism. They are formed by a rate of vibration peculiar to a certain element. And that particular rate of vibration can evolve through the mineral, plant, vegetable, and animal. It is always present. There is a magnetic core on each kingdom. And each kingdom unfolds within this magnetic field. And within each of the comp composite fields, individual members of the fields with various degrees of growth are in variously individually conditioned. Everywhere, this process of keeping faith with integrity is the, becomes the natural secret of security, survival, and world peace. Now, we can say that it would be very unlikely un that we'll say a potato could have a magnetic field of its own, but it does. In fact, every cell within the potato has a magnetic field of its own.
Therefore, we come into the problem of nutrition. And nutrition is very largely the study of the magnetic fields of various food products. It also tells us what happens when these food products are adulterated or are variously misused or uh, poisonous elements are introduced into them. All this is part of a mystery that is solved in magnetism. We pass laws against these misuses, but we fail to realize that it is not just the physical factor that we have to work with. The physical factor is only a fragment of it. The main problem is to realize that behind all of these problems, whether of government or of religion or of philosophy, all these things are in trouble because of lack of integrity. And integrity is simply keeping the laws and rules of energy fields. Each field has its own integrities. All integrities in all fields are compatible. All lack of integrities, all departures from integrity in any or all fields are in conflict constantly. The only way the individual can escape conflict is by never abusing the energy factors of his own life. He must never abuse in his body, his emotions, or his mind. He must never permit himself to develop attitudes that are incompatible with the integrities which nature has bestowed. The magnetic fields are absolutely honest. There is no possible way of making them dishonest. The only thing we can do with them is to destroy or limit the manifestation of their integrity. If we break the rule, we lose the benefit of that particular energy. When we lose that benefit, we then say that evil has come to us. But it is not an evil thing that has come to us. It is the failure of a good thing to be developed and purified and intensified. The magnetic fields are also in a state of constant evolution. They're in evolution in the life of the person. The individual may be born on a certain level of magnetic integrity. If he becomes a better person, he strengthens these uh, values in himself because actually it is all a matter of gradually strengthening the perfection of an energy resource. Now, no one is going to perfect it in one life or a hundred lives maybe, but he's going to grow. And the more integrity grows, the more rapidly the individual becomes harmoniously adjusted to the principle of life to which he belongs. In our world at the present time, we are in a sad state in which practically everyone has broken every conceivable rule. We are living day by day, trying to live off the profits from our own mistakes. And this is not really profitable. We are not re realizing that this has nothing to do primarily with the theology. This has nothing to do with laws of government. This has nothing to do actually with our legal codes. It has to do with the relationship of energy to its proper ends and purposes. We know what it's supposed to be. We know what it's supposed to do. And we know that it isn't accomplishing that. Everything that has an existence has a magnetic, magnetic field. It may have not one that is not even visible. And the whole of our atmosphere, the whole of the world in which we live, is one mass 
of magnetic interplays. But as long as these are kept honest, they are all compatible. And a universe in which there was no dishonesty would be free from every infirmity. That's, uh, that's, that was, was that Manly P. Hall talking, Rama? I think so. I mean, he's not here anymore. No. I think he was, he left the planet, I think, in 92. You got something for us, Rama? Besides, oh, you got something you're going to play? This is Greg Braden with Teresa Boulard. Yeah, I have that here, don't I? I think so. Okay. Okay. Um, Mysteries of human DNA, right, Rama? Yeah. Before you put it on there, just let me introduce it. Thank you. That's a good idea. Okay. Um... How we influence physical world through non-physical means. Uh, join Dr. Thomas Boulard. Teresa Boulard. Sorry, Teresa Boulard. Sorry. Uh, why? Why key? The host of a brand new show, Quantum Minds. TV and our very own Greg Braden for a fascinating conversation about the human ability to up-regulate games on demand, genes on demand. Oh, okay. To up-regulate genes on demand. What a quantum mind's TV. The new paradigm is about empowering and expanding our awareness of who we are, our vast potential, and how we can transform our world for the better. Quantum Minds TV is an open and flowing exchange of ideas about some of the most paradigm-shattering concepts that challenge outmoded ways of thinking and being. These conscious conversations help to reveal and even pioneer emergent new paradigm philosophies by drawing from a myriad of different subjects, including modern science, ancient wisdom, and innate human potential. We aim to catalyze the expansion of human consciousness. Follow this link to learn more uh, about Teresa Boulard. Um, bio... Uh, yeah, Dr. Teresa Bullard is a PhD, a physicist, an author, a speaker, 
an international teacher with the Modern Mystery School Change Agent and the world-renowned host of Mystery Teachings on Gaia TV. Throughout her lifelong journey, she has discovered innovative ways to weave together her education as a Ph.D. physicist with her lifelong pursuit of understanding spirituality. Dr. Teresa uses modern-day quantum physics with powerful, time-tested techniques to harness consciousness, bringing a truly fresh, mind-expanding, and powerfully altering approach. Follow Dr. Teresa Boulard-Wyke, official YouTube channel. Okay, so let's do this. This is just uh, 32 minutes. Here we go. I wanted a place for people to receive authentic guidance and practical ways to awaken. Thought-provoking, paradigm-shifting, and empowering. This is about expanding our human consciousness to create a wave of new possibilities. I'm Dr. Teresa Willard-White, and this is Quantum Minds TV. Welcome to Quantum Minds TV, where we take a deep dive into various perspectives on what it's going to take to create a shift in human consciousness. Now, today, I'm very honored to have Greg Braden joining me. Greg is a five-time New York Times best-selling author, scientist, and a pioneer in the emerging paradigm-bridging science, social policy, and human potential. His research resulted in the 2003 discovery of intelligent information encoded into the human genome and the 2010 application of fractal time to predict future occurrences of past events. Greg's work has led to 15 film credits, 12 award-winning books, now published in over 40 languages, and he was the 2020 nominee for the prestigious Templeton Prize established to honor outstanding individuals who have devoted their talents to expanding our vision of human purpose and ultimate reality. He has presented his discoveries in over 34 different countries on six continents and has been invited to speak to the United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, and the U.S. military. So, Greg, thank you so much for being my distinguished guest today on One of Minds TV. It is a huge honor to have you here. Oh, Teresa, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be here. I'm excited. I'm really excited to be here. This is completely unscripted. I have no idea where this is going to go, and I I was thinking about this as I was dialing in. This is like a dance. 
uh, and you're leading the dance, and I'm honored to follow this dance. And uh, my sense is our time is going to go by very quickly today. So, yes. so here we go. Here we go. Well, thank you for trusting me to, to I guess, lead the dance this time. Um, you know, when I first became aware of your work, it was in around 2000, and I had read your book, Awakening the Zero Point, and it was really a, an eye-opener for me. And then after that, I actually attended one of your weekend workshops, a three-day workshop in Seattle, and I was immediately um, impressed by a couple things. You, you really gained my respect as a scientist, and you gained my admiration as a person, because as a scientist, I, I really appreciated how much you really did your research, and then how you also really cited your sources that people like me could follow up on that paper trail and go and do our own research and, and make our own minds about the interpretation of things. But more than that, what stood out to me was just how genuine of a person you are. And every time I've interacted with you, Greg, you really are so genuine and you clearly embody everything that you teach. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. And uh, I want to dive into all kinds of stuff on human potential and DNA today. Well, well, thank you for that. Uh, what you don't know is it's been a tough couple of weeks. It's really good for me to hear that today. So wow. it means probably more than you know. And if you saw me in Seattle, that was a while ago. I think my hair was probably a little longer and darker <laughs> back then. So, so, so thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, I, I have followed your work as well. So this is the Mutual Admiration Society here. And I love the way that you are bridging so many of the ancient and the mystical traditions with the best science of the modern world, two very different languages, but they're both telling us the pretty much the, the same thing in the sense that we are not what we have been told, number one, and we are more. Hey, everybody, it's Tony Robbins. Listen, are you ready for 2023? Listen, if you want to create a plan and you really want to take control of what you can control, then you want to join me because I'm going to do a free five-day challenge on January 24th through the 28th and really build a plan for your 2023 to make it compelling and exciting. More, perhaps, than we've ever even allowed ourselves to imagine. And I think that... It's a powerful and a very timely message for our our global family and the world that we find ourselves, the world that's on our doorstep today. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for that, Trish. Yeah, well, you've definitely been one of my role models. And, uh, you know, you've really been a pioneer in this field of bridging science and ancient uh, indigenous wisdom, ancient mystical teachings, uh, you know, evidence from ancient civilizations and so forth, and what that tells us all about our human potential, uh, which is a subject near and dear to my heart. So this this conversation that you've been having around having a new human story, and, you know, it's, it's a shift in paradigm, and that is uh, very much about what what this is all about. You know, Fund of Minds TV is, is about what is it going to take to create that shift mm. in human consciousness. And one of the areas that you really have um, discovered some pretty fascinating research and revelations around is the mysteries of the DNA and how that reveals that we have far more potential inside of us than what we have realized or even been manifesting. And there are ways that we can start to unlock that. Uh, so this is something that I want to dive into. And I think in your 
awakening to your point book even, which is way back, you know, it, it, you talked about these superhuman abilities. You talked about regeneration, self-healing, super immunity, and, and, you know, so many gifts that are there to be unlocked within our DNA. So what would you say are some of the keys to awakening this? Well, it's, this is a big topic. Yes. And uh, mm-hmm. so first of all, the, the book, uh, Waking Zero Point, was written in 1986. And we certainly know more now than yes. we knew in 1986. And so there, there are places in the book uh, that are where the information has uh, needs to be updated. It was based on what was known in, in 86. And uh, I'm, I'm a scientist uh, by degree. I'm, I'm a degreed earth scientist, a geophysicist and geologist with a, a strong multidisciplinary background in the life sciences. So uh, marine biology, as well as math, physics, computer science, and, uh, and astronomy and archaeology. And I say that because it's that diverse background that has allowed me to stay current with the new discoveries that are seriously coming out on a weekly mm. basis. There, there's a, a peer-reviewed scientific journal. It's called Science, and it comes out every month. But there are so many discoveries that are happening. They now supplement. They have been for years now. They supplement that with a, a weekly newsletter describing the, the, the discoveries that have been made uh, in the past week. Mm-hmm. So all of this has led me uh, to, to stay current with the discoveries. And I think one of the biggest the biggest shifts in thinking for me, Teresa, was the realization that we literally – are a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated, soft technology. And that's a very, I'm, I'm saying this now because we're going to tie into this throughout this conversation. Yeah. Literally, uh, a soft technology. And, and rather than computer chips and artificial intelligence and sensors, the way we typically think of technology, we are cell membranes and neurons and ion potentials moving across cell walls but we have the unique ability to self-regulate, to upgrade on demand, uh, to up, up-regulate genes on demand. And the, the key access points to our technology are held in the most ancient and cherished indigenous and spiritual traditions. And it's all about thought, feeling, emotion, breath, and focus. Mm-hmm. And different combinations of those and, and how they're used. So when I began to, to understand that we are a technology, literally a technology, and this was, I mean, it's no accident. The timing is no accident. When I was working in the industry in the 19, 1960s, 1970s, early 1980s, computers were just coming in, into vogue. Uh, at that time in the 50s and 60s, they took up a whole room. And, you know, they weren't the microcircuits that we see today in the laptops. And when I began to understand that we are this technology and that we are programmable and upgradable just the way that software was that, that I was learning at the time, my question was, how far do these parallels extend? How how programmable are we? Uh, and and to what degree can we upgrade or upregulate? Our, our own technology. And this led me to, to look at DNA in a way that was very different than we were thinking of it back, back in those days. I mean, a, a lot of people just thought that cells were little sacks of water, you know, <laughs> with some, yeah, so, I mean, some cool stuff floating in, including DNA, 
which is floating around inside the, the cell nucleus. Mm. And now we know, of course, that's not true. That, And I'm going to say this now, and we'll tie into this as well, that the DNA actually is encapsulated in a, a, a protein that is called chromatin. Mm. And it is the way that the chromatin encapsulates the DNA that determines the quality of how the DNA can express itself in our bodies. So when that chromatin is is locked down tight, I mean, you can just kind of visualize this. When it's locked down tight, the DNA is still there. It's still functioning, but it, it cannot function as efficiently. It cannot express as completely. And when it is looser, and the ability of the DNA to express is called spooling, S-P-O-O-L-I-N-G. So the way the DNA is, is spooling, or if genes are actually silenced, there we have the ability to silence specific genes, is largely related to whether or not this chromatin is uh, is wrapped tightly or, or loosely. And this is the bridge. This is where it gets really interesting. Because the chromatin responds to thought, feeling, emotion, breath, and focus. I, I, I've seen some of the research, you know, that shows that when we're, as you're saying, feeling and, and thinking and, and expressing more positive emotions, uh, compassion, gratitude, things like that, love, it, everything within us relaxes. And as does that, that coiling or that spooling of the DNA. And yet when we are stressed, when we're negative, angry, you know, then everything stresses up, it tenses, it tightens. And so it's almost like it's as it's wrapping around the histone, then into the chromatin, it's changing the conformation or the structure of the DNA and how much of it's even accessible to be expressed or uh, which genes can be accessed to build the, the amino acids and the proteins and so forth. And so is there, I know that HeartMath had done some of this research, but are there other, and there's some epigenetics, of course, uh, some of the work of Bruce Lipton and, and so forth. So what research have you seen that is indicating these keys of being able to access more of it? Well, you just covered a lot of ground. So so there is a uh, an emerging science. Bruce Lipton, our, our dear friend, spiritual brother, was actually doing the research back in the 1960s. Uh, that became what we now today call epigenetics. He was taking cells, putting them in a Petri dish. Same cells, different environments became uh, expressed differently. They became muscle cell or bone cell or, you know, heart tissue or, or whatever it was. All that changed with. All that changed was the environment. The cell was exactly the same. So that was the foundation for what we now know is, is epigenetics. Epi is above, so it's above control, above the genetics. What you don't often hear about is we have what is called an epigenome. So most people are familiar with the genome, but the epigenome are the factors that the access points to, to the DNA some of these are very familiar and, and some are not. I mean, things like certainly diet, exercise, nutrition, supplements, uh, the external environment, uh, temperature, toxins in the environment. Those all influence these um, the, the ability for, for the DNA to express. But one of the greatest epigenetic access points 
uh, is the internal environment. And I, I'm just going to keep coming back to this. We self-regulate. Sometimes we're aware of it. Sometimes we're not. But we self-regulate through thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, the way we think about ourselves, the way we feel about our relationship to the world, breath and focus. So what this means is we, we live in a world that's changing faster than we've been conditioned to accept that change. And we've also been conditioned to hinge our sense of well-being, Teresa, on the world around us. Mm-hmm. Most people, they don't think about that. You know, we don't wake up in the morning and talk about it at the breakfast table. But, you know, if, if the world, if there's relative peace in the world, stock market looks good, retirement, IRA, 401k, kids' education, you know, everybody's healthy and there's there's food in, in the fridge, you know, we're feeling like it's a pretty good day. But when those things start to change, they create this tension in our body. So the unresolved stress uh, that we know it leads to inflammation. Well, that is the information that we're feeding into the, the genome mm-hmm. and the epigenome. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense. When we live in fear, these are all aspects of fear. Mm-hmm. We're tightening that chromatin. And the DNA isn't able to express as fully. And we see that our immune system, for example, takes a hit. And we all know this. When we live in stress, the immune system takes a hit. So a couple of different things going on here. You mentioned the Institute of Heart Math, a pioneering research organization in Northern California. They're dear friends, colleagues. I've worked with them since their inception. I'm not their employee, but they've, they've allowed me to share their content as an independent author and also give me access to the the research. So the research that they did was with DNA outside of the body. So it was not in the chromatin when they were researching it. But what they did was they took what's called pristine DNA, uh, and this was from the umbilical cords of newborns. So it had not been damaged through a lifetime of environmental stress, ultraviolet lights, chemicals, toxins, all that pristine DNA. And they isolated it um, in uh, in a device that allowed them to measure, and you mentioned this word, it's called the conformation. It's the shape of the DNA. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the presence of different emotions, here's where it gets interesting. The emotions were generated from another individual, so the DNA wasn't even inside the body. So the emotions of the heart were creating a field uh, or influencing field that was actually influencing the DNA. And then the bottom line, just to make it really easy, what they found was ne- what we would consider negative emotions. So anger, fear, hate, jealousy, rage, uh, tightened that DNA just like a little knot and changed that confirmation, tightened it up, and it was not able to express fully and just the opposite was true. Compassion, uh, appreciation, gratitude, all relax the DNA. Now, one of the interesting things, you say, where's the word love? And love means different things to different people. And the word love does... Vision problems. Try adding this to a glass of water before bed. Every human has around 106 million cells in their eye. Love does not seem to have the same impact. However, love is the umbrella, the general umbrella that encompasses appreciation, gratitude. These are expressions of love, compassion, care. 
So ultimately, uh, love is, without using the word love, is what allowed the greatest expression of the DNA outside the body. Now, this is a mind blower because this is a... Can I just ask a question on that for yeah, some clarification? Yeah, sure. So, so you're you're saying that the DNA outside the body was then being influenced by a person who was experimenting with those certain emotions. That so that mean would that mean then that not only are we able with our own emotional state to program our DNA, we can also influence another person's DNA confirmation that they're within our field based on our emotional state? So the word, you, you use the, the key word, we can influence. We don't control, we don't manipulate, mm-hmm. but we definitely have an impact. And we all know this. You know, you walk into a room with people that you love and care about, and uh, and you have a conversation, you have dinner with friends that, that you have just a really good connection with, and you leave, and you're buzzed. You know, you feel good for hours afterwards. You don't, you're not sleepy. Uh, your immune system is stronger. They've measured it, uh, you know, to, to determine this. So, yes, we are in constant communication mm-hmm. with the world around us as well as the world within us to different degrees. So so the, the heart math experiments were the first that were, and this was a Roland, Mc, uh, Roland McCready and Glenn Ryan were the two scientists at, at this time. And this was done back in the early 90s, 92, 95, right, right around in there. Published in, in peer-reviewed journals, so this this is I mean this is real stuff that we're, we're talking about. The idea that a non-physical force, such as human emotion, generated through the heart field, could influence physically the the DNA in the human body, that was a, a novel concept. That was a I mean in in colloquial terms that, that was the mind blower. Yeah. Said, wow. how, because, because now there's another part of this experiment, the series of experiments, and that was that this pristine DNA was isolated and placed into a vacuum tube, and the word vacuum implies that nothing is in there, uh, no air is in there, but we know that photons still exist within that vacuum. Mm-hmm. And the reason this is important is because photons are the fundamental building blocks of, of the atom, of, of physical matter. So what they were doing is it was an experiment to see if the non-physical stuff that our world is made of, light, photons, could be influenced by the physical stuff that we are made of, DNA. And what they found, they, they measured the photons in, in the vacuum uh, by itself, and it was completely random. Photons were all over the place, just what they expected. You know, no surprise there. And when they introduced the DNA <clears throat> into the vacuum, those photons went from being random to becoming ordered. And they aligned themselves. So what we're seeing is the scientific evidence of what our most ancient spiritual traditions have always said without the science is that we are part of the world around us, so we have the ability to influence, not control, not impose our will, not manipulate, but we can influence the, the physical world through non-physical means. So now you put this together, human emotion is changing the shape of the DNA, uh, and that shape determines the quality of the expression of that DNA in the world, and that DNA influences the photons 
that uh, are the foundation of the stuff this world is made of. Mm. And you, you take that middle piece out, and what you're saying is emotion is influencing our physical world. And well, even, a- even more than that, potentially. Are, now, are you referring to the uh, phantom DNA effect from Peter, Dr. Peter Garia? Yeah, so even more than just influencing the photons, it, you know, that when they took the DNA out it, and then they took the light through it again, they saw that the light still was structured and ordered, which means that the DNA is informing the quantum vacuum. And, and there's a communication or something happening there that is structuring that vacuum that is our DNA is like a portal uh, to be able to, to connect that well, quantum. Yes. Yeah, well, it's even more than that. I had, um, you know, for... The universal theme in all the indigenous traditions that I, I have not visited every indigenous community. Every indigenous community I have visited, they share a, a common belief that uh, that everything is connected, mm. and uh, and that we are part of that connection. For a long time, early in my life, I was schooled back in 1950s, 60s, and, and early 70s when I was in school, and scientists were pushing back on that. Even Einstein's ideas. Uh, he didn't like, this is where he struggled toward the end of his life to unify the, uh, the forces of, of, of nature, the electromagnetic force, gravity, strong and weak nuclear force to find an eloquent story, an equation that would tie those together, uh, because he was omitting this fundamental force that, that ties everything together. And I had the, the privilege of being at the CERN Superconducting Super Collider in, uh, in 2017, where and there's a lot of controversy around CERN, and we can talk about a lot of it is unfounded. I, I will say that a lot of it is unfounded. Um, but the uh, in, in the experiments that were being conducted there, they were recreating the beginning of the universe in the way that they believe the universe began. Some of those ideas are changing now. But the, the bottom line is, from the first few fractions of a second after our universe began, uh, there is a field of energy, and it was confirmed in CERN in 2012. They Actually, they announced it on July 4th, 2012, Independence Day in, in the United States, which is very interesting. Maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know. But the, the point is that the scientific community is now on board with the fact that to some degree there's a field. That's there. Now, I know you've you've talked with our dear friend and colleague, Nassim. Yeah. Uh, and we've had lengthy conversations, and we both believe that what was found at CERN uh, is an expression of a, of a deeper field. Mm. Uh, but the point is, the scientists are on, on board with the fact there's a field. But here's where it gets interesting, Teresa. I've gone to the conferences now, and they still do this. These esteemed scientists will stand on the podium, and they'll say, there's a field out there, and their hands do this. I'm out, I'm out of the frame. There's a field out there that connects all things. They're still separating us from the field. And, and the reality is that every atom, the, the average human has about 50 trillion cells in the body. Each of those cells has about 100 trillion atoms. Every one of those atoms is constantly emerging from this field. Mm-hmm. And collapsing back into the field in this this eloquent dance, we are the field. And so when we shift our perception, when we shift our thought, feeling, emotion, belief, breath, and focus 
it's not like we're trying to influence something over there. We are actually influencing. We, we are wrinkles in the field. We are disturbances in this field held in place by the consciousness that gives us life. And when, when that consciousness leaves, we uh, we become homogenous with that field once again. We go back into the fundamental elements. So mm-hmm. it's a very different way of thinking. But but this is what what we're seeing now. It makes sense that we would influence and have influence over the stuff that's happening in that field. And if I, if I may, so uh, I actually visited CERN in two, uh, 1998 wow. as a recruiting trip uh, for one of the universities I had applied to for graduate school. And, you know, so I went to go and get a tour of the whole CERN and, you know, the, the big particle smashing, you know, so it's high energy physics, which was one of the things I was thinking of researching in graduate school. And, you know, what was interesting to me, though, with with CERN and these other big accelerator experiments is that, you know, they ramp up the energy and then they smash the particles together at higher and higher energies. And then they watch what comes out of the quantum field, the quantum vacuum, basically. And and. If you're a subject matter expert and you've got a message on your heart that could literally change the game for thousands of people, then I apologize for putting pressure on you, but I consider. And, and you know, as they would ramp the energy up more, they would get more particles coming out that they didn't know of before. And, you know, ultimately they're thinking, well, if we can ramp it up high enough, then we would. We would get to the Higgs boson, you know, the, the God particle that was the, the one that all of them came from and it created mass and all of this. And, and, you know, but my, uh, even in graduate school, for me, it was like, well, it's actually not about the particles. It's more about the energy and what, you know, the field itself that they're trying to tap into. But they're so focused on the particles and on, you know, the physical side of things that it's that there's a paradigm shift that needs to happen even within science for them to understand that the field's not just out there, it is also in here within every atom, every cell of our body that we are intimately connected with. And and scientists today still I think are very much uh, operating on a Newtonian mindset, even though they're steeped in quantum physics, the, the mindset of how they perceive reality is very Newtonian in that it's deterministic, reductionistic, materialistic, and, and, and based on separation. And separation is that key thing where, um, you know, they, they, they think that they themselves are separate from their experiments. You know, this sort of closed system idea of how can we, you know, we can control nature and and be separate from it. And my emotions and my thoughts don't influence. But in ancient, you know, the predecessor to science, which was alchemy, the alchemist said, no, you know, our our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our inner state is is. intimately connected with whatever we're experimenting on. And I cannot take something outside of me through that transformational process without also transforming myself. And, you know, so they actually, the alchemists, the early scientists used their physical experiments as a reflection for their own inner transformational process. And so here we are coming back around to 
what we could call a new paradigm, but it's actually an ancient paradigm of all this connectivity and that we are, we are the universe. You know, we are connected to it all. Yeah, well, we are. And what you described is, is a fundamental, um, difference in, in the world of physics. Uh, you know, Einstein, as brilliant as he was in some respects, was very attached to the idea of separation. And, and he said, very famously, he said, we live in a world uh, independent. We are independent of the world around us. Uh, and that we're lucky if we understand a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he had a colleague. They went to the same, they're both Princeton University, same conferences. They had the same math, the same equations, very different conclusions, John Wheeler. And John Wheeler, and he lived much longer. He, he died in the uh, mid-80s. Einstein, I think, died in 53. So we were blessed to have Wheeler for many more years uh, pioneering this idea. What Wheeler said very clearly uh, was that the universe uh, is incomplete because we are building the universe. He said the act of observing, the act of observing the world uh, is what he called uh, us living in a participatory universe. Mm-hmm. And so the, the outcome, and this ties right back into what you were saying about CERN, what we have, the implications of what Wheeler said were, were just so profound because what he was saying is, you know, here we are as astronomers, we're looking for the edge of the universe. And we're looking, uh, as physicists, we're looking for the smallest particles. So we build bigger and bigger devices to look for the small particles, and we build stronger radio telescopes to, to look at the edge of the universe. And every every once in a while, you'll see an article that says, aha, we found the edge of the universe, or we found the smallest particle. Then they build a new machine that looks deeper, and they say, oh, well, it wasn't the, the, the smallest particle. It wasn't the edge. And what Wheeler said, the implication, Teresa, from my understanding of what he said, is that we will probably never find the smallest particle, and we will probably never find the edge of the universe. (laughs) And the reason for that is where we find our power. The reason is the act, the act of us observing with the expectation that something will be there is an act of creation Mm -hmm. that will put something there for us to see. And that tells the whole story. Yeah. Our relationship to our bodies and to the world around us, to our most intimate relationships, to our abundance. It, it, it is, and it's this, this shift, this, mm, this little shift. We are so conditioned to think of ourselves as separate from the world mm-hmm. and separate from this field. We are the field. Mm. So if we want something, if we want a healing in our bodies, mm. or we want abundance in the world, you've got to give the field something to work with so the field can reflect it back. Right. We're conditioned to focus on what we don't have, on the illness or the disease or the lack or the hurt. And so the field keeps mirroring that right back, mm-hmm. uh, and we think that something is broken. And the work that you're doing so beautifully illustrates what we're saying here through alchemy. You give that field something to work with, but give it what it is that you're dreaming, that you're imagining, you know, in your heart of hearts. This conscious conversation was created, produced, and recorded by Dr. Teresa Bourne-White in collaboration with Blair and edited by Verse Content and HH Films and Photo. The theme music was created.
Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Teresa's got her own station now, Matt. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. We're going to get a lot more of something from there. Mm-hmm. That was great, drama. Okay, mm-hmm. so we're going to do uh, George Nury. We haven't heard from George Nury for a while. <clears throat> uh, this is called Meeting Angels Near Death. What will you encounter as you transition out of this physical reality? Well, that's not necessarily got to be a goal. Uh, it may occur, but not necessarily. But we'll see what's going on here. Trisha Barker experienced a serious car accident as a young woman, and she found herself in a dimension beyond life, temporarily leaving her physical body. Encountering the other side, Barker realized that her consciousness was capable of perception beyond the 3D reality. She describes her encounter with divine light and unconditional love and how this near-death experience helped her realize her mission as a teacher and facilitator for others to find their life purpose. Trisha Barker is the author of the book Angels in the O.R. What Dying Taught Me About Healing, About Survival, and About Transformation. So this is 39 minutes. Let's explore. Ready? All right. On that fateful day, I had a head-on collision, and I broke my back in three places. At some point during the surgery, I left my body. It felt as if a different portal had been opened up, and suddenly I had sensory abilities that I didn't have while in my body. I was merging with this unconditional love. It was the most profound love imaginable. Because of this experience, I'm driven to help humanity. I'm driven to help people heal. That's my motivation. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. Trisha Barker experienced her near-death experience as a college student, which completely changed her life. She is a teacher and author of a book called Angels in the OR, and she hosts a YouTube channel called Be the Light of Your Own Healing. Trisha, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. I'm so happy to be here. I love your program. Prior to your near-death experience, tell us a little bit about who Trisha was. You know, I was an average college student in many ways, but I had some deep wounds from childhood and I very much was materialistically driven. I wanted to be successful. I loved academia. I really didn't plan on being a teacher, but I was running the Austin 10K as the symbol of strength and power and, you know, ending my senior year with a bang. And that fateful day, tell us what happened. On that fateful day. I had a head-on collision, pretty much, and so I was on my way to run the race, and when this happened, I knew my life had changed forever. 
forever because I could not reach the glove box. So I was slumped over to one side. My body was full of pain and heat. Were you driving or were you the passenger? I was driving, yes. And I, uh, I'll never know. You know, the accident was written down as my fault, but I feel like it was fated, you know, that this was a moment that that divinity stepped in to alter my path. The other people were not harmed. They were in a big SUV. I was in a tiny car and I broke my back in three places and had spinal injuries and tons of internal injuries. Now this experience that you had, the NDE, was it in the hospital? Was it still in the car? No, it was in the hospital. So eventually after 17 hours of waiting in the ER, many CAT scans and MRIs, I was taken into surgery. They they were a little worried about the internal injuries, and I remember signing this form that said 17% chance of death, and I thought, hey, I'm 21. Well, did you sign it? Yes. In that condition? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, you know, there's a chance I could die. I was agnostic, and I didn't think that I would continue on, so I went into that surgery thinking, I'm strong, I'm young, hopefully I make it. So you can imagine my surprise when, at some point during the surgery, I left my body. What happened? Yeah, so somewhere they had me flipped over, and there was a ton of blood. I popped out of my physical form, and I could see like 360 degrees. You're not limited by eyes. I could see the tops of the heads of the surgeons as they're operating on me. People scurrying all over the place. Yes, there was so much blood. That's where I remember thinking like, oh, surgery's brutal. Look at that body. But I Ooh. felt disconnected from that body already. I felt different. There were these light beings behind the surgeons working through them and that gave me so much peace. I knew that these intelligent beings were assisting with this surgery, that I'd walk, that I'd later run, that I'd live a normal life because I had lost feeling in my left leg before going into the surgery and I was deathly afraid of of being in a wheelchair. Was it euphoric, Tricia, to be on the other side? That consciousness was amazing. So I was someone who paid attention to breakthroughs in science. You know, I cared a lot about the brain. Sure. And I was on this other side. I felt so much smarter than I'd ever felt in my own brain. I felt as if my consciousness was upgraded the minute I was out of my physical form, that I was receiving, you know, vibrational information, feeling information, beginning to be feet to feel one with people in that operating room. Right. And then I realized I had died because the monitor flatlined. In the death process. Do you experience heaven, hell, angels? What happened? Yeah, so it was quite... Hence the book Angels in the OR, right? Yeah, well, they were the first uh, image that was an added reality to this reality. So people often say, you know, how do you know this wasn't a dream? It felt as if a different portal had been opened up and suddenly I had sensory abilities that I didn't have while in my body. I could see that these angels were working through the that they were working on me on a physical level, a spiritual level, an emotional level, that they were participating with my healing. I also knew that they told me I wouldn't die. I'd come back to this body and, and live this this experience. But when the monitor flatlined, that's when I left the hospital, had my verifiable event. Did you realize that you were dying? I knew I was dead at that point when the you monitor did. flatlined. And at that point, even though the angels had said, you'll live... You'll walk. I didn't really want to see how they were going to revive me because there was so much blood. I thought, this isn't as interesting. You know, some people stay in their near-death experiences and look 
their body, I thought, let's see what's out there. <laughs> you know, like, let's get out of this hospital. Let's, let's travel. And so when I went on, I felt this oneness with everyone. It was this beautiful experience where suddenly I felt connected to everyone in Austin. This is where this accident happened. Really? And I, I knew their souls. I knew who they were. Were you aware of things? Yeah. Much more? Yes, much more. And I moved into the night sky, kind of like into the stars it was just beautiful and I felt one with this consciousness that was coming toward me so I felt the light of God reminding me of certain messages like love is all that we take with us when we go be like a little child to enjoy this life more uh other messages like like remind people to go to nature for the truth and for healing and all of these messages seem simple and I remember thinking "Mm, maybe I need a little bit more (laughs) Like this is this. How am I going to bring this back to humanity? But over time, these messages have meant a lot more. Let's watch this clip of Raymond Moody, an expert on near-death experiences on his Gaia television program, where he talked about events going on at hospitals. When you're in an NDE situation, you become more aware of certain things. Let's see what he says. And then I want to get your reaction. One of the more puzzling features of near-death death experiences is that it happens fairly regularly that while they are out of their body in the hospital the patients will tell us that they go to some other part of the hospital or maybe maybe even someplace outside of the hospital entirely and are able accurately to report what happened for example um, I had this wonderful friend, Vi Horton, who uh, had a cardiac arrest during surgery for a gallbladder and had a cardiac arrest that lasted 20 minutes, according to her doctor. Now, when Vi was out of her body, she was going out in the hall in the hospital, and in an area of the hospital, she saw her brother-in-law, who was standing there alone. And as she was watching him, a friend of the brother-in-law came up and said, what are you doing here? And her brother-in-law said, well, I was going to Athens today to see Uncle Henry, but it looks like Vi is going to kick the bucket. So I'm staying around to be a pallbearer at her funeral. Several days later, when her brother-in-law came to the hospital to visit her after she was revived, Vi said to him, well, the next time I die, I want you to go on to Athens to see Uncle Henry because I won't be fine. And I interviewed that brother-in-law at depth about that and he said that event totally changed his life now this is a fairly common thing that patients will tell us these things seeing things about the resuscitation scene that they shouldn't have been able to see did those things happen to you too like Raymond just just, just described they certainly did I felt my spirit form decide to go through the doorway and you know you don't have to open the door you just move it through into the hallway of the hospital and I didn't want to see myself revived. And I saw my stepdad getting this candy bar down the hall out of a machine. And I remember thinking he brags all the time about never eating sugar and look at him eating that candy bar. Later, I asked my mom if, if he did indeed get that candy bar. And she said she was certain. And my dad was certain at that moment that I died. They felt this overwhelming 
sadness and they both fell to their knees and they were praying in the waiting room and my stepdad came back in with that candy bar made a joke and split his candy bar with everyone because it was a long surgery so I told her you actually did know the moment that I did die and you felt it psychically what got you to come back you know I saw um my grandfather on the other side in that heavenly realm he was very loving very peaceful. And then I had the opportunity to go closer to that light of God. I did not get to choose. I was told to come back. So at some point I was stopped. I was merging with this unconditional love that I had never experienced before. It was the most profound love imaginable. Every wound felt healed. Everything within me felt so joyful. And I wanted to keep merging with that love. And then I was stopped and I was told, no, you have a mission. Look down. And I saw this river and this river of lights. I saw different souls that had either their light or their light was dimmed. And all I knew is that there's love and there's fear from the soul perspective. Right. And I was meant to work with students and remind them to go in the direction of their joy, go in the direction of what they love and add love to this world and let go of the pain that they may have experienced in in childhood or, you know, in various situations in life. And that would be my mission to teach. Trisha, how close did you come to witnessing God? You know, in many traditions, and it's certainly in the Christian tradition, it's talked about as God as light. What I experienced was this light that was incredibly healing and life-changing. So I felt that my soul was almost back to infancy, if that makes sense the purity that we come into this world with wholesomeness yeah like all of the pain the abuse the drama the negativity the projection all of that was washed away and i was like this pure infant in the presence of god but i did retain some of my consciousness because i i was told i would teach and I said, oh, no, 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 don't you know I was going to be a lawyer and I was going to make money. That was the plan? <laughs> yes. And and God kind of laughed at me. I felt this like booming laughter when I when I argued with what my mission would be. The healing process for a back is a very long process. You're still healing, aren't you? You know, I I do take good care of myself and I have to for maintenance to, you know, make it through this life, you know, that. That type of injury. I mean, you've got a plate in your back, don't you? I have very large rods that attach. In the 90s, they put the rods above um, where you broke your back are and below it. By your spinal cord? Mm-hmm. They kind of surround. How long are they? Um, over six inches. So there's certain yoga moves I can't do. How many I, are in here? Um, Two rods. My God. Yes. About that long? Yeah. Running up and down your spine? Yes. Yes. And that's. Can you feel it when you bend over? If, yeah. Like there's certain movements I can't I can't touch my toes. Do you let off an airport detector? <laughs> I do, I do. So sometimes I have to stand in that line with people who have plates in their heads, who have all kind of you, you know. You have to give them a document or something. They they understand, but yes, I do have pictures on my phone of of uh, the MRI. How are you feeling now? You know, I work with meditation. I work with my angels uh, to basically help me deal with pain, and I, I take no pain med. Medicine, I believe in, for the most part, just using consciousness, movement, and really, if I'm here, I have a mission to spread love, and so 
I will be supported. And when it's my time to go, it's my time to go. I think near-death experiencers are totally these, you know, with, with the dying process, whenever it occurs. What is life like for you now? Now that you've come back, what have you experienced? I mean, can you smell the flowers a little better than you used to? You know, that first year after the near-death experience, I was in love with plants, animals, people. I just felt this oneness, this consciousness that blended literally with everyone. I had many psychic flashes, many just uh, moments of deep understanding. I mainly channeled that into my teaching profession, you know, and, and that's what I still do today. But my mission has expanded in the sense that I talk to people beyond traditional academia. And I also, when my father died, um, my mediumship abilities opened up and I, I followed him into the afterlife. And now I do some medium readings and, and some intuitive readings. What would you say is the most dramatic change in your life since the NDE? Absolute joy. You know, like I'm ecstatic about being here. I think before that near-death experience, I wasn't as ecstatic and in love with being here, but also with this other side. I mean, I felt like my consciousness was very much contained in my body before that near-death experience. Now it's blossomed out. Yeah, it's hard not to blend with other people. It's hard not to want to help. You know, like that that empathy was initially very deep. And then then these gifts uh, were something that I, I was initially only using with students. You know, I never charged for this, but people found out about my story. And I see that it can really help that grief is an intense process for people. And when they're able to connect with their loved ones, get verification, feel more peace, feel that connection, it's, it's healing for them. Trisha, let's go back to Raymond Moody, who talks about, as you have just mentioned, some of the after effects of a near-death experience. Near-death experiences affect people very profoundly, and they have certain kinds of predictable effects. The, the most dramatic one is that whatever they are chasing in life, and I have spent my life chasing knowledge. Some people spend their life chasing power or money or fame or any of these other things. But it's striking to me that whatever they have been chasing in life, when people come back from this experience, they say that what this is all about is learning to love. And and they say that is what comes forward in your life review. Now, I also immediately want to say that they say also that it doesn't make that any easier. My friend George Ritchie, the first living person I ever knew who had had this experience said Raymond this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way and to translate George's words into my vernacular because I've heard this from a lot of people what he was saying is let's face it it's very difficult to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one other person Right. And that reality stays the same. Right. So they come back realizing the importance of the quest to learn to love and yet still find themselves in a human situation. So that's one after effect. The other after effect is people say that it eliminates the fear of death, not that they would want to die in a painful or unpleasant way, but from their experience, they interpret death as a transition into some other 
and more desirable realm of existence. So they have no more fear of death. Are you afraid of dying again? Not at all. In fact, I've been tested. I was in a plane that was going down and we had to make an emergency landing and everyone around me was screaming and crying. I We were in crash position. I grabbed the hands of the people next to me and I said, our souls will leave our bodies. We will not feel this pain. We'll immediately be in the light. Have no fear. Meditate on God. And I was just ready to did go. Did they hold your hand? <laughs> they did. They were crying. And one, one guy next to me was saying, I have kids. I was like, you'll meet them again. It will be fine. You know, like I was just at peace. I thought, oh, this is a little early. I didn't think I would be dying. You so know? you're not afraid of dying again, no. but you're in no rush to get there. No, no one likes physical pain. And to that first part of his question, there are great difficulties in, in the average day and in the average life. And I think that spiritual perspective, though, does add a little levity to it. You can choose the lighter side of the darker things that we have to traverse here. And so I do find value in having that one foot in the spiritual realm. I've always wondered, Trisha, what it's like for someone who dies, what they experience instantly when that happens, when they are no longer alive in their physical body. What's that transition like? I mean, do they realize I've died or something has happened? You know, there's only in a few cases a trauma loop I've heard about where people don't understand what's happened, but most people feel enormous peace. They're met by people they know over there who love them. They're met by light beings. They're met um, with a consciousness that gives them great peace. So when we're in the body, of course, we're going to have fear about losing this body. The minute we're out of this body, we don't care anymore and we're not attached to it. And that detachment, that detached state is amazing because you realize, oh, I do go on. There is something larger than this consciousness that's, that I contain right now. There's something that goes on. How did your family react to your near-death experience, Tricia? Were they supportive? Did they think you were, you know, part of the devil? I mean, what happened? You know, at first they were supportive. Um, my father was supportive. My mother was at first, but her minister, she is an evangelical Christian and her minister feared near-death experiences and he gave her a pamphlet that said that they're of the devil and people oh my often get divorced or commit suicide after near-death experiences and I he didn't get it did he no and I said mom even this pamphlet reeks of fear I said I can touch it and I can feel the fear and I know that there's only love and there's only fear here. And what I know is that I'm a better person. Exactly. I, because of this experience, and I hope you see that, I hope you see that I'm driven to help humanity. I'm driven to help people heal. I, that's my motivation. Before this experience, my motivation was how to make Trisha rich, how to make Trisha you know, look good throughout right. life and, and heal everything within her. Now I flip to how do I help other people succeed? How do I help them shine? And through that, I feel the light working through me. And I think that's that's a, a huge change within an individual. But yeah, there are people who fear that the devil creates some sort of light and tricks people. And I want to say to everyone who believes that, give near-death experiencers a chance. Our souls know the difference between fakeness and truth in that realm. Are you on a mission to educate, to teach I am, you know, but my mission is more around healing now. I think the more we let go of pain and we connect to that unconditional love, 
the more we live our lives more joyfully. Are you tapping into your soul to do that? You know, I'm tapping into angelic information. I'm tapping into energy that is simply here and available on the planet right now that uh, people are awakening at great rates in the last few years, which is amazing, you know, that there's more of a language in younger people. I'm noticing this at the colleges for spirituality. Have you witnessed miracles since all this has happened to you? Yes, I've I've witnessed many different uh, life changes in students that I've worked with where their paths have altered. In one lecture, you know, I felt the other side talk through me, move through me, channeling perhaps. And I don't even know what I'm saying sometimes, but students after Are a lecture. Are you aware of it? Yeah, sometimes I'm I'm aware that there's this energy that's moving through me. And one student in particular came up, hugged me after a lecture and said, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. I just felt that something you said in lecture today um, prompted me to do this. Would you recommend everybody go through an experience that you went through? No, I awaken much I more gently. So. <laughs> you know, like I think meditation can awaken you. I sometimes joke that near-death experiencers are dramatic people and stubborn people <laughs> because we oh. have some big lessons. Uh, but we also bring back gifts of how to heal the body too because that spirit world does participate with the healing of the body. So I would recommend that people meditate, that they open to it, ask for it, practice with lucid dreaming, Find find a simple way to simply open to that knowledge and, and open to that intuition. How has this changed you? You know, it's changed me in so many different ways. But like Raymond Moody said, one of the main ones is this absolute acceptance of death. I think a lot of times life is like a grieving process. You would not have accepted death prior to this? I think I would have been on the same trajectory most people are. And when you're young, you're in denial you kind of get depressed about it at some point and then you're or you accepted. don't even think about it. Yeah. And I just went straight from denial to acceptance. <laughs> just absolute acceptance. We all die. How can we be joyful? How can we experience more bliss here in this moment? And how can we live good lives? Do no harm to anyone. Now, you're working with students since this near-death experience. How have you given them the ability to see what their purpose in life is? Through your experience. One student in particular comes to mind. She lost her father and he came to me in spirit and he said, ask her if she's open to receiving a message from you after class. And so I asked her directly if she would mind if I, right. I gave her a message from her dad and her dad said, don't take this personally, but academia is not where she needs to be right now. She has a different dream and she needs to follow that. And so I said, do you have a dream outside of academics? And she said, I'm an amazing chef. I want to open a food truck and I want to, you know, do this. And I said, you're meant to do this. Dad said, go for it. Yes. Dad said, do it. And she just burst into a great smile, said, I totally believe this and ran out the door, (laughs) you know, dropped classes and and followed her dream. And she's doing it now? Yes. Yes. Fantastic. On Gaia's Open Minds, Gene Slatter discusses Four questions that we can ask ourselves about life's purpose. Well, it all gets down to asking the right questions. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because I always say, don't just stop at the most obvious questions. Go deeper. Yeah. Go deeper. Yeah. Go deeper. 
as you go deeper, you may get the fullness of the picture. And it's like little pieces of the puzzle that you're trying to understand about your life. So the most important thing is for you to remember that who you are is a spiritual being having this human experience. Mm -hmm. So as a spiritual being, it's understanding that you are a creator of experience and you have in mind certain experiences you want to receive from your life in order to know the truth of something. Like, for an example, before your soul incarnated, your soul might have said, we want you to really understand what it's like to rescue yourself. Mm-hmm. We want you to really understand what it's like to love yourself. We want you to really understand and experience what it's like to love someone else. Whatever it is that your soul decided to experience when it came here, it began to create experiences that would support that. So all of your life experience is going to be molded into getting what it is your soul desired to know. Which doesn't have anything to do with your conscious mind's desire. No, no. You can be at counter purposes an entire lifetime. And I hear that even when people are of age where they retire saying, I just haven't gotten to what it is I think I want to do yet. Or the thing I think I'm here for yet. Right. So there's different aspects of when we ask ourselves, what's our purpose? Uh, We're asking four main questions. Right. Right. We're asking, what is it that I want to know of myself? What is it that I want to experience and express of myself? What is it that I want to do for a vocation? That's only one out of the four. And what right. is it my soul desires above all else? So when we're asking that question, what's my purpose and what is it I'm here to do and all that, we don't realize it, but we're actually asking four different distinct Absolutely. Questions. She's got a good handle on it. Do you agree with her? I do. I do. And You know, I had kind of an easy go of it because I was given a direct mission for so long from Creator. I was given this mission to teach, and that made the process easy because I knew that as I was helping others, I was channeling that light. Uh, That that ended, though, for me. I felt this booming voice about five years ago say, your mission is complete. And I kind of laughed and thought, oh, do I transition now? You know, know, is this ending? And what I realized is I was in that place of freedom that I understood that service to humanity in some form, you know, using our gifts in some way is helping humanity. So I've been opened up to possibilities beyond teaching. In your book, Angels in the OR, tell me a little bit about that cover. It's fascinating. You know, that's what it looked like looking down on the heads of the surgeons. I remembered that perspective and then that light from the light beings, the angels, when it went into my body, it was information and it was also light. So it was communicating a lot of things at one time. And that's really one of the first impressions I had outside of body. And as an agnostic, I was so happy to see that scene. I have to tell you. It's a great cover. Thank you. Great cover. What was the mission that you were trying to portray to people? The mission is whatever it is that you are encountering, there's always healing that can be brought to a situation, even if it's tough. You know, in a school district where one in five students are dealing with some sort of abuse, what is the light that you can bring to those students who have emotional problems, who have difficult home lives, who have challenges that are hard to wrap your head around? Sometimes it's just kindness. You know, sometimes it's just a moment of belief in someone, 
love expressed as a form of service to humanity can alter someone's path. And we don't even know that we altered their path. That's what a lot of near-death experiencers see is it's these small moments of kindness that prevent suicide sometimes Mm -hmm. that really alter people's existence. Trisha, why does it take a near-death experience to get to this point? Ego, you know, we, we, we're so ego driven, I think, here in this world. And the minute you kind of die to it, you die to this vehicle that's transporting you through life, then you realize that, oh, that was a selfish desire. It's okay to express my personal joy, but how do I do this in a way that works with the lighter side of things? Would you say your mission is complete? You know, I would die happy today. I would feel like I made. Don't die. No. Don't die. <laughs> I, I would feel like I made enough of a contribution through teaching and through writing this book, but I feel that there's a lot that the world is going through and that people who are spiritual can still be, that we still can show the way, shine the light on, on ways to bring humanity together in different ways. When you tell people you have an NDE, do they get it? Many people do, and it is exciting in, in random crowds. Say I'm at a party and someone asks me about the near-death experience. Suddenly everyone looks like a child to me. They're curious. Do they, they know, know what more. you went through, mostly? They, they want to know. You know, people are curious in general. So I think it's a story that helps people. So that's I mean, why do they whisper in the corner, that's the one who died. <laughs> Uh, you know, most people are extroverted enough just to ask their questions, I think. <laughs> but maybe. Do they know about your book? You know, I have students who've read my book and ask me questions. I do, I do connect with people who have read the book. So it's always fun. We always grow and evolve and a chain and change. So even after writing the book, I have continued to grow, release more connect to more light. So it's always an evolution process. Are your psychic abilities enhanced because of the NDE? Definitely. So I felt like I was outside of time that first year and that was a little disorienting. I would know what was going to happen 10 minutes before it happened at times. And there were just jumps in consciousness. Eventually I asked that if I was given information that it just be given to me in a dream to prepare me the next day or just in the moment that I needed it working with the student or talking with someone who's cutting my hair or, you know, just someone might need a message that I asked that it not be overwhelming because at first it was overwhelming. Do people believe when you tell them you died? You know, my agnostic friends, it, it took so long and it wasn't until I wrote this book that one of my agnostic friends, she always said, this is how she puts it. She said, I believe that you believe you had that experience. <laughs> and you know, that's her literal so mind. So do the doctors, don't they? <laughs> yeah, the doctors tried to shut me down from talking about it too much and I can intuitively see. It scares them. They did not want to go down that path, but But yeah, the agnostic friends that read my book said they have contemplated death and they've contemplated what it's like when they die a little bit more because of of, uh, knowing me. I mean, do you remember and recollect things that they were talking about while they were performing the surgery on you, trying to save you? I, I remember that there was an Elvis song playing on the easy listening station. I've never been able to verify that or find, you know, like what was on the radio at that time. Um, but I know they had on easy listening music or a CD that was kind of easy listening. I'm going to guess what the Elvis song was. If I'm right, 
Maybe I had an NDE too. Can't help falling in love. Suspicious minds. <laughs> Suspicious minds. Yes. That's a classic. Yes. But you remember that. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, he's a good musician. <laughs> when you hear that song today, what does that do for you? It transports me into like two different locations. It's like I'm outside of body hearing that, seeing that room, and just remembering that this really happened and this changed my – it was – such a massive turning point and and physically painful to be honest you know after the surgery there was a lot of pain within my body so that um it brings back some of the trauma some of the ptsd but it also brings back that light dr lauren cielo was on the program and talked with us about psychic abilities that help you see the larger picture of life i think the great thing about being clairvoyant is it takes your awareness from the daily things that are going on and it gives you a, a bigger overarching understanding. I'll give you a good example. I do um, end of the year readings, like, you know, helping people look at the energy for the next year. Mm-hmm. And so when our lives changed so quickly at the beginning of 2020, um, I went back to those readings and I'm like, so what was I picking up? Right. And I do remember a very interesting energy that kept showing up on people's readings that I'd never seen before. And it was a a global community healer that the people I was reading would be needed for some reason to heal their community or the world. And I never saw that in those readings before. They might do healings, you know, with their family or maybe a professional healer, but nothing on a worldwide scale. So when I went back and looked, I'm like, that's the shift that we're living through. But the way I saw it wasn't that, you know, something terrible is going to happen. No, you're going to get a chance to be a healer to the entire planet. So that's what clairvoyance does. It it might take the nitty gritty of the day, but then puts it into a really big tapestry that you can maybe get a better understanding of your role in what's coming up. You know, what's amazing about people who have had near death experiences they all seem to have very similar occurrences, don't they? They do. Many people feel that unconditional love and that changes them forever. And many people feel a greater connection to others, that we're a global community, that we're connected to one another somehow. I think I felt so contained within my own body and my own consciousness before that, then I could hardly tell the difference between where I ended and others began right after it. I mean, when I was in that uh, room coming out of surgery, I felt I was a part of the nurse handing me ice chips. I was a part of my surgeon. I, I, I couldn't push all that consciousness back into this body. And so that is a meditation that I think is worthy that we we lose a lot of the pain in this existence when we remember compassion for all, like compassion for all sure. living beings. Does the NDE help your physical healing process? Oh, yes. I got out of body many times so that I, I could avoid the pain. So in those first four months of, of bed rest and I was in a body cast and learning to walk again at night, if I couldn't sleep because of the red hot pain, I would meditate. I'd connect with those angels. I'd see them continuing to work on my spine. I'd have lucid dreams. I'd, I'd uh, circle around the world and, and really just kind of get away from the physical pain. But I was told not to take painkillers 
and to work through it at my body's natural rate of progression. So I would push myself each day to do more, but not more than I could actually handle without medication. How do you feel today? I had a wonderful run, you know, like without pain from this happened in my 20s until my late 30s. And then I began to have to do yoga, go to chiropractors in order to manage pain, you know, throughout life. But it's for the most part, I feel great. Do they tell you what things will be like when you're 60 or 70 in terms of the healing process? You know, at my late 30s, early 40s, they told me I had the back of a 60 year old. And so you know, as I age, that is a concern. But what I've heard from angels, guides, and people are going to start bringing in so many more healing modalities sure. physically, emotionally, and in so many ways in the next five years, kind of pertaining to that video, that don't be concerned. So much healing is coming to this planet in so many different ways. Trisha, are angels watching over you? They're watching over everyone. You know, I believe we each have angels that and we can call on more guardians too and yes if you are afraid call on them for protection if you're driving through a storm if you are in need of healing ask them to participate with your healing and one thing i tell people about healing is a lot of times we're irritated we break our foot we're irritated at that foot how could you break send it love ask the angels to send it love and it will heal faster how can people find you yeah, so I'm pretty easy to find on YouTube. If you type in Trisha Barker NDE or Trisha Barker YouTube, you will find me and my website, TrishaBarkerNDE.com. Trisha, thanks for being on Beyond Believe. Thank you so much, George. You have a great show. I'm in no rush to have a near-death experience, but if it ever happens, I think I'll be ready now. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. you to stay aware. Here we go. Hi, I'm Lisa Gar and welcome to The Aware Show. It is truly my honor and joy to be here with you today. And just a quick reminder, if you ever hear anything that you love as a result of listening to The Aware Show, please share it with friends on our podcast. Our podcast is available on demand. Wherever you listen to your podcast, just listen to The Aware Show. And you can share right from there. And if it really helps you, it might help someone else as well because the information we always love to bring is anything that inspires your positive growth and change. And speaking of growth and change, that's one of the things we're talking about today when it comes to business. Have you ever had your business side of your life and then your personal side of your life? Many different elements like to break those two things up, indicating that business is separate than your personal life? Maybe, but... Does it have the same theme? Does it have the same momentum of how you treat people? How you, how compassionate you are? Are you compassionate in your life yet ruthless in business? Or are you giving of your time in your life yet stingy with your time in business? Know and realize that it actually can have a through line and carry over into your work and into any type of business environment you're in. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're in a corporation, if you're a CEO, it doesn't really matter because this soul of the deal is what we're talking about today. This is the name of the book of the of Mark Morgenstern, who's joining me today. He wrote a really great book called The Soul of the Deal, and it offers a really radical and transformational strategies 
based on the 400 plus successful deals he has had over his lifetime. He happens to be a deadhead, a Grateful Dead aficionado, and has been to hundreds of concerts of the Grateful Dead. And he has this wonderful experience that he brings in after this lifetime of following the Grateful Dead into his world of the soul of the deal. And I'm really looking forward to how you combine these two. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining me. It is just my pleasure. So I have to I have to know, first of all, why the Grateful Dead? As all the rock bands out there, why do you love them? Um, first of all, that's a great question. And the answer is I didn't say I love rock and roll, which I do. <clears throat> and I didn't say rock and roll has influenced me, which it has. It's the Grateful Dead, both what they did musically, how they did it musically, how they did it acoustically, um, and their sort of general philosophy, which influenced me. And when you ask if you can separate it, I, I wouldn't even know how I would separate it because it's part of how I think. Now, what is it about their philosophy that it impacts the way that you think and, and do business? So I'm assuming that many of your listeners and you were never at a Grateful Dead show. That maybe, maybe not. I mean, maybe some have been, yes. Uh, I will try to paint a pink picture because the picture is important. So, First of all, I remember the other big influence was selling encyclopedias door to door. And people sometimes think I'm being metaphorical about that, but I'm not being metaphorical. I, I couldn't be more literal. And it's the two things combined. So what were some of the things you learned selling encyclopedias door to door that are also mirrored in the dead, that are also mirrored in deals? Okay. So if you're trying to sell someone encyclopedia, um, if you want to do a bad job, you will just assume that you're going to sell what you want to sell. You won't listen to them. You will tell them. And if you have to make a sale, it's going to be by accident. And you're going to use the same pitch line you used at the 10 houses before and the next 10 houses. The way you actually sell encyclopedias is you focus on this house, this customer, this time, this minute. Because you're either going to be there for five minutes or 50 minutes, but that's it. And you have to assess the environment, the acoustical environment, the visual environment. What do you learn? And every house is different and every customer is different. Okay, now let's segue to the dead. They played, I, I've seen them play in very, very small venues. I saw them play at the Greek Theater at Berkeley, which holds about 5,000 people. I saw them play at the Richfield Coliseum outside of Cleveland that holds 20,000 people. So you've all been in venues like that. So just picture how different they are. And the acoustics are different each one. And the distance from the performers to the audience are different in each one. So one of the things that the dead did were every show was different. Every night was different. And if you think of the audience as their customer, every customer was different. So they were evaluating, um, how do you evaluate if you're a musician and you're up on stage? Are people dancing and applauding or aren't they? Feedback, right, right. doesn't tend to be that complex. And particularly the Grateful Dead, unlike most other bands, you know, they could play a song one night for three minutes and it might be 33 minutes the next night. Because mm-hmm. in the first venue that felt right and in the second it also felt right. And the other sort of really important part of it is If you think of that performer-audience relationship as call and response, an adaptive system, 
you know, like the dead would be pouring energy out into the crowd. Well, the energy would be throwing energy and love right back at them. And that energy and love would fuel the dead. And they would throw it back again. And so it wasn't, it wasn't that you're watching the dead perform so much as you were experiencing the dead with many other people at the same time. And however you experienced it and however many times you saw them, it was never the same. Ever. I'm sure people listening have that favorite band that they saw or that first concert that they were at. And it's always something that you remember. I mean, I found it funny when there was a security question on one of the websites that said, what is your, when was your first concert? Everyone remembers that first concert because you have that experience of that connection with music and all your senses. What was your first concert, Mark? Uh, this would be pretty, pretty embarrassing. Okay. Uh, the Mamas and the Papas, and it was probably 1966. <laughs> they introduced the song they wrote, uh, Wear Your Flowers in Your Hair. So it was a country going to San Francisco, wear some flowers in your hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in a long way, it was a very big introduction to my life, just not the kind of music that later on really moved me. Right, right. Mine was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh, great choice. Much better choice. <laughs> but I, I did. I loved his music and it all spoke with me, spoke to me when there was albums. I know we're dating ourselves, but you know, there's actual albums and you used to sit and look at the albums and the covers and so forth. But this time, even with music, you know, on playlists and so forth, it's the experience that the music makes you feel. And that gets you into your heart. It gets you into your body. It gets you into a rhythm and a flow. But that's not usually something that happens in business, is it? It isn't, but but it doesn't make any sense to me that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So let's stick with this for a second. If I'm negotiating a deal, there are other people involved. Um, I could start with myself. What do I want to sell? Or I could start by figuring out who is the customer, what do they want to buy, how are they hearing my vocabulary? Is it age appropriate? Experience appropriate? You know, are they, are they hearing what I'm saying? And, and do I know that they're really doing that? So to me, I can't, that's what I do in, at a dinner party. And that's what I do in a deal. I'm always starting with who the counterparty is because until I figure out that at some level, I don't know if I'm actually communicating and a difference uh, that people sometimes don't appreciate is, I measure the effectiveness of my communication by how much the listener has heard and retained and understood. It doesn't matter if I'm if I'm Winston Churchill. If I say, you know, the smartest thing in the world and the person I'm talking to doesn't understand it, I have failed as a communicator. Mm-hmm. And and that's my view. That's why that's with my children and that's in a deal and that's with anybody. It always starts with specific human beings you're dealing with. And deals in particular are about people, to me. Yes. I, if somebody is interested in maybe selling their company or buying a company, what's the first thing that you would do when you have two people, one's a seller, one's a buyer? What would be your first thing that you would do? Well, first you'd have to help me out and tell me how did they get together and how, how, does, how does somebody come to be the buyer and someone come to be the seller? Because 90% of the answer to your question is before that happens. So you want me to expand on that for a second? Yes, interesting, yes. 
Okay. So let's start with the cell side because it's it's more complex. Um, people sell their businesses for good reasons and bad reasons. So one reason they're selling your business is it's going really poorly and they've run out of cash and the bank won't extend their line and they have to sell it because they can't run it. Let's not talk about that buyer. Let's talk about a seller. Let's talk about a seller that's doing very well and they think they could run the business for 20 years or they could run it for two more years or they could sell it. And then you've got to do another sort of sharp line of demarcation. Is it a family business? where the goal of the owner is to pass it on to their children, that's an unlikely seller, right? Is it someone who is venture-funded? They're using other people's money. And when you use other people's money, you know that they made an investment for one purpose, which was at some point to get liquid and sell it, because <laughs> otherwise it wasn't an investment. So on the sell side, you're looking for a couple of things. Is this... One of the maxims is the seller's mantra is certainty and confidentiality. And I'll start with confidentiality. If word leaks that you're trying to sell your business, and and leaks is like if one person knows it, then 100 people know it, then what bad things happen to you? Well, your employees wonder, why am I here? If they're selling the business, I don't know who the buyer will be. Um, I don't know if I'll like the environment. Your competitors will find out, and they'll talk to your customers. And they'll say, hey, I know you've been doing business with Jackie for 9,000 years, but I hear Jackie's about to sell, so I don't know if I were you if I'd take the risk that you won't like the buyer. So are you selling for ego purposes? Right? You want to see your name in the Wall Street Journal? Jackie sold her business for a billion dollars. Jackie is the smartest person in the world. It could be. You could be selling because you never know when it's the right time to sell. You don't know if it's too soon or too early, and the answer is there is no right time. But my daughter has a when my daughter was three, I I asked her a question, and the answer should have been, "Daddy, I know," or "Daddy, I don't know." Only two choices, right? Mm-hmm. She actually said, "Was Daddy, I cannot know." And I thought, well, now that's a strange reaction. So I asked her the question again. She said, Daddy, I, I cannot know. And that concept is sort of a, what the position of a seller is in. You cannot know the right time. It's not that you know or you don't know. You cannot know. So you made the decision to sell for whatever reason you have made your decision to sell. And then how would you go about finding a buyer? Because remember, you may want to sell, but... <laughs> Unless someone else wants to buy, it's really not going to go too far. And it's, it's so, I mean, yes, it's very. These two concepts, you have so many different types of of personalities within each buyer and seller. You have your own investment company now, right? In addition to uh, being an attorney and negotiating, you you do this on a daily basis, right? I've been every winning motor for almost two decades now. So <laughs> two decades. So so I don't I know I actually don't even think of myself as a lawyer anymore. Mm. But those skills are, are perfectly useful. I mean, it's a way of thinking. Um sometimes it's a plus, sometimes it's a minus. But I interrupted your flow when we made to. But no, thanks for clearing that up because but it is a background that you have which is valuable. Um my question is 
in your involvement now, are you involved with this, with uh, um, venture capitalism and investments and so forth? What is, first, that was my first question. And what is it that you see as the biggest challenge in the environment that you're in? Um, people being realistic on all sides of the discussion. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the capital markets, you know, sort of writ large, um, move like lemmings and one month something's in favor and the next month it's just not in favor. Or if you look at this year specifically, a business you could have sold for a hundred million dollars in January, you can't sell for 25 million in December. Because Ukraine, Russia happened, supply chain disruption happened, the whole world changed. So why does everybody need to be realistic? Well, sellers aren't because they keep saying, well, I could have sold it for 100 million in January. What's the difference? It's November. My business has done very well. And you say, yes, it's done very well. I couldn't agree more. But the marketplace doesn't value it the same way. And it's the whole marketplace. It's not one buyer or two buyers or three buyers, what you had is simply worth less. Wow. And it's so very hard for people to accept. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I've really found that prior to COVID, it, everything changed. Everything changed. And I've heard that companies are not valued the same post-COVID because so many environments changed. Is that true? I mean, if someone had... You know, seller years prior to COVID and then took a huge dip during the pandemic and has climbed their way back up. Can you not look at the past success of the, of the company? You, you could, but it'd be a very bad way to make an investment. Ah. <laughs> you're, you're not buying the past, you're buying the future. So. The COVID really had at least uh, two different kinds of impacts on companies. There were some that it just literally killed, including some I'm involved with, by the way. The customer base just disappeared. The, um, people stopped paying. They just were unable. And so business that had been valuable six months earlier could be worth nothing. You also what types had, of industries, sorry to interrupt, but what types of industries died? Well, so think of people whose customers, like start with the customer. Um, if your customers were like live music events, if your customers were sports, if your customers were anything that involved people gathering together, mm-hmm. theater, movie features, think of all the places people stopped going to. And if they stopped going to them, there really wasn't much that the owner could do about it. Oh yeah, that's, I have a casting company and, um, I've had it for 30 years and I never thought it would go away. Yeah, it was very, very, very challenging for us. Yeah. And then the, on the, on the flip side, because those are the COVID losers, on the flip side were the people whose business was largely digital. So if their, if their customer base had been all analog, the mm-hmm. customer base involved physical meetings around the world. Well, suddenly they couldn't have those meetings, so a digital solution was the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. Lots of companies that provided digital solutions that, you know, the marketplace was accepting at whatever rate it was accepting it. I think almost universally people think it advanced the value of the company three to five years because literally the revenues tripled or quintupled in 
in three or four months. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, which is what we did. We wound up digitizing our company into a payroll service. <laughs> Tough. I mean, big pivot, but it's it's so interesting because I look at this all the time because we lost the part of our business that we had been doing for 30 years during COVID, and it was probably the best thing and the worst thing that ever happened. But if you look at somebody who's in corporate real estate, how many buildings in downtown areas are, are just vacant completely? Those people probably had a very challenging time during this world-changing event called the pandemic. So it's such a fascinating conversation to me because I'm curious as to how, because it's a big probably tie of mergers and acquisitions and buying and selling and losing and gaining. Who were the gainers other than people you said that were in tech and, and digital, maybe biotech, um, a lot of people in the luxury businesses yes. like... Well. Um, Every, everybody's business. If you if you weren't helped by COVID, you were hurt by COVID. Oh wow! <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a different line because everybody was affected, even their infrastructure. But let me give you a couple of examples. Um, almost everybody stopped going to work, so everybody had to figure out a new way to work. Same employees, but you need different skill sets, different ways of communicating, different ways of understanding who's talking to who when that was every business was affected that way and some businesses were able to adapt that relatively quickly Um, many of them were technology powered anyway and it wasn't that hard I would say the ones that um, like informal apprenticing is the way you learn the business Uh, 40 or 50 year olds didn't have any problem investment bankers lawyers they already knew who they knew they already had their network but try to pretend you're a first or second year associate in either of those places where historically you learned, I learned by sitting across a desk from a senior partner and just listening to the telephone conversation by going to lunch with people, by walking down the hall. But you know, one of my maxims is propinquity counts. It is that? What? Propinquity counts being close to people. Propinquity is like proximity. Yes. So, so I, uh, sorry, I actually learned that word from the Dobie Gillis show. Okay. Um, you, know, you always believe that Zelda would fall in love with him because they had a joining desk, so propinquity was going to bring them together. Thanks for dumbing it down for us. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, yes. Let me, let me just finish. So the 40 or 50 year olds were much less affected. How did, how do those people um, continue a corporate culture, assuming we had one? Well, if you have this, if you have a, a big cruiser and it's going and the engine stops, it'll keep going in the same direction for a while. What do you do if, if it wasn't going, right? The first and second and third year associates, they don't see anybody. They don't talk with anybody. How would you transmit culture to them? How would you have them feel like they're part of anything other than my computer screen? What's my relationship to the company? It's my computer screen. Mm-hmm. That's not a lot of bonding material. If you're a buyer, going back to your actual question, you're looking at many, many different aspects of the business way beyond what its revenue line is or bottom line is. And you're looking at in in the new world, is this going to be a winner or a loser? And, And can I, by the way, can I bring skill sets to them that they currently lack? So what, what's a problem for them with a solution for me? 
And that's every buyer will pay a different price. Yes. I'm so glad you brought this up. In addition to the soul of the deal and what we're talking about, the entire corporate culture has changed. And the, I'm sure art of deal making has changed along with it. My perspective is not enough companies know what to do about this. They're very aware of it, but they have no clue what to do about it. But you see the people speaking up now where the people that were in those corporate jobs no longer want to return because their life work balance was way out of whack. You see the corporations bringing in more lifestyle um, elements into the workplace, three-day work weeks, yoga classes, better food, um, environments that that inspire community and so forth. So there's a meeting of the two, the need, which we see lots of people not returning to work at all because they just don't want to go back to an environment that was so toxic. They might have lost families, not seen children raised, um, it had relationship difficulties and so forth. They don't want to go back to that. There's got to be another way of doing something because the online, strictly online um, work environments are a little out of bounds the other way where there's not a lot of accountability. Productivity might be going down. You don't know. There's, it's all being figured out right now, and I don't think we're going to know for another couple of years. And we're waiting for a company to come back with a good solution. It's not... Tesla, who basically says, if you don't come back, you're fired. That's one way. Um, all these great, you know, campuses like Google and, and, you know, all these fantastic tech campuses are trying to improve the quality of life to bring people back into the office. So it's such an interesting environment right now post. Uh, and I don't know if you have anything to contribute to this part of the conversation here, because I know it's not about deal making, but I'm sure it has a lot to do with what you talk about. Yeah. It has a lot to do with what everybody is doing because every company is trying to figure out. And, yes. and like most of life, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution. Every company is different. The personality of every company is different. The goals of every company are different. Who owns the company makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you always have shifting balances between capital and labor. And right now, it's very favorable to labor. Capital has less control. Capital's not happy about it, but they need labor more than labor needs them at the moment. Mm-hmm. It will shift back because it always shifts back. And over time, it tends to be, and before you yell at me and say I'm not dumbing it down enough, let me say about it the way I think about it, and then I'll explain it again. I didn't yell at you. <laughs> okay. Well, you yeah, okay, I'm pretty sensitive. So, in the, Hegel, in the Hegelian dialectic, right, first there's a thesis, everything goes this way. Then there's an antithesis, everything goes too far the other way. And then there's a synthesis, everything sort of comes back to the middle. So, I mean, let's assume for the moment that everything was too far that way. It was too much, there's only one way to do business, it's in person, you have to be there. Right now, it feels like it's going too far in the other direction, which is what you were saying. Um, and it will come back someplace in between, but I don't know where in between. And it very rarely simply bisects it into it. It doesn't come back to the middle. It more like comes back from not as extreme, not as extreme, someplace in between. And it will go back and forth many times as all those forces play out. 
and I completely agree with you. This is a multi-year, if not multi-decade. And so, you know, the other thing, another major thing is people say the word supply disruption and we're all kind of used. We say it, it's kind of a good phrase. We sort of know what it means. Lots of things until it actually hits you in the face. You don't really, <laughs> you know, the word rock from stranger to strange land to completely understand something at a molecular level is to rock it. Like I can really, really rock it. Oh. So we all know how to say supply chain disruption. I'll tell you when I rocked it is when my publisher called one day and said, uh, you're not going to like this conversation. I said, I've never liked any conversation to start with. You're not going to like this conversation. That we have a little problem. I said, okay. He said, um, our distributor can't get printing paper. I said, well, that's not funny. He said, oh, it's not funny. It's just true. So over, it took him several weeks. This is a super experienced guy to finally found a place to get printing paper. I wasn't really thinking that one of the hurdles with the book was printing paper. Right. And later on, you couldn't get glue. So incredibly smallest parts of things are impacting the whole. You know, you can't get two parts you need for the, to build an automobile that's got 3,500 parts. You can't finish building the car. Mm-hmm. And that's what supply chain disruption really means. And that's sort of the fragility. If you went back to history, if somebody's business depended on bringing in really key parts from overseas, that's now a huge risk that wasn't there before. Right. Right. But it makes us, it forces us to look at things differently. Like the whole digital book era is a great idea. Um, books on tape is a fan, uh, the digital, um, the audio book. Great idea. There, you know, we adjust and we adapt. Yes. If you can adjust and adapt, you have to be incredibly resilient, especially if you own a small business right now. If you're an entrepreneur, and if you haven't rethought your company at this point, you don't have a company any longer. I, I agree. Yeah. There is a, I don't remember who Edward Demings was other than the one quote that I happen to know, which is change isn't, uh, you don't, you don't have to change. After all, survival isn't mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> change is inevitable. But in a way, it's kind of a good thing because every corporation or company, you know, a small business has to go through a change anyway as time evolves. So if you haven't thought about how to change the way the company was run, maybe you created another company or another business or you took on a job or you're a consultant or something. But that's what I mean by that is we have to look at things differently now. We are forced to look at things differently. There is no normal we're getting back to. I love it when people say returning back to normal. It, there isn't any such thing. It's all getting recreated and reinvented and reimagined. And perfect time for you to be talking about the soul of the deal. Why wouldn't that be considered as well? So perfect segue back to the Grateful Dead. Okay. So thank you for that. You got it. Let's go back to how did they approach a song, which we can think of a song as a business. And because they were a jam band, which is different than any other kind of band, let me me make a quick contrast to the Rolling Stones for a second, okay? The Rolling Stones are fabulous. They've been doing their thing for 50 years. Their audiences love them. They play great music. 
Have you ever been, have you been to Rolling Stones shows? I've seen one, yes, yes. Okay. So, you're going to get, if the begin, before the evening starts, I can tell you more or less that if it's supposed to be a two hour show, it's going to be a two hour show. It might be an hour and 55 minutes, it might be two hours and three minutes, but the train is going to stay on time. And the playlist is going to go in the order that it's going to play. And Jagger is going to do an incredible job. And one night he might, his, his voice might be better or he's more animated because um, he's performing and it's closer to a performance. Right? People are in costumes and uniforms and Jagger's doing his thing. At the end of the day, pretty much if you've seen one Rolling Stones concert, you might have seen the next 20 on a tour. Huh. The playlist isn't going to change and the order isn't going to change. Then incredible hook that Keith Richards create isn't going to change. It's, I'm going to say, static, and they perform it better or worse on any given night. If you saw a Grateful Dead experience, it wasn't ever the same from set to set or night to night. I, they used to come to Cleveland uh, for three nights. I would go all three nights. My wife would go once. It was a good sport. <laughs> I didn't know what they were going to play. They didn't know what they were going to play. And, and, and the way they work as a jam band, so when we go back to the Stones, you know, the drum lays down the drum thing. There's a bass. There's a rhythm guitar. Everybody's kind of agreed on the part they're going to play. And Jagger is the lead who's sort of built on top of them. And the other people are there as infrastructure to let him do his lead. Grateful Dead, every band member is part of shaping the song this night right now. So the bass player, Phil Lesh, isn't doing one, two, three, four. He might be creating the rhythm over three or four or five or six bars. You might not even be able to tell how he's keeping the rhythm. The double drummers are changing. Um, Bob Weir is, is the rhythm guitarist, sorry, is fighting to figure out how do I get between where Garcia's guitar is going as a solo, and Phil is sort of playing almost his own solo on bass, and I've got to be smart enough and adaptable enough to figure out right now what rhythm on my guitar will bridge those two voices. If any band member wasn't listening to any other band member, the thing would fall apart in a second. And so you would hear them. In effect, you could you could see Garcia like, I'm trying to take the song in a different direction. And sometimes the band would go there, and sometimes the band wouldn't go there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Weir would change the rhythm because he wanted to move to another song, and they'd go with him, or they wouldn't go with him. But they were going as a group and creating a new thing every single night which is why literally the song Bertha, there are versions that are three minutes and there are versions that are 33 minutes. What I would suggest to you is they're both great songs and they're different, but they're not better or worse. They're just different. And so embracing change is a pretty big part of being successful in life, being adaptable. So the things you're talking about, the small business owner can decide I can embrace change or I can fight it. I, I want to put my hands over my ears and my my eyes. I'm not seeing what I'm seeing because it, it's upsetting to me. And people experience change as loss, and they don't like that. So they fight. fight. Well, you can fight it or you can embrace it. I mean, you've got choices, yours. But your fundamental point, which is if you're not embracing it, I do not understand how you're going to be in business three years from now because there is no return to normal. There is a new something, and we don't know what the new something is. And by the way, 
there's no guarantee that the new something will still be the same a year from now either. <laughs> right. But what you just described is very interesting. You nuanced the specific sounds of each artist and the drummer versus the lead versus the wave. And you're listening very carefully to the members of the band and their role and the direction it's going. And I would see what you're saying in your book is the soul of the deal is the same thing. You have to listen to each perspective, each point that's being made. And usually when people are negotiating, one is fixed on one way and the other is fixed on another way. And the compromise is where the deal happens, right? That's, that's what a deal is, is each, each has to make be compromised, right? So it could be compromise. It could also be capitulation. I give up. <laughs> right. I want X. I want it to be Y. Okay. It's X. I, I just, I can't fight anymore. Uh huh. But the compromise is, sort of assumes that the only two things that could go on are what one person said and the other person said, and you're someplace in between. And I don't think that's how it works, and that's not how a jam band works. It's it's sort of the difference between um, true-bad logic, right? The opposite of black is white. The opposite of up is down. And three-valued logic, which is that the opposite of black is not black. It's a hugely larger universe. So if one counterparty is fixed on X, my answer isn't anti-X, it's not X. And now I'm looking at a whole giant circle of choices and saying, well, okay, if you're really stuck on X, then I might want to change these five variables. And if we do package them all together, the mosaic will work for me. You've got the one variable you want, and I can accept it as a package but I can't accept it as a standalone. And and sort of to the listening to the band members, is the person saying this and they're like, they really, really mean it? Or are they saying it to see how I'm going to react? And you've got to be able to test that and hear that. And you've got to be able to play back to them and be comfortable saying things like, hey, I understand why you're saying that. By the way, when I'm on <laughs> your part of the deal circle, I would say the same thing. Here's why I would say it. This is why it's really good for me. On this side, what I would tell you is, here's why it's really bad for me. Well, let me remind you what it looks like on my side of the table. And are you seeing something different? You know, Now that I've explained what it looks like through my eyes, does that change how it looks like through your eyes? You started messing around on this point, like it's two cent, you know, a two-cent point for 10 minutes, as if, it's the most important thing in your life as opposed to, no, it's just a thing and it's preventing us from getting to the next thing. So let's figure out, pretend this is a box of Legos. Could you, you play with Legos? Everybody's played with Legos. How many different configurations can you make out of one group of Legos? That's what those are like. You know, you think this way and your book is about this, but how, what, would deal makers or people who are really into buying and selling companies, if it's a certain breed, what would they really extrapolate from that without being you? What they should extrapolate is um, one of my maxims is structure, unexamined, is stricture. So many deal people start with 
here's the way I do a deal. I do points one, two, three, four, and five, and that's what I present, and that's the only way I can do a deal. If they said to themselves, there are lots of ways to do this deal, it depends on who the counterparty is. The fact that I did this deal the last three times the same way doesn't imply that it works the next time. Mm-hmm. It's different than the encyclopedia selling customer. That was yesterday's customer. The focus has to be on not you. It always has to start with your counterparty and it always has to start by listening. Why do you think you're selling? What's motivating you? What about your business do you like? What's making you happy? What's making you unhappy? Why are you talking to me? Are you talking to other people? I mean, I can, I can ask questions for a very long time mm-hmm. or I run out of questions. And every time someone answers a question, or by the way, doesn't answer the question, which also gives you information, you're figuring out what's really driving this counterparty. Are they just tired? They just, they just don't want to be in business anymore. This is too hard, right? Do they want to cash out so they can go to the beach? And they don't want to continue to be the CEO after the purchase. They want, they want to be done. Or do they want to be purchased and still be the CEO? And then I've got to grapple with the fact that they still think they're the owner and the CEO, but they're not. Hmm. Each, each one of those would lead you to a different approach to a deal. The second I know somebody wants to go away, right? Well, I mean, I, I may revert to, you know, an incredible part of this business is just your brain. And if you're not here, it's, it's just not worth as much. Don't you think so? And then what's the person going to do? Say, no, I'm not that important. <laughs> not that smart. So, so they said, well, okay. I said, okay, so I'm just, I'm just saying this to be clear. You are a big, and particularly a small business, really. I mean, there tends to be a person and, and that's what, that's what's really there. And without that person, it's, it's just not there. Yes. Right. So yes. if the person wants to sell to you, but still be the CEO, I'm only 44 years old. I want some cash. I want some liquidity, but I don't know what else I do. I want to run the business for, I don't know, fill in the blank. One more year, five more years, three more years. If you can get people to articulate their actual needs, then you can try responding to their actual needs. And in responding to them, you may end up with a different shape uh, deal than you t- traditionally did, but you may also end up with a deal you can do because it works for this counterparty. And that's the only person you're trying to buy a business from is this counterparty, not the last three counterparties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The more you, you know, you said, how do you separate the business from the personal? I would say the, the more you have a founder or an owner that is a dominant part of the business, you know, the more you can sort of assume that you are dealing with complex human emotions, including, yeah, I really, really, really want to sell it. But then at three o'clock at night, I'm thinking, well, if I sell it, what am I going to do? If you don't, yes. And then you go back and forth. And, yes. And you, yeah. Can you give me the perspective of people who want to buy companies that are looking for, are they looking for good investments? Are they looking for missions? What is it that, Typical venture capitalists um, want out of a purchase. I mean, first of all, it's more likely to be a private equity firm. Just okay. sort of technical difference. Um, 
venture funds tend to invest in growing companies and then sell them. And private equity funds more frequently sort of buy a whole company or 75% of a company, and then they're going to own them and sell them again. So if you're really selling your business, you're not likely to sell it to a venture capital fund. Um, and if you're large enough, you may sell it to a private equity fund. Got it. If you're, if you're on the buy side, and it doesn't matter if you're an individual or an institution, right? I mean, the, the needs are the same. Just as the seller's mantra is certainty, well, that's the buyer's mantra too. <laughs> I want to know that the cash flow from last year isn't artificial and it should be there next year and the year after that and the year after that. So please explain to me why your revenues are recurring. Right? They're, they're locked in customers. They're not going to move. It's a software as a service business. Whatever it is, I can look at your customer base and think it's going to be the same three years from now as it is today. It'll be bigger and better. And that, that's a company that I want to buy. Not every business is like that. So things like an insurance agency, just to take a typical kind of purchase. There isn't an insurance agent in the world that can guarantee you that if you buy their business, all of their customers are going to love you and keep doing business with you. Just, it's not possible. True. And it's even more likely if the person doesn't stay on and, and try to solidify the relationship. Mm-hmm. So deals like that tend to be, hey, I will pay you half of the purchase price today at closing. And then depending on how many of your customers are still here a year from now, I'll pay you more. And how many are here two years from now, I'll pay you more. And three years from now. Because by then, either I've retained them and gotten the value that I wanted, or I haven't retained them and I didn't get the value, so I'm not going to pay for it today. Mm-hmm. So in every business, you're no matter how people frame it, at the end of the day, it's what's the replicability and predictability of the revenues and cash flow from this business. And that doesn't change. But the, the nomenclature changes, the vocabulary changes, the ratios change, but not what are people doing fundamentally. How do I know after I bought it that I have what I thought I bought? So part of that are revenues and customers. Part of it is, um, I think the most valuable people are your three senior vice presidents. I like you, <laughs> you know, you're a nice lady, but it's really the senior VPs that are driving this business. So. How do I make sure I have them? Because if I don't retain them, if I right. retain those people, there wasn't a business to buy. Mm-hmm. That's why when people to me get tangled up in financial statements and ratios and all the rest of it, it's the people. The people are either going to make it or they're not going to make it. Mm. To see if they would go with the sale or not. Yes. And, if, and Or even and if they're going to go and they're not going to be enthusiastic, they're going to be resentful. Um, you're not the right buyer. I don't like you. I wish they'd sold it to Charlie instead of Ishmael. I mean, you've got, you've got to go pretty deep into a company to understand what the acceptance level will be of the change. So as a buyer, that's, you're assessing all of those things, but you can express all of them. Am I buying the asset, human, capital, Customers, revenue, you know, the, the definition of asset is fairly broad. Am I buying all the assets, not just the physical assets, the real assets of any business? And will I have it after the deal closes? And that's why it's much more complex, or that's why it ought to be more complex. <laughs> in, in your 400 plus deals that you have, 
um, brokered, is there one that has gone exceptionally well that has really stood out in your mind? And was there a reason why that went exceptionally well? And also the opposite question, one that has not gone well and why it didn't go well? The ones where they didn't go well um, are pretty straightforward. Obviously, I wouldn't tell you which ones. I'll just describe right. annoying. But it's where the, the buyer misjudged one of two things. And essentially, it was the, the abilities of the team that they were buying. And they overestimated them. Mm. Uh, the second reason would be they estimated them correctly. But when you went to integrate current company and the company I bought, no ability to communicate. Uh, the computer systems don't talk to each other. Uh, people are in different time zones. When one of them uses the word, um, uh, what the burn rate for the month is, a, fin- a financial term, they mean different things by it. And by the way, if you think that doesn't happen, that would not be a good conclusion. Mm. People use the same word all the time and they mean completely different things. Mm. So, Integration, probably, I don't know, I don't know the exact statistic, but probably half of acquisitions fail in the first six months. And they fail because you are unable to truly integrate the two businesses. So forget one and one equal two, or one and one equals three, they eat one and one equals one. You don't really get the assets and the abilities that you thought you were going to get. And so the, let's say the other sort of disastrous really disastrous purchase. And I've got to figure out how to change the facts enough so you couldn't figure out what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. But if I just said to you generally, there's a, a buyer and the buyer's real strength is manufacturing. They've been in manufacturing forever. And and they have lots of product lines and lots of branded names and they are very good at what they do. And they have a, a distribution base. Their own customers are let's just call them distribution channel A. And they buy a company that they think is just like them because it makes very similar, it sells very similar products and it sells to a different distribution channel. But if you don't look too closely, it's still a distribution channel. On that particular purchase, the difference, and this, this was actually why I exited that company, was what I pointed out was in a manufacturing business, you can have pretty simple systems. You, you, the CEO, truly, you are so smart, you can walk around the warehouse and if the inventory is three feet high, you know it's enough. If it's five feet high, you know it's too much. If it's a foot and a half, you know it's too little. And you're adjusting in real time to something you can see. This other business that you're buying is an import business. The, the products are very similar, but these products come from Asia and they're on the water for two months and they require a different kind of financing. And when they arrive and the crate has six of what you wanted instead of the 10 that you ordered, you, it takes two months to get the problem fixed and you can't adjust things in the moment. Mm. That requires way different critical path and logistical knowledge and this company doesn't have it. So that's problem number one. And problem number two is this distribution channel doesn't know you, doesn't care about you. There are different people who do what you do that they like, and they they do everything differently. Yeah, they're a customer, 
and yet they buy this kind of product, but on a very, very different basis. Mm. So people under really consistently underestimate that. So when you go to integrate them, they, they don't integrate, and you actually lose all the value even of the company you bought. So I find that statistic fascinating that you said there are over 50% of the deals that are attempted do not go through. So no, you have a, what I'm saying was of the deals that close, you actually made the purchase. Half of them are deemed failures within six months because you are not able to do that integration because the advantages that you thought you get, you don't get because the communication you thought was going to be so easy isn't. So you didn't really acquire the asset that you thought you were buying. And you attribute this to the fact that most of the people don't get to the soul of the deal. They just do the logistics of it, but they really don't get to listening to every single piece and aspect of it. Hmm. When you when you talk to whoever you talk to a lot and use the same word with one friend and the same word with a different friend, would they all understand it the same way? Would you have to explain something more to somebody to give them context? Probably. Yeah. So that's the same thing there. You're dealing with real people who are, by the way, they're trying to actually are trying to communicate the correct information to you. But if you're not listening to it and you're not hearing it, then you're not gonna, you're not gonna retain it. You're not gonna understand what they are saying. So you make mistakes. Yes. You are more of a, um, a mediator than a veteran deal maker, <laughs> essentially. I think that there are lots of ways to do the same deal, and there end up being very good deals for everybody. And I never think there's only one way to do something. <clears throat> and by the way, I'm also perfectly willing to say to somebody across the table, listen, this is the way you say you want to do that. I'm pretty sure it's not going to work for me. But I'm absolutely okay if you want to explore it and let's see how it works out. You want to spend a half an hour talking about structuring it your way? Great. What you need to understand is the fact that I'm exploring it absolutely does not suggest that I'm committed to doing it. I'm willing to explore it. You're willing to have the conversation. Um, do you work strictly as a consultant or do you um – have a piece of these deals in your, how do people get in touch with you if they have a company they might want to buy or sell? So I, I don't work as a consultant and you can't retain me. <laughs> Good to know. I am partners with people and I'm doing things in connection with doing that, but you can't hire me to, to do a transaction. Just information from the book. Yeah, well, by the way, I'm perfectly happy to talk with people for, you know, I don't need to be charging somebody money to talk with them. I like talking with people and yes. I can help. But, and know. I do love how you bring this back to the Grateful Dead and your relationship with the soul of music as well. They were quite a unique band and are, you know, everlasting. People know that Dead like they know the Doors, like they know the Stones and it's an iconic rock and roll band, so I appreciate your weaving that part of the conversation in. It makes it really relatable about, you know, something that could be very unfamiliar to people. Well, that's great because it's the concepts are important. Yes. Not yes. Me, not the book. The concepts are important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, 
you need a Cliff Notes version. <laughs> no, but that's what the, the maxims are. Well, two things. The maxims are my attempt to say the most I can say in the fewest number of words. Mm-hmm. So it's short enough that people can remember it. If it is sort of the poetry is haikus to poetry, right? What can you put in those 17 syllables and people can remember them? The slightly expanded version from that is why every chapter ends with a page of key takeaways. Because I've actually had people say, Mark, I didn't read the book, but I did read all 17 chapters, key takeaways. They're great. Thank you very much. (laughs) Did you read the last chapter, the one called The Grateful Dead, America's Musical Venture Capitalists? They said, yeah, that's the only one I actually read. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, I think that sounds, the book sounds great, and the concepts are lasting, and the perspective is very much needed during this time of, the corporate culture being turned on its head and entrepreneurial culture as well. So thank you so much for what you offer and for bringing in the soul of a conversation that could be otherwise very challenging to people. I appreciate your time and what you do. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You can't get beat up no more. Now, if that means that somebody stops it, he stops it, or the... Momentito, everybody. freshman lawmaker George Santos is facing new accusations that he stole money from a disabled veteran who was trying to get life-saving surgery for his dying service dog.
Thank you, my friends. Please have a seat. Sit down. Sit, sit, sit. They're very nice. Welcome. Thank you. You're very kind. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, in here, out there, all around the world, to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. And... It's wonderful to be here tonight with friends because uh, we have we have we have sad news from New Zealand. Their prime minister Jacinda Ardern announced she will step down next month. No, no, Jacinda, if you're not prime minister, who's going to pick me up from the airport in Auckland now? <laughs> this is the biggest story to rock New Zealand since Dave spots new sheep. <laughs> and what I don't understand is why I'm leaving. Because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. I know what this job takes. And I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. Wait, wait a second. She's leaving because it's the right thing to do? <laughs> she didn't lose an election or steal classified documents or have a Boris Johnson sex party? <laughs> Are you kidding me sure you know how democracy works? You have even one deranged pillow salesman? <laughs> she, she continues. After going on six years with some big challenges, I am human. Politicians are human. Except Marjorie Taylor Greene, she seems to be some sort of coconut with a wig on a stick. <laughs> you can see Arden got a little choked up there, but she sees the bright side of the post-political life. I'm looking forward to spending time with my family once again. And so to Neve, Mum is looking forward to being there when you start school this year. That is so beautiful. That really is. That is absolutely... That's her. That's what she's like. That is so beautiful and so selfish. Sure, you want to spend your time with your daughter, but what about your other daughter, me? Remember when we barbecued in your backyard with Lord? You're the only world leader that I'm friends with. Don't make me start hanging out with Justin Trudeau. Sure, he's pretty to look at, but he smells like hot yoga and poutine. And it's not just the kids. It's not just the kids. Jacinda's also leaving me for her fiancé. And to Clark, let's finally get married. Clark, you better say yes, okay? I am saving the date. Put me down for fish, because you two have found your flower girl. This ends the remark, uh, a remarkable run for Jacinda Ardern. In, 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 in office, she went in 2017, right? She became the world's youngest world leader and the youngest leader of New Zealand in over 150 years when she was elected at the age of 37. In her second term, she formed the most diverse government in New Zealand's history. Her leadership on COVID kept her country largely free from the virus until last year. And after the horrific gun massacre in Christchurch, she spearheaded legislation to ban assault rifles just six days later. Rest up, because we need you to come to America to run in 2024. Because you may be a Kiwi, but at 42, you are constitutionally old enough to be a president's grandchild. <laughs> well, uh, it's, uh, what is it? Is it Thursday? 
It's a day of the week, and you know what that means. We have found out more lies about Republican Congressman George Santos, also known as Anthony DeVolder, also known as Anthony Zabrowski, also known as George DeVolder. Now, that's too many names for one person, but just enough for one law firm. Today's new Santos lie is uh, his fake glamorous life in New York City, as he told this podcast host. I've been ostracized from every single possible social circle. I was the guy who used to go to the Met Gala. I'm not invited back. Oh, honey. Oh, honey, you're not invited back because you were never invited in the first place. Okay? Okay? Unless you're talking about the Mr. Met Gala. It's so glamorous. Last year's theme was baseball head. Today, we also learned about another Santos persona because, according to associates, he used to be a drag queen in Brazil pageants. Wow! George Santos did something interesting. All his other lies are super boring, like I worked at a bank and my mother is a volleyball. Sources say the Santos performer under the drag name, Kitara Ravash. Really? Kitara Ravash, that's what he went with? I would have gone with something fun like Anita Alibi or... Ivana pawn your jewelry. But Katara Ramash never made it to the big leagues. According to a fellow drag performer, he did not have what it takes to be a professional. George did not have the glamour for that. Oh, snap. The GOP. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. The GOP better ban books faster because Santa's just got red for fail. George Santos denies all of this, and I can understand why. His party, the GOP, has declared war on drag queens all over the country over the last year. They don't care that Santos is a serial liar who steals money intended for dying dogs. But for Republicans, finding out he performed drag would be as bad as finding out he officiated a wedding between the green M&M and a COVID vaccine. Well, here, 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 here's something. I talked about this last night. And, and now it's happened. The U.S. has reached its $31.4 trillion debt ceiling. Now, normally, Congress automatically raises the debt limit as needed. But House Republicans are refusing in order to leverage the standoff to extract major spending cuts on social programs, including Social Security and Medicare. That is an insane negotiating tactic. That's pretty drastic. That's like a husband saying, honey, we're spending too much on entertainment. So either we cancel one of our streaming services or I shove your grandpa into the river. Which is it, Netflix or Peapop? So far, the White House is rejecting what it says are hostage demands using the debt ceiling as a weapon. So it could be a long battle and a long me talking about it. Because as Punchbowl News put it, welcome to the next six months of your life. Well, there goes dry January. And, and... And dry February and no meth March. The debt ceiling isn't the only thing Biden has to worry about because a suspected Russian spy ship has been spotted off the coast of Hawaii. Oh no! You know they're desperate for ratings when they do a Hawaii episode. 
kids get on horse. Putin family is going to Honolulu. We will say aloha to journalists, and then we will say aloha to journalists. It's not the first time the uh, Ruskis have been sniffing around our shores. Recently, the same Russian spy ship was spotted sailing off the coast of South Carolina. Wow. I'm surprised I didn't see it. I do a lot of fishing down there in my home state, though this might explain why that one fish was so big and yelling at me in Russian. Fried up real good, though. Oh, there's huge news. Yes, in Guinness. Campbell joke. There's huge news from Washington where we're learning. And is this true? Is this is this true? Is this been verified? An old man ate a hamburger. Here's what happened. To promote small businesses, a president ordered lunch from a DC burger joint, surprising the employee who took the call. Hi, Brian. This is Joe Biden. I'd like to place an order for lunch if I could, okay? Hi. Hi. I'd like to have a bacon cheeseburger, an American cheese, and a side of French fries. I'll have someone come pick it up, okay? How busy are ghost burgers these days? It's pretty good. Oh, good. (laughs) Okay, I'm looking forward to having lunch. Okay. Okay, there you go. I love lunch, Brent. One of my top three meals behind dinner and Jello cup. You know, back in Scranton, we didn't have McDonald's. Man. Forget in and out. We just had out. Doors weren't really a big thing back then. Everyone slept in one big room like that old Charlie Bucket guy. Good old Chucky Bucky's chubby pal still stuck in that pneumatic Choco tube. Rest in power, Gustav Sloot. According to... According to AIDS, a.k.a. the president's hamburger helpers, Biden enjoyed his lunch, but he did get the ghost burger with no spooky sauce, which is either a ghost burger special sauce or what Biden calls ketchup he doesn't trust. we got a great show for you tonight. My guest... Just a little flavor of something that we used to do. I guess that's how I can... Around it, suspect wise. Sorry, but I want to read... I want to read Caroline. Uh, So, I shall. And, uh... Brother Doug, can you... Can you grab our sister Rainbird? Oh, it's just right there. I see. All right, Rainbird. I'll just do this little bit of reading here. Okay. This excerpt is from Chapter 2. This is Caroline Oceana Ryan. uh, And it's a message. It's an excerpt from her new book uh, uh, that she channeled. Uh, along with the, it's called Messages from the Spirits of Abundance. Yes, okay. Um, a light bringer asks, I have commanded myself to revise any soul contract 
far for lack to a contract to experience abundance, to share. I have visualized myself drawing money, abundance, to myself through winning it, not by hard slave work. I have entered many small to big sweepstakes and lotteries with small money amounts, have tracked the draw dates, spoken my will to win. I have visualized sharing abundance with many. I have written lists annually, adding the names of those in lax situations that I have come to know. Turning the page. Okay. I have said affirmations daily. I have done these efforts for 13 plus years. I have kept positive despite not attaining abundance with ease. What do you have to say on this? Fortuna, goddess of fortune answers. We would say, dear one, that despite your very beautiful intentions to share what you create, you carry within your, your energies a measure of guilt and unease about having money that has withheld, that has withheld it from you. Your pursuit of fortune in ways other than through hard work is admirable, as indeed there is much to be received in this world without hard effort. Yet we speak of unconscious guilt, unease about having money, as you stress in your message that you are calling in winnings not simply for yourself, rather for others. In doing so, you accidentally confirm two things. The inner container you have for money is already releasing energy. Even before the money has arrived, you have also decided that that these others you care about are in need. The money cannot come to you so long as you are mainly a channel to receive so as to give. It is hard for anyone to receive as they have consciously stepped aside from large portions of any sum and unconsciously decided that their giving is mainly to fulfill need. An attempt to rescue anyone is a strong confirmation of lack and loss. It confirms that there is only so much abundance for humanity to experience, and you wish to make up for that lack outwardly by giving part of what you receive. Though that is a kind and generous impulse, and, would, and we would say that giving is a beautiful thing to do. The impulse to help those in need is often a fear-based one. It badly confuses the abundance energies that you are welcoming in and diff, dis, diffuses your co-creational actions. And so the money energy you desire is already diffused. It is already flowing out and away from you into multiple channels even before it arrives. 
little cage here. That needs to be tough. Okay. We are glad that you have revised your soul contract with money from lack to abundance. Yet your intention is to somewhat diffuse or legitimate, legitimate your desire for large sums by having a list of others you wish to share with. We would say again that to give is a beautiful impulse, full of love and kindness, yet it often masks a fear of having money, which many equate with comfort, an easier life, or power. These ideas clash with many lifetimes of hearing. It is better to give than to receive. And the notion that poverty and struggle are closer to godliness than comfort and plenty are. And so, it often becomes a greater path to walk, to release that one must suffer to move forward spiritually and to realize that the first person you are here to be loving and generous toward is yourself. All who follow the way of the light warrior, a path of peaceful intent, yet fraught with challenges and demands, will often insist that all those around them must eat, rest, or be encouraged and loved before they themselves will partake of such. Your many selfless lifetimes of service to community, family, spiritual groups, all arrest to your, attest to your, to your giving spirit, which we greatly respect. Yet, let us look at the phrase, quote, your many selfless lifetimes. Most of you have spent lives as a contemplative, a monk, a nun, or something similar in constant service to the community. Many of you have been a spiritual teacher who lived on practically nothing, or a healer or shaman who had to hide their gifts and practices for fear of being found out by the authorities. Or perhaps you decided out of humility that you would only accept donations rather than payment for your life work. All of you have also had lives as a woman in which you were made to subsist at times in the most degrading and poverty-stricken circumstances. For centuries, lower-income women were raised to ensure that as there is any food, it goes mainly to the man of the family, then to the children and domestic animals, and then as there is any left to her. At times, she was expected to put all forms of self-care aside and sell herself as prostitute, slave, or... Hmm... Uh, that, that's not printed up, or etc. <laughs> in those and other third dimensional circumstances, selfless became literally true. You lived as 
though you were a non-person without a self, capital S. This is overgiving, whether due to a misdirected humility or sheer need for survival. In those lives, you no longer experience yourselves as a whole and separate being, rather merely a form of function. Many of you have also had lives in which you were treated merely as a tool of a religious or philosophical construct or a tool of the state and family, a servant or a slave to a slaveholder, employer, religious community, husband, or other forms of ownership at different times in Earth's history. You took vows and oaths of poverty and self-denial, which our subconscious reads as still viable and applicable in that and all lives following. Most of you now desire to break out of this very old mold without realizing that your desire to disappear inside large acts of generosity is a form of self-negation. And one of the things you came into this life to heal yourself of, while some suffer from a worship of the self, in these above cases, self-love, self-care, self-respect, based on kind and generous acceptance of oneself, is the path forward out of lack. You will not find it by saying, quote, but what I call in is also for others. It's not as though I were only asking for myself. Certainly that kind of generosity can be laudable. Yet what as the kind gift you offer is an affirmation that... One more page is an affirmation that those you are giving to are in need that vibration of need will persist till they pull themselves out of it merely treating outer circumstance is never enough consider as well that they may have chosen those circumstances to learn from them that may be their chosen sacred path and not the accident or unfortunate situation you and others assume it is. The universe follows the commands of your heart-mind, not only the left brain aspect of thought. And so, have you got a large and open container ready to receive? One without blockages and too many, excuse me, too many challenges of outgo ready before you receive. Take a moment now, dear ones, and let your thought and feeling fully absorb the importance of this message. To give and give to another is a great blessing to both you and them. Yet you cannot give to all who appear to be in need now. So at, as so many have chosen that path or unconsciously fallen into it, as you did not give away all that your inner training says you should give, 
Would you suffer some guilt? And do you feel in some way responsible for those in need? And so now, we see a great issue with that word need. And so, let us look at the root of the issue, which is always a matter of energetic frequency. To say that someone is in need affirms that their situation can only be remedied or temporarily assisted by some form of outside help, and that living in lack is typical of their lives in some way. Far from lifting anyone out of lack is unconsciously cons- it unconsciously consigns them to it indefinitely. This is a very great issue in human life, yet all are worthy of abundance. And so you assist both your own growth and those you wish to assist by taking everyone off the lack list. In truth, no such thing as lack exists, only blockages to form to forms of abundance. One of the greatest gifts you can give to anyone is to affirm that they are moving into such an abundance and prosperity feeling and mindset that their abundance, quote, pours forth now in ways that are perfect for them, unquote. Image them opening their hearts joyfully to receive it. This is a far greater gift than money itself. Yet first and more importantly, dear one, focus upon yourself and your own growth and experience. And that's the word. So namaste. Growth and expansion. That's the last word. Only I'm not the last word. The last word is for our sister Rainbird. And I have this talking stick with angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and Quetzalcoatl, that emerald serpent feathered one, is right here along with this talking stick. And I pass it to you, Sister Rainbird. All right. I'll take that talking stick. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, another good day. Lots of beauty, lots of fun. And what an exciting year. Happy New Year, everyone. We're in into the second day of the new year <laughs> of being a rabbit. And I like that rabbit energy. It um, it deals with fear in a good way. So yes, uh, it's related to the ego, right, Rainbow? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and it's a multiplier. So let our lives multiply what we need and do it fearlessly. <laughs> yes. So lots of gratitude for. It. All of you and everyone, and I'm passing this talking stick over to you, Rama. What you got? Okay. What you got there, Rama? This is Alan Watts. Alan Watts. Um, calling the others. Calling the others. Okay. Here we go.
Now you see, our very existence is a rhythm of waking and sleeping, eating and moving, and that's all we're doing. And just consider what we do every day. What's it all about? Does it really mean anything? Does it go anywhere? It's just because we want to keep on doing this another hoopdida. So you can get a certain vision of life where everything is seen to be a complex pattern of rhythm. Dances. The human dance. The flower dance. The bee dance. The giraffe dance. And that's what this all is. It's jazz. You see? This is a big jazz, this world. And what it's trying to do is to see how jazzed up it can get. How far out this play of rhythm can go. Because that's what we all come down to.
everyone for spending the time what we do here together let it manifest abundance and prosperity and freedom and peace on this sweet earth namaste and sat nam ki 13 thank yous honey in the heart no evil live long and prosper and come tomorrow on monday and join us with Cheryl Croce, uh, 10 to 7 or so on our mountain time, 10 to 9 eastern time, and everything in between. And the number is 425-436-6260. And the pin code is 946-7441-POUND. And so we bid you farewell. And our sister Aurora says the the um, the Galactic Federation has delivered an invitation to humanity to join them in the Galactic Federation. This invitation was made through a group of people on Earth called ambassadors who are appointed by the Galactic Federation to deliver their messages to humanity at this time. The Sara now, I would say, would be on the edge of their lips. What do you say, Rama? Ditto. <laughs> All right, everybody. Aloha. And uh, 
until we meet again next week or tomorrow night with Cheryl. Namaste. Peace down. Yeah. <laughs>